see you on the flip side. Hiroam Slavan. Yeah, beautiful words by Sarah, right? Indeed. I don't know. She she has a sense of timing, does she not? <laughs> <laughs> and gosh, are we lucky that are we lucky that she has managed to get out there? So there you go. All righty, Jacob. Yeah. So now we know what happened on the twenty fourth. Where do we stand today? What is this anniversary? Yeah, the uh, well, you touched upon it already. The Mike check position. Yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the the next thing I'd like to say is I was a whole lot on TV on the 25th and the 26th. And what I recall now is over that weekend where I guess I at least expected that Ukraine would be run over. I started to notice all these yeah mistakes the Russians were making and, you know, how the... The initial target of Kharkiv and and uh, Hostomel, etc., etc. You know, it 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 didn't work out for them. And uh, I remember talking to uh, to one of the uh, military strategists uh, that was in the uh, in the studio as well, and he was saying, "Well, they'll adapt, they'll learn, and then the next push will be there." But all these pushes that that the military strategists were talking about, they they never came. And and afterwards, what I guess what we've seen over the last course of the year, luckily, the uh, adaptation, as it's called in, <laughs> in the strategy books, is is, uh, is not really the strong point of, uh, of the Russians. And, uh, you know, they adapt to some extent, but generally it's just not very clever what they're doing and uh, yeah we can count ourselves lucky at least uh, on that uh, on that score uh, so so that's also one of the reasons why we are we are today where we are today I guess uh, besides obviously the bravery and the the wits uh, of uh, of the the Ukrainian army uh, but uh, that, that that's one thing I've thought about a whole lot today was what what I saw that first weekend in terms of, you know, basic, basic schoolboy errors, really. And whilst we're at it, Jacob, let me just welcome another friend of the space and uh, well-known Ukrainian, former ambassador and uh, still um, ambassador, um, Ukrainian extraordinaire, Alexander Scherber. Guten Abend, servus. <laughs> Grüß Gott. Grüß Gott, how are you doing? Welcome to the marathon, Alexander. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, as I understand, it's uh, the evening or the day of recollections where we all were uh, a year ago, right? Absolutely. We do three questions at minimum. Where were you? How was it on the 24th? How is it different today? Where do we stand and where do we go with it? So, Alexander, tell us, where were you on the 24th and how did it start for you? Well, it started for me on the, actually, on the evening of uh, 23rd when I spoke to a friend of mine who said, uh, well, uh, tomorrow morning they, are, uh, they will definitely attack. And I responded rather sheepishly. I said, what, again? 
uh, and it was just, you know, I, I, I didn't believe her. I just gave an interview to, I don't remember, was it BBC, CNN, some Austrian channels, whatever. Um, and uh, I was uh, saying that I still believe in rationality of Putin, first of all, that, and this war would be absolutely suicidal for him because it would be uh, a war not against the government, uh, not against the army, but against the war against the people who resent Putin, who don't want to be uh, his, uh, uh, how do you say, vassals. Um, uh, that's for one thing. And second thing I said, uh, I believe it would be the most unpopular war uh, in Russia's news history because it would be a war between people with the same last name, the names, the first, the, the, the same first names, former colleagues, uh, friends, relatives, whatever. And I was wrong on both issues, absolutely catastrophically. And I realized that at uh, 4.30 in the morning next day when friends of mine were calling me from Washington and uh, screaming, uh, I quote, uh, the moron uh, invaded Ukraine. Um, uh, tanks uh, are heading towards Kyiv. And so that's, that's how it all began for me. Uh, I uh, thank God my family was outside the country. Uh, so I didn't have uh, to worry where to move. Uh, I was here in Kiev, and they were in safety. And then, uh, of course, I went outside and uh, saw uh, in, in the early morning the streets of Kiev were rather empty. Uh, so not 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 too many uh, pedestrians, but too many cars. And that was the first difference from the usual picture. And second of all, I saw uh, a young uh, man with uniform in his hands running somewhere. I shouted to him, God be with you. He looked at me. I don't think he realized what I was shouting. Um, then I went uh, into the subway. Subway station was turned into a recruit recruitment point. And I saw their pictures that I knew from the World War movies, uh, young women saying goodbye uh, to uh, young soldiers and uh, women, and uh, elder women saying goodbye to their sons. So basically bidding farewell to uh, because they were going to war. And that was uh, absolutely unforgettable, of course. And and then rather soon, um, well, uh, I, I called my father, he said, and I asked him, should we, should we go somewhere? Uh, it seems like the, the, they can capture Kiev in a couple of days. And my 75-year-old father uh, said uh, that uh, he thinks that we will keep Kiev and Kiev won't fall and we should keep faith. Uh, but even for the worst-case scenario, he has a gun, and he will take a couple of buryats with him uh, before he goes. So that was the moment uh, when I realized that if my 75-year-old father is not thinking about going anywhere, then uh, I, with my 52 years, uh, shouldn't be thinking about that too. 
Um, and so, well, this is how it all began. Very soon uh, we heard the phrase uh, about the Russian warship, and that phrase uh, uh, turned everything around. And the pictures of people, you know, standing in front of uh, uh, Russian tanks and trying to uh, stop them with bare hands, just it turned everything around. We realized that we have this love in ourselves, love to, to the country, uh, love to, 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 to our identity, and we will be uh, standing uh, in the way of the enemy and resisting, and in the end we will uh, uh, prevail. We didn't say that out loud, but I hope in the back of the head uh, we, 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 we had uh, this. So this is how it all began for me. Uh, uh, what were the other questions? I'll come to that in a second, Alexander. Let me just recognize, I can see that already that we have also been joined by a friend of the space and a very experienced Tainaton expert, Thomas Tainer, of all people. And I'll ask him exactly the same question, then we move to question two. Thomas, um, I can also see Malcolm Nance, if he dares to come up. The man who said shit come uh, shit uh, went real and uh, he couldn't stand idly by. So he'll be there with us in a second just as well. Thomas, good evening. Servus. Good evening to everyone and Slava Ukraini. Slava Ukraini. Hello, Slava. Thomas, oh God, and there's Malcolm Nance. Now that we now we are complete for a start. Malcolm, good evening. Hi, good afternoon. Welcome glad to, to glad to be here. <laughs> Excellent. So, well, then I'll, I'll flip the question around for all of you now that we've started with Jacob and Alexander. Thomas, how did it start for you? Where were you on the 24th last year? I was sitting on my couch and cursing everybody in Europe because I had told everyone since around November I knew the Russians would go, it would invade and we would have the biggest war in Europe and tons of people didn't believe it. And so basically I was not in Ukraine because I had left just before COVID. We went to the Berlin Film Festival and then afterwards when COVID struck, I didn't go back. I wasn't in Kiev, but I knew lots of friends who were there and I sent all of the messages to leave now because in the morning the streets will all be full of traffic jams. And yeah, it was... Um, not a moment of desperation because I knew the Ukrainians would fight because I had seen them on Euromaidan and how the city of Kiev defeated the goons and thugs of Yanukovych made clear that this nation, these people, would fight. The question was back then if they could hold Kiev for me because Putin clearly wanted to invade Kiev as prime target but that the Ukrainians would fight and that the Russians would suffer humiliating defeat over time was already clear to me back then. So it felt a bit like Cassandra, right? Yes, because we are surrounded by people who can't believe stuff when you tell them. I mean, people didn't believe in 2014 that these were Russian special forces in Crimea and in Donbass. Not because they were stupid people, but because it's much easier to live in a bubble, you know, where everything is fine. And, you know, in four years, Russia is hosting the World Cup and we are getting cheap gas and people just don't want to accept that there's evil 
fascists out there who don't care about anything but their power and that they will use the most brutal ways to do things. I mean, after MH17, after people getting poisoned with Novichok in Salisbury in England and dying and so on, there were still people in Germany going around like, we should do more business with Russia. We should invite Putin to my wedding. As I'm the foreign minister of Austria, I can lick his feet at my wedding. <laughs> and I mean, such disgusting people. And that's why we have a war. Because Western Europe is full of disgusting people that were in power for way too long. The appeasenics, I take it. Malcolm, where were you exactly on the 24th? Well, uh, in fact, I had taken the last flight out of Lviv uh, to, uh, to on the last Lufthansa flight out of Lviv. It was actually the last flight, uh, I think, out of the country. Uh, and uh, that was late that evening of the 24th, and it was a complete fluke. Um, as you guys know, I went to Ukraine a month before. I went there to study the potential Russian uh, um, invasion routes and the orders of battle and what would evacu eventually be the evacuation routes and also assess a uh, the, what what we thought at the time would become a Ukrainian underground. Uh, so I, I went there with, with that intention in January. I stayed uh, through Kyiv. I drove all over the country. We drove all of what we thought at the time were the principal invasion routes, like from Sumy to Nihiv, uh, up, you know, uh, north of Hostomel and, you know, from the Belarusian border. And I mapped all of this out. When, in, in, we had an operations office in Kyiv uh, where, you know, if you go to my Substack today, I, I put online at malcolmnance.substack.com. I put a video uh, of a podcast that I was recording a year ago, and it shows me in the office with our plot board of where all the known Russian battalion task groups were, uh, our assessed phase lines for where they could get at the end of, uh, you know, what we call Z-Day, well, would call Z-Day, but H-hour H plus, um, plus one day, then plus three days, then plus seven days. And it was clear that they were going to try to surround Kyiv from the northeast and the northwest, cut off the highway access to Zudomir, and then come straight through Sumy all the way down through, surround Kharkiv, and cut, you know, try to get everything up to the Dnipro River as quickly as possible. Uh, I didn't go to Mariupol, I didn't go to Odessa, but it was pretty clear how those would be attacked. Amphibious assault. Uh, you know, from uh, Mariupol would have been a very quick one, uh, you know, surrounded relatively quickly. Um, so, you know, and I had been out with the Ukrainian army. Um, I went to, I went out to uh, Donetsk, to Avdivka um, at D minus eight. So that was eight days before the invasion. Uh, we had a briefing there by General Pavlyuk, commander of land war of the uh, Joint Task Area at Donetsk, and then General Sierski, who was commander of land warfare. Uh, they, at that time, D-8, did not assess they were going to be invaded imminently because the battalion task groups hadn't formed into assault groups. But within 24 hours of that briefing, I actually have that whole briefing on video, but within 24 hours of that briefing, 
um, the battalion task groups did form into assault groups. So I knew it was coming. I, you know, I, I, I assessed it was coming. The only reason that I, I had to leave Ukraine, I had an urgent, urgent family matter. And I also wanted to get back as quickly as possible. I had assessed that they would invade four days earlier, the, 20, um, the 20th. And in fact, U.S. intelligence had assessed that also. But the White House was doing a brilliant strategy of releasing these dates that they assessed that the Russians would attack. It was very clear the Biden White House had a copy of the war plan. Uh, from what we understand, as early as October, they had a full copy of the Russian war plan, and all of their diplomacy was based on that. We even told the Russians we had their plan. So on the 20th, you know, it was looking pretty imminent, and I got COVID. <laughs> I got a really bad case of COVID. So I was down for two or three days. I couldn't leave the country. Um, and I was going home to go get all my battle gear. Um, you know, I knew this would be a fight. And so um, just by complete fluke, when, when the U.S. spoiled the plan of the 20th, and I think, uh, um, uh, I think one of the Russian former ministers who, who, who died in December, he said it was the 22nd. Uh, but, you know, the intelligence community, we don't like to do things when the enemy knows the specific date. So I think Putin pushed it back two to four days. And then the 24th, he attacked. I was actually just one hour in Dublin. We had landed. I got into a taxi. I went straight to my hotel. I got into my room. Putin's speech started. And as soon as I saw the speech, I said, that's the go order. That's the invasion order. And, of course, strikes were already being carried out before he ever finished the speech. Um, so the next morning, I flew to, to New York. Uh, I was in my house within 24 hours, and I was sorting all of this enormous quantity of tactical gear that I had from years of, of, of my military service. But I was also an intelligence contractor in Libya, uh, Syria, and Iraq. So I had like a platoon's worth of very advanced uh, equipment, and I turned all that around. I was packaging it when the um, when President Zelensky announced the formation of the Ukraine um, International Legion, and I I went to Washington D.C. and I had an appointment with the defense attaché. I was groomed, uh, vetted by them. They were like, "Yeah, can you just leave now? Can you guys go back now?" And I I, I said I could. I got back within a couple of days, and uh, and. You know, that's how we started the war, Daddy. Yeah, that's how it started. Shit got real. Now, let, let me just ask a question also to uh, Jacob and to Alexander. Now, there were seminal moments. There were absolute decisive moments which stick in everybody's mind in the last year. Now, everybody has their own priorities, but what was the time when you felt that Ukraine actually would would come out of this victorious and would not subside, would not uh, fall prey to the Russian invasion. What, what was your key moment during the year? Jacob, Alexander, please. Yeah, I'd say if if I start, the, the first thing for me was when you could tell the Russians got stuck outside of Kiev. Uh, Irpin on, and on the eastern fringes, etc., and uh, you could tell there was no no traction uh and that was that was like you know a defining moment i i remember speaking to these uh 
to these uh, other military analysts saying, well, there'll be another push, there'll be another push. I'm saying, where should it come from? And uh, and everyone in Denmark, at least, were talking about, oh, they're going to encircle Kiev, etc., etc. And I was I was one of the guys saying, no, nah, but I can't see where they should come from. They don't have the capacity. Uh, and uh, so so those were some of the defining uh, defining days uh, uh, for me at least because you could tell it was an ill-conceived plan they didn't have the capacity to back it up what they were trying to do and uh, yeah uh, things went sour in the north and uh, you could tell Chernihiv, Sumy close to the Russian border they couldn't even they couldn't even do that uh, so uh, yeah uh, those were some of the things I picked up on uh, quite early, I'd say. Okay, Alexander. Well, well I, I'm not uh, a very, I'm, an, I'm not very good in you know uh, forecasting things. Um, so um, uh, my confidence was really reinforced when I saw Russians. Withdraw from uh, from from Kiev Oblast and from from Central Ukraine. This so-called uh, goodwill gesture that was, of course, un- it felt like we could win this war already one week into this, uh, when uh, it, it became obvious that they cannot uh, take. Uh, any uh, oblast center aside from um, Kherson. When I saw this uh, famous uh, video, how they were trying to enter Kharkiv and how fearful they were and how they were basically running uh, from Kharkiv uh, after they really got attacked by uh, Ukrainian forces. Um, so emotionally, it was rather early. Uh, uh, so uh, intellectually, I realized it when when uh, they withdrew. And there is one more thing I wanted just to get off my chest uh, uh, and share with this audience. I just read today on uh, Facebook um, um, a post by a known Ukrainian journalist who was back then uh, on February 24th um in hungary he was uh, bringing some uh, you know weaponry some some gear uh to ukraine uh through hungary and uh the highways towards uh, the border were filled with uh, hungarian uh, army uh they were you know the, the military presence was very heavy uh um, at the border back then, and he spoke to um, a Hungarian soldier, and this Hungarian soldier, the soldier of a NATO country, told him um, rather arrogantly that uh, in two, three days you will be taken over, uh, you shouldn't have trusted Americans. And this is, this is, this is, uh, this was the mood in many, many uh, interviews that I was giving uh, in the first days uh, of, of, of uh, uh, the war, of, of the full-blown war. And uh, this is how it all began, with this hopelessness, uh, in, in the media at least, 
um, uh, and this uh, uh, conviction that once again uh, the evil will prevail very very soon. And it was amazing how fast, within a couple of weeks, this story turned into this, you know, uh, Davis, David versus Goliath story and this absolutely heroic, wonderful story that uh, um, not only took a ca uh, attention, but, 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 but uh, received this, you know, this uh, uh, appreciation throughout the world and inspired so many people. So uh, this, is, this is just... Uh, uh, this was the switch. Somehow it became be, began like the darkest story of our time, and rather soon it became like one of the, the most aspiring ones of our time, and it was amazing and unforgettable for me. Operator Starsky was here with us earlier today, and I wanted to throw this in for Thomas and also for Malk. Mm. And he said that as soon as they had. Um, battled back the Vedeve at Hostomel Airport. They felt that they could make a change and they felt that um, the Russians are not as good as they believe, uh, as they may believe they are. Mm. He said that they couldn't get, that they couldn't get their howitzers, their um, helicopters down there, the troops protected, that they were literally without a plan. Mm. Thomas, what say you? I wanted just to say that moment when I knew the Ukrainians can beat the Russians, at least in the north, there was a video that came out 25th, 26th, something, uh, of a Ukrainian, not even platoon, I think two fire teams, like a dozen guys with n in a forest north of Hostomel, yeah. completely fucking up a Russian company of paratroopers putin's elite you could see basically there was a ukrainian guy walking around with an enlo on his shoulders russian bodies all over the place it was in a forest and they destroyed another russian company then in the village in hostomel but this basically i think it was special forces ukrainian like a dozen or 20 guys and they basically there was a 50 60 dead russians bunch of burning russian equipment and you could tell given the right weapons in the right amounts, the Ukrainians can completely destroy the Russian invasion forces. Mm -hmm. That was two, three days. I was worried that Kiev might fall initially because it depended that the Ukrainians would stay, the leadership would stay and coordinate the defense and the fight. And in the first evening, Zelensky came out and was like, I'm here, the prime minister is here, we are here, we're the Ending our country was a key moment when I saw that basically entire Russian elite, so let's call them elite because Putin calls them elite, professional Russian troops with the newest equipment that the Russian army has get massacred. I remember one image of basically one of these BMD trees, newest Russian armored vehicle, and the entire crew. And the troops it was carrying were all lying dead on top of it because the Ukrainians killed them so fast, none of them managed to even jump down from this vehicle. I mean, it must have complete crossfire of three, four machine guns plus Kalashnikovs plus N-laws. And when you saw that, you knew these Ukrainians, they not just want to fight, they can fight. And these Russians are absolutely overrated. Can I make a comment? 
Of course. Right. <laughs> I would have asked you anyway. All right. Well, I have a story uh, as to when I knew this war was over. And it became very controversial. As you guys know, I was uh, the intelligence and national security analyst, uh, counterterrorism analyst for MSNBC News, which means they paid me. I had a six-figure salary to come in and comment on national security issues. Um, I went to Ukraine, and I wasn't part of their Ukraine team, uh, in fact. I, I went there as part of a think tank. We went to do this assessment on my own. I mean, I wasn't going to be caught in the largest war since World War II. Um, and when I went to Avdivka, and I went through those briefings, and I met General Sersky, and I met pa General Pavlyuk, there was a CNN crew there that came to interview General Pavlyuk. And they, the questions they were asking were just inane. They were just really stupid questions. And you know they had to check off boxes, but, you know, they wouldn't put on— Here's a good example. The CNN crew would not put on Ukrainian Army armor, body armor or helmets. They had to put on their CNN helmets or everything when we were down at Adivka, because we got to 70 meters from the forward position, the one that was shooting uh, at our OP. Uh, and by the way, which still hasn't fallen. Absolutely amazing. But this journalist goes to General Pavlyuk. He goes, well, what happens when the Russians attack? General Pavlyuk says, we're going to fight them. And he goes, well, what if they attack? They come from the south. He says they're blocking from the south. And he says, well, what if they attack Ukraine from the north? And you could just see him getting frustrated. And he goes, we'll, we'll fight them there. And then, you know, I realized something, and I said this on air. It's on MSNBC. It's Like I said, it's about 10 days before the invasion. Um, I said, this, I've seen this kind of combat commander, but not, not very often. This guy can't be beat. He just does not give a flip which direction they come. This is the Chosin Reservoir scenario of, we're surrounded, great, we can attack in any direction. I mean, I, I was really impressed. I actually have this on video where I said, oh, my God, this guy can't be beat. And, um, and you know, then I realized at the command level, this is the guy who would be leading the, the you know, the forward edge of the, of the fight at Donetsk, which would be the first place blitz, right? And uh, then I realized, you know, after seeing the army, after talking to the commanders, after seeing their invasion plans, by the way, it had become very clear to me and made clear to me that all the Ukrainian army's war stocks were already deployed 14 days before the invasion. The entire Ukrainian army had already, the standing army, had already been mobilized and in position at D-14. So I was like, <laughs> the Russians are going to get their asses kicked. So I famously went on MSNBC, and I was asked at—it was about D-3, D-4. Uh, I had an interview where I was actually openly ridiculed on television by an expert. And he was like, Kiev will fall in 72 hours. And I came right out. I said, have you been to Kiev? This city's the size of Chicago. It's got 5 million people. They're filling up Molotov cocktail bottles so little old ladies can throw them out of the 20th story of these buildings. This city will never fall. It will never fall. You can't take this city. You can surround this city 
you can talk about you can cut it off but you can't take a city of this size with this many people and i was poo-pooed like oh well you don't seem to know the fundamentals of warfare well i had fought two major invasions okay i invaded iraq twice uh well one and a half times and uh i invaded libya and where else a couple other oh yeah kuwait so you know i knew what how an army moves right and one of the things that i had seen um come driving from sumi was the number of gas stations just on one stretch of highway leading from the main road out of belgorod into ukraine through sumi straight down to the north by northeast of kiev and do you know how many Soko, Sokar and Oko gas stations there are? There's got to be 20, 25. It, you know, all these gas stations, they're not gas stations. They're liquor stores that sell hot dogs and coffee, right? And I go, the Russians aren't going to get past the first Sokar, which is the, you know, that's the Armenian, the Azerbaijani one, the one that has all the Azerbaijani whiskey um, and cognac. I go, these guys are going to be drunk. This is going to take them weeks, weeks. And then I realized, you know, I, 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 I said on air, the, the, the lines of communication, the fuel lines, even coming north from Russia south to Chernihiv, they're too long. They're going to get slaughtered every night. It's going to be like that famous massacre scene in Last of the Mohicans every night. And if they have any smarts, which the Ukrainians did, they won't attack the tanks. They'll attack the fuel trucks every night, and the tanks will die on the road, and then they'll just go and just wipe them out. And, you know, all of this was if a few days before the invasion. But after the invasion, a couple of days, I would say about four or five days after the invasion, it was becoming very clear to me that everything that I had said was true. The lines of communication were way too long. They had already started capturing tanks with tractors. And I go, they don't have fuel. And the Russians are worried about, you know, what, you know, that dirty word they call call us, you know, they were worried at night that, you know, the bad guys will come and get them and slit their throats. So they just abandoned their tanks. That was true, too. And, you know, we, when I got to Ukraine, we were planning for insurgency. But by the time uh, I had started really getting into operations, because I was with GUR, uh, Director of Military Intelligence, I was trying to stand up an IED school, you know, an ISIS-style IED school. But it was becoming pretty clear to me that we wouldn't need it, that N-laws, Javelins, Stingers were doing the job, and that the Ukrainian attitude, the attitude of, I'm going to kick your ass now, that was the—I was like, this war's over. The Russians are going to lose. And I definitely said that in my last broadcast which was 13 March. I said, Russia will lose this war. It is clear to me now they cannot win. Malcolm. This. Yeah, and I was laughing. Malcolm, can you too. speak, concerning to interject, Malcolm, can you speak about all the crypto cards, all the comms vehicles that the Russians just abandoned, crypto cards? Can you tell our audience how important well, that uh, is? Well, you know, let me just say something about Russian communications because I happen to know quite a bit about it. Um, first off, they had this new communication structure right down to the individual tactical team radio, which was required to operate in one of two modes, which was a internal cellular network, which was set up by the Russians on their communications uh, companies, um, which weren't supposedly encrypted, 
and it would ping off of this network of these communications companies that would set up their own towers. But it became pretty clear very early on that the Russians had, you know, the one thing that I was completely wrong about was I said Russia would do a massive cyber attack on Ukraine and they would neutralize the internet and telephone communications. And they didn't. And it became clear why. For their communication structure to work, they didn't want to rely on the company's structures, on the, you know, communications and signals units that they bought with them. They assumed they were going to hit that country so fast, so hard, that they, they would piggyback on the Ukrainian cellular networks, the Vodafones and, you know, all the, you know, all the rest of these structures there, and that they would use their communications network. So they left every cell tower intact, which was a mistake because that's how the partisans are calling in, you know, their, their fuel strikes that night or the special forces you know, would, would call and, you know, coordinate uh, how they were going to get there. And, of course, we, uh, SBU and Gord could intercept all of the phone communications. It was ridiculous. So, you know, when, when they, you know, you have to understand another thing. Signals units that are in transit or, or in convoy with assault groups, usually in the follow-up combat support group, uh, before the artillery and, and you know, in, in, along with electronic warfare units, they are in march, right? They are in line of march uh, as they are moving on to their objective areas and wherever it is they're going to set up. They can't set up unless they have security. Security can't be set unless the Rose Guardia and some of these units break down and create a smaller task group. And so signals, system signals units were never really set up because by the time that they would get to a task area to set up, they were under attack. And you don't set up under attack unless your communications are critical. Um, but the Russians relied on this fantasy that they could take the entire Ukrainian cellular network whole. And what they did was they allowed Ukraine unlimited counter communications, uh, allowed them to uh, do signals intelligence on them, and then allowed them to block Russian networks leaving them essentially blind. And we find out that they're, we've secured a lot of their radios and a lot of their little, uh, their version of the MBITER, um, uh, the U.S. radio. And they're trash. I've seen Chinese copies that were better. And, um, you know, but if you can't talk, you can't tell people that the Indians are coming to cut your throat that night, can you? Nope. And you know what? Uh, there is a good point to be made. They did try a large cyber attack, and it failed because Ukrainians had had prepared for it, not like in 2014. So they learned from their mistakes the first time around, and they really clobbered them in that uh, initial uh, yeah. go. The only thing we actually saw was the attack on the central bank, and uh, and the central bank shut down two days before that attack, and you couldn't draw any money or anything, and it and it failed. That was the only real one. I think the Russians like to think that they carried out a cyber attack, but if the Ukrainians blocked it, then they're freaking more awesome than I thought. Good stuff. All righty. Hey, Yehuda, I was just about to ask Thomas, because uh, we were talking about seminal moments, and uh, we had already identified Postomel and how they got stuck there. But throughout the year, there were a couple of items which really blew our mind. Thomas, when did it really turn during the year? Was it, I mean, after the strategic defeat, which you and Yehuda both identified early? 
mean when it turned that the war was clearly going to be a yeah. loss for the Russians. Um, the decisive, there's three decisive moments that the West did, and there are some of the decisive moments, in my opinion, that the Ukrainians did. First decisive decision was Zelensky state in Kiev, which meant this city will not fall. Because if he had listened to some assholes in Germany, he would have taken a train to Lviv and then be flown for a government in exile in Berlin, which would never have worked. So the Zelensky, Mr. Lindner, the finance minister. Yes. The Germans were like, yeah, yeah, come to Berlin, make a government in exile. You get some nice embassy shitty crap stuff here, and a little detail, protection detail, and then we can continue dealing with the Russians in gas. And yeah, you know, we have just a quick reminder to everyone. Eastern Europe has always been invaded, uh, subjugated, uh, destroyed by the Germans and the Russians. When these two countries agreed, Eastern Europe suffered. So <clears throat> the Germans that are now in government from the SPD are still dreaming about this kind of dominating Europe with the Russians. So let's hope that one day they will disappear from government. No, Zelensky didn't leave. Pivotal moment. Absolutely. The other um, Ukrainian pivotal moments was they didn't give up Kharkiv. Kharkiv is so close to the Russian border. Basically, the Russians can fire with artillery into the city from Russia. Uh, they didn't give that up. That's the second biggest Ukrainian city. And not just that, the Ukrainians really managed to fuck up Russian units who entered that city, like brutally. There were like Russian special forces units coming in and uh, columns of Russian Rosgardia uh, um, units were basic. I just have a video, so my Twitter feed now, where Ukrainians go through the ammunition that is left of, on the Russian corpses in Kharkiv. So <clears throat> by not giving up those cities, the Ukrainians basically made it clear they're not surrendering anywhere. They're not giving up any piece of their land. And basically that meant then for all the Ukrainians that lived further back, that they can go and sign up to fight, right? Because the moment the Russians enter into a city, the recruitment of Ukrainians to fight for their country ends. But for example, in Zaporozhye, because further south, one brigade slowed down the Russians before Militopol and kept them away from Zaporozhye, there's a video from Zaporozhye where the mayor called on the men that want to fight to come to a square so they can get weapons. And I think like 20,000 guys showed up and the mayor was like, I have just 2,000 Kalashnikovs, I'm sorry, what do I do with all of you guys? And then they began to bring in truckloads of Kalashnikovs and ammunition and just dumped them on the square for the guys to pick up and load their weapons and go to kill Russians. And I know people from that city and they asked, so what is your plan? Well, we're going to kill the Russians and then we're going to burn their bodies and then we take their weapons and then we're going to kill more Russians. So to not give up their cities and to immediately start arming everyone that wanted to fight and inspiring the nation was a pivotal moment for the Ukrainians because at that point, even if the Russians would take, would have taken more of the country, in the rest of the country, all the men would sign up to fight and ten thousands of the women, as it happened. So this was, a, this was the moment where the Ukrainians showed they will fight. 
And the second thing was then happened is that with the Ukrainians showing they will fight countries like Poland and the UK and the US began to flood Ukraine with weapons. Yeah. And <clears throat> the weapons made a difference. So the first week of the war, the Ukrainians fought off the Russians with British delivered N-laws. The Ukrainians expanded thousands of N-laws in that week and killed 10,000 Russians because, I mean, in close quarter combat, an N-law is an absolutely devastating weapon. The Russians just have nothing that can stop it. And it's easy to use. I mean, I can explain to anyone who has a child of five years, I can give him an N-law and in three minutes he's going to blow up your neighbor's house. It's easy. It's basically press this look here through here. Look, look, tuck, tuck, this button, this button, and then the Russian tank blows up. Amazing weapon. And I think Saab wants to produce 30,000 next year because they understand that everyone will want it now. And then the second moment when the war turned for Ukraine's favor was when the artillery came in from the West. Because in the end, artillery, if you don't have air supremacy, for which you need a lot of fighter jets, artillery is your best weapon system. So the US sent 100 M77. Turning point. Ukraine can finally match Russian artillery power. Next pivotal moment, HIMARS arrives. Russia loses all its ammo depots, loses all its command centers, everything near the front. So these were some key moments that turned the battle in Ukraine's favor. When you ask me when I knew that Ukraine would win this, six days after the war, I published a Medium article that said it's Putin's ruin and basically the Russians are losing. If they lose the war, it wasn't yet sure because maybe Ukraine will, they were negotiating at that point, you know, maybe they would find a negotiated solution. But the Russian demands were just insane. And by middle of March, I knew that the Russians have lost this war, it's over. The thing that nobody knows is how long it will take and how many dead Russians it would take until finally in Moscow, someone kills Putin and removes him from office. And until that doesn't happen, the war will continue. But that the Russians have lost this war, politically, economically, militarily, morally, in every way, was clear by the middle of March, before they even retreated from Kiev. Agreed. You know, I, I would even say this, Thomas. First, I just want to address <clears throat> the Ukrainian spirit. I think a lot of people don't understand how important it is that you know a mayor of a town or a city calls out who wants to fight, and twenty thousand people show up. Ukraine and the Ukrainian people live within living memory of um, genocide, of oppression, colonialism. They, they know it. They, they hear it from their parents. They hear it from their grandparents. It's an experience, a lived experience for them. So this was a turning point in Ukrainian history because they had the means, they had the willpower, they had the morale. And they really stepped up. And that can't be overlooked. I, I would say this, Thomas, you know, in hindsight, I, I think a lot of us and, you know, you and me, apparently we called it early, um, when the initial bizarre plan of seven-pronged assault down MSRs, uh, down like uh, main roads that were very, very, in some cases, canalized, very open, um, this really weird... Um, you know, arrogant attack where they weren't even moving tactically, you know, trucks, tanks, um, IFBs were meters apart, just going as if they're going for what we call a road move. They're just moving trucks down the road. Um, uh, when we saw that, and then 
you know, you, you go, you have to go back to the, the Russians on their part, where this failed for the Russians is before they started. So in their planning stages of this invasion, um, their intelligence was all wrong. Everything was wrong. Their military was wrong. They weren't prepared. Uh, before they stepped off is when they lost. Now, we, we noticed it after a couple of weeks, you know, when we noticed, wait a minute, something is not right here. There were people that said strange things, Thomas. They said, oh, the Russians will learn. They'll just regroup and they'll, then they'll put on the real game face. And a lot of us said, no, not, not, you're not going to relearn how to fight war while you're losing it right now. And uh, therein lies, yeah, obviously, the, one, some of the biggest, um, the biggest turning point was when that Russian initial thrust failed and people were left wondering, what is going on? None of this is making sense. The Russians aren't fighting to their doctrine and what doctrine they are doing. They're not fighting that well at all. And uh, from then on, I would say, yes, uh, artillery, high, you know, M777s, HIMARS, um, you know, the whole nine yards, uh, and then the rest is history, as they say. Uh, Axel, David. Yeah, I was just about to ask uh, um, Malcolm and Jakob, um, any specific thing which sticks in your mind, is there any picture which sums up the first year of this war for you? Well, first, let me let me comment on that last question. What were the, what was the, sure. the, the key uh, activities? Because needless to say, that's that's my that's my job in intelligence. Um, you know, and it's it's not just pie in the sky intelligence. Everything we did in the first three months was designed to kill people, right? And uh, you know, um, but it was clear to me that the battle for Kiev, uh, when the battle for Kiev was over, and that was really over by mid-March. You know, you could just tell the, the momentum uh, of where the Russians were. When an, Another famous, famous, uh, I'm going to break my arm, pat myself on the back today. Another famous comment I made on air was when they were talking about the 40-kilometer highway full of Russian soldiers northeast of, northwest of Hostomel. And I said, I was on that road. I've been on that road. I rode that, that road going up to the border. It's, it's not a highway it's a single track road where the ukrainians play chicken at each other um i go they're not on that road attacking they're just dead they just don't know it and that it's 40 kilometers of stopped vehicles because everything at the front is dead and at night people are going to come in between those units and start wiping them out these are service and support groups these aren't assault groups and that eventually turned out to be very true. So once Hostomel, Erpin, and, and, and Bucha were, were, you know, essentially the combat there was finished uh, by the end of March, that was it. Phase one, the Russians saying they're withdrawing all combat forces out of the north and northeast. And that's a decisive route. That's a route. It will be seen in history as the elimination I, I, there were three separate armies there, by the way. When I say army, I mean army as in, you know, on the, the you know, brigade, battalion, regiment, corps, army level chart, right? <laughs> These were armies that were there. And they, you know, one was completely eliminated, the one northeast of Kiev. And the only troops that got out alive were essentially a few Rose Guardia and some of the services and support troops. None of the active assault groups got out alive. Uh, then to the northwest, near Chihiv, uh, northeast near Chihiv, uh, Chihiv. 
um, they got took massive, grievous casualties. And then the army that made its way from Belgorod down through Sumi and along the main MSR there, you know, they got stopped at uh, Bordianka, I believe. Uh, and just every tank just just wiped out entire, you know, battalions uh, destroyed in no time. Um, and so that was the first leg of the war. That's That, of course, is when, again, everyone who was really wired into Ukraine knew that the war is going to continue like this. It was never going to regroup. There will never be a regrouping. So they called me, um, uh, Gur called me to speak at Davos uh, via a, um, a, a video link where they had four soldiers from Ukraine um, speak to the World Economic Summit, and I represented the International Legion. And uh, someone asked me a question. They said, well, when will be the decisive point in this war? What will be the deciding point? And I, this is in June, and I blissfully said, by September, Russia will have no ability to, to carry out a major offensive operation again. They will have exhausted their combat power. You could feel it. Every operation through from after March, you could just see Russia was Russia was on its back heels and staggering and falling. This was not, you know, oh, we knocked Russia down. This is we've knocked Russia's teeth out. The gloves are off. They're bleeding from the face. They're they can't get off the mat. They're staggering back and they're trying to get to the seat to throw, not to throw the towel in, but to just wait for the next bell. And I said, September, September, they won't have the ability to stop anything Ukraine throws at them. And little did I know, fast forward, that I would be part of the Special Forces Task Group to carry out the offensive in Kharkiv. The Kharkiv Kherson one-two punch, I'm sorry, that those two major operations, you can talk about HEMARS, yes, HEMARS was great, for shaping the battlefield of those two offensives. First, by duping the Russians into believing the main thrust was Kherson and, you know, moving everybody out of, you know, Mykolaiv and all these areas and making and massing forces, while they didn't believe that Kharkiv, that the Ukrainians could do anything. And the Ukrainians had moved secretly, you know, you know, like hundreds of armored vehicles up there. And like I said, um, you know, when we hit them on the morning of the 6th, uh, we kicked off at 4.30 in the morning. We had already seen three days of them bringing armor up to punch the Russians in the face. And we blitzed through that province. I mean, we took days' worth of objectives by the end of the first day. Uh, and that famous video of me saying, what's up, what now, bitches? Uh, there's a reason that the artillery was behind me. Uh, we were the forward at point of the battle area, but the Russians had collapsed so fast that within six hours, artillery had to be brought up to the kickoff point to sustain the advance that we were going through. And that, you know, we were shocked that an artillery piece was behind us because it was 20 kilometers away earlier in the day. So those, and then Kyrgyzstan punching again in the south and penetrating through Russian defenses and capturing Kyrgyzstan and pushing the Russians back to the east bank of the Dnieper. That's it. That's the war. Everything from this point forward, unless a nuclear weapon is bought out, Russia will not be able to win this war.
and that they won't bring out. It's not in their interest. But nothing's nothing is concentrated enough for them to use it. If they do it, they're yeah. going to do it out of spite. And they're going to claim the Ukrainians did it. And they're going to 90 percent of that radiation is going to go over Russia. And they're going to try to mobilize a million men off of it. Of course, NATO will have to intervene at that point. Or no fly zone, all the rest. Which is why it's not in their interest ultimately either. <laughs> no. Exactly. No, Thomas. You know, one, Thomas. I, I think one. I'd like to ask Thomas a question. I think uh, a, a, a little bit of a hidden secret, or not a hidden secret, not not discussed as much, is counter battery. Uh, Ukrainians were able to do. At what point would you say that counter battery became really effective for the Ukrainians? Because that definitely uh, uh, took uh, uh, the wind out of Russia's sails. Considering that's something that they really pride themselves on, as you know, the Russians use maneuver elements to support the artillery normal armies use the artillery to support maneuver elements um when do you have anything to add uh, can you speak to that thomas about the counter battery effects the thing is that um the ukrainians did counter battery already at the battle of kiev there's videos of basically ukrainians using drones and spotters hitting russian columns basically the ukrainians said the russians will come down these roads and the Ukrainians basically waited, let the Russian tanks pass, and then started hitting the Russian artillery units that were in marching order coming down these roads. And then the road was blocked, and in the front you had the Russian tanks and BMPs cut off. Then you had in the forest or some near some bridge a bunch of Russian artillery completely in flames, burning the crews dead, the ammunition detonating, and right behind that the supplies that the tanks and BMP needed in the front. So the Ukrainians did pretty much, from the start, try to destroy as much Russian artillery as they could. Um, Counter-battery fire, the Ukrainians had very limited, uh, I think, radars, counter-battery radars initially, and then the United States started to send in a lot of those, which helped. The exact moment when the Ukrainians began to take down Russian artillery and counter-battery fire is hard to tell. Uh, can I give a, a point here? Yeah. Yeah, there were two things that we saw um, that that helped on that factor. First was when the HIMARS came. I mean, the Ukrainians were, were, were shooting day and night, okay? Everything that was in the inventory that was being bopped. Ukrainians had it, they were shooting it, right? Rockets, BF-21s, 152s, 203s. But the problem was, it was those guns gave them parity with the, with the, with the Russians, right? They were the same yeah. weapon systems, less of them shooting within range circles uh, that the Russians could, uh, could, could, could neutralize. And you're right, when the, when the TIPS-36 uh, counter-battery fire radar showed up, that really gave uh, an advantage to the Ukrainians, but they still had a 10 to 1 tubes uh, disparity with the Russian, right? The Russians could put 10, you know, 10 rounds down for every one that the Ukrainians could send, and they had to keep moving, whereas the Russians had a lot of fixed lines, particular, particularly from April to September. The Russians were, their, their batteries didn't really move. They were holding sections of the line. I can speak more to the Kharkiv section um, because we were holding 25 kilometers of line and we had three 
different um, uh, artillery um, uh, battalions that we were dealing with. And they also had brigade artillery and they also had army level artillery firing from Russia, right? My headquarters was hit by a, a, a 2S1 pylon that was fired 37 kilometers from Southern Russia and hit downtown Kharkiv directly. It took them three weeks to walk it up to us, but they got us. Um, when the HEMARS came online, what I found fascinating was not that the HEMARS went into the counter-battery fire game. You know, this is where I could see very clear U.S. intelligence, Ukrainian intelligence fuse into immediate fires. And when we had what we called Ammunition Dump Week 2022, right, where 28 major Russian ammunition dumps all blew up in the span of seven days, I think, um, I realized, wow, U.S. geospatial intelligence is in this game. And what they're doing is they're scrubbing the satellites in real time, and those, you know, they're picking the right spot in every one of those ammo dumps to hit by one HEMARS rocket or two HEMARS rockets could blow that whole dump. And that data, those 10-digit grids, were being sent instantly straight to a HEMARS, the targeting center, which is in Kyiv, uh, because the HEMARS are national assets. They may be assigned to your brigade, but Kyiv land warfare has to approve every target and scrub it against whatever the Americans are giving them. And that grid is going out to these HEMARS, the HEMARS gets tasked, they move to their firing point, and they don't even know, I don't think they even know what they're shooting at. They just hit that grid and things blew up. And that cut artillery down in my sector by 50%, 50% over the matter of a couple of weeks. The other factor that I saw, which of course, once their ammo dumps were gone, these batteries were doing slow fire, select fire, which exposed them to Ukrainian counter battery and exposed them to the HEMARS that weren't actually shooting at high value targets. And those things are just murderous. Then in Kharkiv, we noticed with the offensive, we had zero artillery for three days. We pushed them so hard, Russian artillery either abandoned their positions and the only time we got artillery was artillery coming from Russia. What does that tell you? If you're on the offense, the Russians cannot use artillery. Even though they abandoned their mech, right? Their, their self-propelled guns. So, um, you know, of course it's settled back in now. They've created the Wagner line. Um, artillery is now back in fixed positions, but now it's exposed to the M777s. It's exposed to the archers. It's exposed to these, these guns that can put off three, four, five rounds and not even be there before those rounds hit. All righty. <laughs> Absolutely. And <laughs> I was just wondering, Thomas, talking about artillery, at some point in time, uh, we, we've, I think, deplored this last time when you were on here for one of our, now by now, famous Tynatons. Um, for many, many hours, we discussed the gradual release of Western kit, starting with the M777, then the HIMARS and the likes. You said something about how the battlefield changed when uh, the Ukrainian troops received the M777 and how they managed to continuously increase both their reach as well as their punch power. Can you speak to that? Because what we're seeing now is they're getting the archers, they have the Panzerhaubitze 2000, they have a couple of other things. 
is that, I mean, this artillery warfare, which we see for lack of uh, better, say, close air support and the likes, is unique, isn't it, as a, as a post-World uh, War II conflict? The precision of Western artillery is just so way higher than what the Russians have that the Ukrainians, I mean, I know artillery officers who are also, every time they see a Ukrainian video, it's like how quickly the Ukrainian one shot, two shots, and then they already hit exactly where they want to hit. Because Western artillery, I mean, Russia, you have to imagine this is Soviet stuff. The Russians didn't really build new artillery. They're just using Soviet stuff, which was built in mass and cheaply, and precision wasn't really an issue because, you know, in a Russian brigade, you have 36 artillery systems, and then you have to hit something. You just hit a 200 by 200 yard square and hit it for a day or two. And with thousands of shells and then in the end you might have hit what you intended to hit but you know who cares it's russia is always mass over class and everything that the west sent is a precision weapon and especially the panzer Haubitze 2000 and the archers i mean when the ukrainians then paired this with smart ammunition or bonus or with um uh, excalibur and something like that or vulcano the Ukrainians are destroying with artillery precisely Russian tanks that are parked somewhere and spotted by a drone. That has never happened. That artillery, basically 30 kilometers away, you can land an artillery shell in the top, the top of a tank without problems. So the Ukrainians have artillery that is so more precise than the Russians. And the Russians have so far not managed to blow up a single Ukrainian ammunition depot behind Ukrainian lines because A, they can't find them, and B, the Russians don't have anything similar to an HIMARS. The Russian rockets, it's like if we find an ammunition depot, then we will just flatten the entire town, and some of our shells will hit the ammunition depot. And, you know, the Russians don't have that ammo anymore for their style of war. So this artillery war has turned in Ukraine's favor. They have less shells, yes, but much more precision. And if like, let's say, in the Cold War, if you wanted to hit an enemy tank with some artillery, also NATO would have needed 10, 20, 30 shells. Today you need one with an Excalibur. And the only problem the Ukrainians have, there's never enough artillery, you know? So the, the Europeans and the Americans giving Ukraine, like, you know, four of these and 10 of that. Uh, we should just give the Ukrainian a lot, a lot more artillery and systems. Same with the tanks, you know, like we give Ukraine now 14 Challenger 2 and if they're useful, they will get more. No, never be stingy like that. Throw in the stuff, the more you give. If the British in the first week of the war would have given Ukraine just 200 N-laws, the Ukrainians would have tr had trouble defeating the Russians. But the British in the first week of the war threw in like 2,000, 3,000 end loss. At that point, you can really use them against any Russian target you see, not just against high-value targets. And so we need to give Ukraine more equipment. I mean, yes, if we take out tanks from European units and artillery from European units, they're not really fully ready anymore. But you know who is going to attack Europe right now? Nobody, because the only army that could attack Europe is being destroyed in Ukraine. So do we want that army to be annihilated? If yes, then let's give them weapons that we have that we don't use anyway. So basically, 
I heard Ukrainians are like, you know, we have in total 28 Panzer Haubitze 2000. When they're damaged, we have to send them out to Europe to be fixed. They are fixed, they come back. Okay, nonsense. I would do like this. We give the Ukraine immediately a fresh new Panzer Haubitze 2000 from the German or Italian or whatever stocks. And cycle and, through. Yeah, cycle through. And basically they can use that one. And or you make a land lease and say Ukraine, you know, we have sixty Panzerhaubitz at two thousand. We give you twenty. When the war is over, you give us back what is left of them. Okay, deal? Yes. And then you can give them. Then yes, some troops don't have their equipment right now. Yes, then you start order. Goddamn. European countries are like yes, but ordering weapons is so expensive. European countries spent last year twenty times more on gas subsidies. Then on helping Ukraine with weapons. So, I mean, they need to shut up. If you can spend like the Germans 500 billions on gas subsidies, then you complain about, yeah, but if you buy tanks that we give to Ukraine, new versions, we have to spend 4 billion euros. I'm like, that's not even a percent on the money you spent on a populistic measure to keep gas prices low because you fucked up by buying only Russian gas. I mean, come on, stop complaining, stop producing. In World War II, the United States were asking England, do you need weapons? Yes. How many you need? And the English were just everything. And the Americans weren't saying, we give you one destroyer, and then, you know, we see how it works. The Americans were like, you want 50 destroyers? And I mean, 50 is a whole fleet. And the English were like, yes, so immediately take them. And didn't have the crews to crew them all, but they just took them because they knew, even if they don't have the crews, they can train them, cycle them through, and if they lose a destroyer, it's not a drama because there's 49 waiting for to be used. So mass in military matters is an important thing. So when the Americans said we're giving them Bradleys, it was like a hundred something. That's how you do it. The Swedish were like we're giving them 50 plus CV90. And the Germans, well, 20 martyrs, and then we see how many more we can fix. It's like this person is starving. It needs food. But yes, then you give them food. Not like the Germans. Here's a breadcrumb, and here's a breadcrumb. General Freuding, Thomas, General Freuding, today and in recent days, has stressed uh, how much more the Ukrainian army needs and how he is now in the process of reorganizing internally. Seemingly, his hands are untied, if I may call it this way. His hands being untied, how he's now organizing a more, what he called a stable flow, if I translate this appropriately. I, I'd say that there is some movement, finally, in the German armed forces. Let's put it this way. Um, I know I speak German. I'm a German citizen. I served in the Italian army because as dual citizens, you can serve in whichever army you want and so on. What annoys me about the German is not so much the Bundeswehr. Because the Bundeswehr is the beggar of European armies. It's like, you know, it's like the kind of army you, you hand over a little bit of ammunition because you just take pity on them because they have so little themselves. The thing is that there's the Germans' defense industry is the biggest in Europe and probably the best. And they have all massive spare capacities, which the government doesn't allow them to use. If you're a German defense contractor and you say we can build 200 Leopard 2A7 tanks a year 
for each single one, you need from government the permission to build it. So even if they wanted to build German defense contractors, they can't. So Germany has the ability to not just equip Ukraine with stuff. And they can equip all of Eastern Europe if they wanted to. If the Germans had not been such a douche government, the Polish wouldn't have bought tanks in South Korea because, you know, you could get them in Germany if the government would allow the German industry to produce. But it doesn't. So my beef is not so much with the Bundeswehr, but with the German government. And the last defense minister was a completely incompetent hack who was chosen because she's dumber than Scholz, the chancellor, and has no backbone and has no interest. And he knew she would just sit there and he tells her to do that and that, and she would go and tell someone else in the ministry to do it. And then she would just play a solitaire on her computer or do something else. <laughs> or fly with her son to Zult. On expenses Thomas, of the government, I, which the government plays. Thomas, yeah. I don't want you to hold back anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hold back. Tell me, bro. Is, yeah. Malcolm, ask me. You want me? Because I know I, I, it's like he wants you to tell us how you really feel. Yeah, I learned a lot. I learned more about the Germans in the last three minutes than I knew. No, the thing is, when you look at European defense industry, where's main parts of the Eurofighter being made in Germany and the UK? Okay, where are the best submarines built in Europe? Well, obviously in Germany. Where are most of the European advanced missiles coming from? MDBA, you know, it's a German, Italian, British um, company, but they have a huge con uh, manufacturing basis in Munich. Where are um, the Panzerbits, the best European, the only European self-propelled artillery system coming from? From Germany. Where are the best infantry fighting vehicles coming from? From Germany. And it goes on and on. The United States, uh, Kingdom can't build a tank anymore. They have to go buy turrets in Germany. The Spanish had to buy them in Germany. And it goes on and on. It's France has a defense industry, but France is basically only equipping its own army. And in small numbers, Italy has a defense industry, and it's basically, except for the Navy stuff, it's only focused on equipping the Italian army. They don't even bother to sell, like the Ariete tank was sold nowhere. The Dardo infantry fighting vehicle was sold nowhere because they just focus on Italian and military equipment for the army. And they don't have the capacity. Sweden is the same as Italy, builds excellent stuff and focuses almost only on the Swedish armed forces. But Germany, if I know for I know that without any increase in staffing, the German defense industry can build 600 tanks a year or infantry fighting vehicles a year or Panzerbits 2000 a year. So they can do build two a day. And what are they doing? They're building like 30 a year because the government doesn't sign off on more because Scholz doesn't want. And so when I criticize Germany, it's not the Bundeswehr, because those guys are like, you know, it's like when you go to some McDonald's and see some hungry guy, and you're like, you know, I'm buying him a burger because this guy is starving. Not angry with the Bundeswehr. I mean, if, you, if Germany wanted, they could start to churn out Eurofighter typhoons by the dozens each month. No problem. So 
Poland needs fighters. That's the thing. The capacity is there, Thomas. The yes, but not the will. Is there. Yes. And it's the industry side and the government. I mean, we're talking here that the German Bundeswehr has no more Panzerhaubitze 2000 to give to Ukraine. And I know if last year at this moment, after the famous Zeitwende Rede, someone would have taught the German industry to start producing Panzerhaubitze 2000, there would be like 50, 60 standing on a parking lot now outside Kassel of the factory and be like, where do you want to send them? I mean, 60 Panzerhaubitze, it's a, a complete different image because with that you can smite the Russians around the clock. The German uh, ammunition production, the missile production, everything is there. But you know, it's, it's like in homeopathic doses. It's like, yeah, you get a bread crumb, you, but you can also produce bread, right? Yes, but you know, we don't want to, you do, we don't want the companies to make bread. So here gives a bread crumb. It's, it's like. The, the level of procrastination and insanity vested in that process is mind boggling to us. I know, Thomas, we've been discussing this here quite some time. When you said Kassel, it brought to me the other image. Who and which country did Germany send the new, most modern IFVs, the links to? That's, that's really good because the last year the German army produced Leopard 2A7 tanks. They produced Panzerhaubitze 2000 in an upgraded version. It's even better than all the others. And they made the KF-41 Lynx, which is the best infantry fighting vehicle in the world right now in terms of protection. And exactly. all these ex-weapons went to Hungary. The only <laughs> customer that got something last year from the Germans was Hungary. <laughs> the irony. And I know that the German industry was in March telling the government, you know, we have this many martyrs, we can fix them, we have this many in combat engineering vehicles, we have this many guns, we have 10,000 of guns stored. We have millions of rounds of ammunition, we have these mines, we have these missiles, we have these rocket systems, we have this artillery. And the government was always like, na, 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 and this is the mind-boggling thing that you can do so much good and help so much and get so much respect. And then you decide to do nothing and be hounded and hated by everyone in Europe for it. I mean, okay, stop. You have to stop talking about Germany because I think everybody is bored. <laughs> and What's the and we have and, and now they're doing something good. And today, don't forget, before we go, listen, I want to recognize another speaker who has come up as well in a second as well. Thomas, today in the Staatsakt, President Steinmeier, the whole government, Scholz, everybody was there, and there was a message from President Zelensky thanking them for what they have done, because what they've done has helped. But isn't it astonishing that they could do so much more, disproportionately more than everybody else, and disproportionately faster? And that's the problem I have with them. The, the thing is that there's a house is burning and Roosevelt said in World War II, if my neighbor's house is burning, I don't tell him how much the host costs. I lend him the host and hope he saves his house. And here in Europe, we have a house burning and the Germans are like discussing if, uh, you know, if more weapon production is maybe good for communities and so on. Um, it's kind of like, I mean, what did you expect of a country that doesn't have a general staff? It's the only country that I know of, besides Island, 
Iceland, which doesn't have a general stuff because you know wars are not you know, not relevant. We don't need we don't discuss wars. We don't need a general staff. So it's just a ministry full of assholes that are just sitting there and are like, my career depends on never making an error. So they do nothing. And what they not are doing, they're doing super slow. Well, uh, the saying was always that they didn't want another Oberkommando der Wehrmacht. German generals are such castrated wimps, they wouldn't get anything done anyway. I will introduce her to friends Freuding and von Sandrad. I don't think they fall into this category, but they are, unfortunately, always serving at the pleasure of Mr. Zorn and others. But because just, I, I listened to a German podcast with a German general today who said Ukrainians shouldn't demand cluster munitions because they are outlawed and um, getting illegal ammunition doesn't help Ukraine. And I'm like, dude, read the international treaty about the cluster munitions ukraine hasn't signed up russia hasn't signed up united states hasn't signed up finland hasn't signed up it's because just some business countries have signed up to that doesn't mean that other countries can't use them and nobody's using cluster munitions he said and i'm like i have seen kharkiv under cluster munitions attacks dozens of times and i mean like this is a german bundeswehr general and i'm like where did what would they get information from it's like who is this? Bühler, German oh, general. God. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he, he can't help himself. Uh, I spoke with <laughs> Italian I spoke with Italian generals yesterday and they're like they're like sitting there and really depressed. They can't go out there and kill some Russians too, because they think it's really fun. And then you hear German generals who are like, we shouldn't use cluster munitions because evil. And I'm like thinking of other generals who are like, oh, I'm sitting here in the office in Rome and can't go out kill Russians. <laughs> well, Thomas, let me, and uh, welcome and everyone, uh, Dr. Nick, I know you have your hand up in carry as well, but let me just uh, recognize very briefly, friend of the space, advocate, extraordinaire for Ukraine, Victoria Wojtyska. Uh, thank you, Axel, for such an introduction. It's a pleasure, as always, to be here on the space. Um, I've been driving today from Lviv to Warsaw, and I was listening when the, the coverage was available. Apparently, it's not just a common uh, thing here on uh, Polish highways to have a good coverage, but you had uh, great guests and uh, excellent discussions. So um, I'm happy to join uh, this great uh, effort of yours to uh, discuss the first year of the full-scale invasion of Russia. So uh, I think it will be better if you start asking me questions, or at least give me the directions where you want me to go, or what you want me to discuss. Because I'm a bit tired after, no after hours of driving <laughs> of by myself, so uh, uh, shoot at me. No problem. I think I know where you were on the 24th, and we discussed it here on the space. We can, we can technically park that. But what is your, what is the lasting image, the one image of the last year which, stick, which sticks in your mind? Of the entire year? Yeah. If you close your eyes and think about what is the image of the war of Ukraine against Russia and its invasion? Mm, well, the first image that comes to my mind, uh, it's the image of um, um, Ukrainian tank 
on the road from Western Ukraine to Eastern Ukraine on the road to actual Kyiv with um, our soldiers sitting um, on top of the tank and um, there were a number of them obviously not just one um, it was in the middle of the uh, of my of my trip so to say if you can call it trip uh, from Kiev to Lviv where my kids were uh, whom I brought there long before the full-scale invasion started and I remember I was standing because I took just a break uh, decided to stop and um, get some fresh air I couldn't breathe like that from the first moment of the uh, of the morning till that very moment when I saw those people I had like um, a stone on my heart I, I just couldn't comprehend what was happening I, I actually I understood what was happening but my entire bo body was frozen and when I saw those people I started waving them and they waved me back and at that time I completely collapsed I couldn't stop crying really literally I knew that those people I don't know what their destiny would be and I didn't know whether they would survive till the next morning but um this uh feeling of being so proud of our people uh going to meet uh this horrible enemy of ours uh the the the, the, the humanity that was in their eyes the, the the fact that they waved me back and it was like a, a hello and farewell at the same time so uh it was the point when i really started crying and i couldn't stop for long and then i didn't cry for very very long till i saw some images horrible images from uh butcha from Irpin and other places so that was the first image uh, that i remember because i there were others i, I remember in the morning I saw the seven helicopters just flying over my house as I lived just uh, uh, outside of Kyiv. And it was like, what, 5.30, 5.45 in the morning. And they flew from the um, left bank to the right bank. And obviously, and they were very, flying very low, so just above my house. And I was like thinking, okay, so what's next? Are they going to shoot? Are they not going to shoot? What's going to happen? But I was calm at that time because I, I was like, okay, whatever happens to me, it doesn't matter. My kids are safe. But this when this is the moment when I saw the Ukrainian tanks with our soldiers heading towards the hell, the real hell with... Uh, uh, with these, their eyes full of, um, I don't know. They were ready, they were prepared. They knew that they're to face the worst that they've seen in their life. And again, uh, that was that, that's the first image that comes to my mind. Yeah, I would put it this way. Very good, that's very clear. The destiny of those young men and women uh, joining the fight unclear but they were all keen and they were still waving it's the interesting part and i have this book here and i think thomas knows the book it's from amy fox uh, or amy fox learning to fight the 
it's about the military innovation and the change in the British Army, as it said. It's how the British Army turned citizens into fighters in 1914 and onwards. And there is footage from both sides, literally, in this, con uh, in this war there, where people were marching to their deaths in the hundreds of thousands, Germans, Brits, French, the likes, into this then cajoled conflict. Um, and they were wearing, yeah, flowers, likes, uh, they were smiling. We, we have footage of this even throughout the, the years. And unfortunately, that war sacrificed the flower of Europe, mm -hmm. generations of very, very good people. Yeah. That was a war which was completely unnecessary. You could argue this is as well, but at this point in time, this is completely clear. There is one invading force. It has to be repelled. Since World War II, very rarely anything has been as clear as this. So the sacrifice will happen. It just needs to be honored. Yeah, it needs to be honored. And for that, Axel, I need to add one thing. Um, I don't know whether lots of people paid attention to the fact that President Biden, he came on, the, uh, on uh, uh, February 20th. And this is actually the official day when we've... Uh, according to the law that we adopted back in the parliament, we've recognized that day as the day of the uh, Russian invasion back in 2014. And so when we now talk about one year, one year, and I'm really, when I see that people are saying one year of war of Russia against Ukraine, it's not the right definition. I'm sorry, but we are entering the 10th year of the war is just uh, indeed its most intense part started in uh, on February twenty fourth last year. But in reality, it's important to recognize not just for the sake of remembering the date itself, but remembering all of those people, Ukrainian soldiers, women and men who sacrificed their lives during those years. We also need to remember those Ukrainians, and there were over a million of them, who became internally displaced people uh, after the uh, start of the war back in 2014. We need to remember those who were left without their homes and places to live. They had to flee uh, Donbass area, Luhansk region, the Donetsk region. Uh, we have to remember those people who were killed during uh, the shellings that happened back in 2014 when uh, Russians uh, uh, sent missiles to Mariupol. Uh, so Mariupol was attacked not just in la last year, but uh, years and years before. We need to remember those soldiers and our warriors who were fighting for Donetsk airport and thanks to their sacrifice and we need to also honor it and respect it uh, we didn't have the scenario of, 20, of 2022 unfolding back in 2014 so there are lots of things that we need to remember not just for the sake of the past but also for the sake of the future because when time comes and when we now see that there are discussions about uh, the future of Crimea, for example, uh, about uh, 
thinking about the peace deal that will somehow uh, deal with the, the views of Russian aggressor, uh, all that uh, BS, uh, excuse my French. We need to remember that the war started back in 2014. And we unfortunately lost considerable part of our territory and it was occupied by Russians. And once we recognize that, once we recognize that it's the 10th year of the war, then it's much easier to communicate and to explain to people that the, the, the war, the victory, uh, will be the end of the war, which means bringing back 100% of Ukrainian territory under Ukrainian control. Uh, no other options could be on the table unless this particular objective is achieved. Yeah, so that's my point. All right, Steve. Well, let's let's go to a few sure. questions, and uh, I see that we have a lot of requests, and I think this is good for Thomas, for Malcolm, Dr. Nick, and us as well. Carrie, you had a question for for the panel on uh, this February twenty fourth. Hi, Axel. Hello, everybody. So, it's a point, Axel, actually, that you would appreciate. So, it was just to sort of throw in there in terms of what Thomas was saying about the end laws and everything we're talking about, and remembering as well. Um, when Queen Elizabeth died. So um, thank you, Mr. M. I've followed you back now, and you've got a fantastic feed, so I've been able to sort of hide that for loads of information. And on it, I saw, and Axel in particular, you will appreciate this. So there was a statement today about half an hour ago from King Charles, and as you know, Axel, the royal family never gets involved in politics and the last time Queen Elizabeth uh, spoke obviously at the beginning of World War II and so there's a statement from Prince Charles that says I can only hope the outpouring of solidarity from across the globe may bring not only practical aid but also strength from the knowledge that together we stand united. I just thought it was worth mentioning because it really does clarify the level of absolute commitment that is coming from around the world and it's a minor thing but it's a major thing because the royal family does not get involved in politics and that's a really significant statement that was all i wanted to say really and i'm really appreciating all of the people that are speaking today and the panel that's up at the moment is amazing thank you I'm absolutely certain that uh, Dr. Nick, Victoria, Malcolm, and Thomas are absolutely amazing. David and I are completely aghast, George as well. <laughs> not true, not true. All righty, Dr. Nick, shoot. Okay, so, um, oops, accidentally put my hand back up. So, my question uh, was for um, Malcolm or Thomas. Uh, so, we saw, I, I joined kind of late, so forgive me, Malcolm or Thomas, if uh, this question was addressed earlier, but we saw a few days ago, um, it was spread all over social media, that box of rusted out ammunition, those um, small munitions. <laughs> and we've also been hearing that Russia is running out of munitions. And so I was wondering if um, either or both of you might comment on that as, Ukraine is also being armed simultaneously 
with uh, more and better munitions and tanks and on um, particularly Russia. <laughs> oh, thank you. I hope you don't mind the accent, the German accent. <laughs> um, Russia has a few problems with ammunition. They, they claim that some people still make that Russia has lots of ammunition is not true because A, what was good, the corrupt Russian officers sold off to African countries and warlords all over the world in the last 30 years. What is left in the depots is mostly junk that will kill the crews if they use it. More importantly, the charges, you know, you need to propel the shell. The explosive, the high explosive in the shell is encased in metal, steel that creates the shrapnel. But the charges that propel it, that the shell out of the barrel, they're exposed to the elements. And I have seen so many spoiled Russian charges that even if you lit a fire under them, they won't explode or even burn. And I know from my sources in the military, the Russians have a massive problem producing new charges because charges need to be exactly the same. Because if you have like a 10 charges and they're all different weight and explosive power, your shells will fly all over the place. And so the Russians have more problems producing charges than actually artillery shells because, you know, precision machinery and stuff, all the Russians had, they bought in the West. It's not being serviced anymore, and the Russians just can't build anything themselves that is uh, precision machinery. It's just, it was always mess in the Soviet Union, and lives are worthless. So even if things don't work and artillery crews dies using all the ammo, nobody care. But you know, now you can't because the Russians are running low on artillery systems. And if you have 2000 artillery systems, if a few blow up because of old ammo, you don't care. If you're down to a 800 artillery systems, if they start blowing up because of spoiled ammunition, you're gonna have a problem. So all the sources I hear are like that there, to fire an artillery, you need the fuse, the shell, the charge and the primer. And the Russian primer is like a bullet that's easy to make. The fuses uh, point detonating the Russians, at least it seems they, they kept separate and dry. The shells are rusty because they were kept in wet conditions or outside even in the forests or so on. And the charges are spoiled, what I hear. And they claim that the Russian industry can produce 3 million shells. It's pretty ridiculous because we know there's only one company in Russia who can make artillery shells. And in preparation for the Ukrainian war, their yearly production was about 700,000 shells. That these guys now jumped from 700,000 to 3 million without any new precision machinery and stuff is hard to believe. And then even if you have 3 million shells, if you don't have the charges for 3 million shells, you will fire not a single one. And so Russia is not running out of artillery, and Russia is not running out of uh, artillery tubes. But everything they have is every time of less and less quality. 
I read an interview with a Russian reservist who basically gave a very blunt interview to one of the Russian telegram channels. He said, my unit were reservists and we went sent to Ukraine and in our self-propelled artillery battalion, not a single gun was properly working. They had Acacia self-propelled artillery systems with an autoloader. All the autoloaders were broken. No barrel was in the condition that allowed it to fire precise. They were all worn out or rusty or broken or damaged. And throughout the whole time in Ukraine, they never got as many shells and charges as they needed. So... <clears throat> Yes, Russian artillery is still there and it's still firing, it is still killing Ukrainians, but it's Ukraine blew up an immense amount of Russian artillery ammo, as Malcolm said, during this week when they used the HIMARS for the first time. Then the Russians began to plunder the depots and found out that the good stuff has been sold by corrupt officers to all kinds of African warlords. And they have now rusty stuff. And from what I hear, the Russians have serious problems with uh, charge productions. So, yes, the Russians have artillery, but by far not as bad anymore as last summer. And when Europe and the United States starts to really start production, which some countries have really begun already, like the UK and the Norwegians and the Americans, Australia, Germany not, for example, then. Uh, the Ukrainians will have not as many artillery systems as the Russians have, but much more precise, much better shell quality. That means also that you know you hit your target. And the Ukrainians will not suffer ammunition shortages. Right now, the only thing I hear is that 105 millimeter ammunition is in low supply for Ukraine because 105 millimeter is a very Nobody in Europe is using 105 millimeter anymore, so the whole ammunition has to come from the United States. So Ukraine has problems here with the 105 millimeters, but still more than enough to give the Russians hell. As an artillery guy, I can always only say one thing. The more artillery, the happier an army. Because then you can kill and devastate the enemy from a distance and you don't lose as many troops. So even in these situations, as now, I want Ukraine to get more artillery. An artilleryman asking for more artillery. Why are we not surprised? No, but seriously, it's okay. Malcolm. Sorry about that. I had to drop out the lost audio there. Can you repeat the question? No, the question the question was directed in into into the direction as to what will be needed more ah. now what's the next thing uh, the vote of thomas is clear more precision um artillery uh, changes the balance because the russians fail at that they they cannot produce precision guided uh, ammunition they can't pro uh, they can't produce proper artillery ammunition in the amounts as they need yes. it and he went through this so the question is what else would the ukrainians need and we can give now well he's he's absolutely right about uh the the need for more precision artillery uh we've got the tubes even though we've you know the russians claim that they've destroyed 40m triple sevens but the overwhelming preponderance of 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 killing 
artillery is still the old Russian artillery uh, that's out there, you know, the 152 millimeter guns, you know, up to 203 millimeter. But the 155 millimeter U.S. weapon systems like the M109, the M777, uh, even going down to the 105 millimeter field guns that the British have given them, um, the more precise the artillery round, the the more that you have the ability to dominate your opponent. So like he said, he gave a brilliant treatise on how the Russians shoot, right? 3,000, you know, kill a whole grid with as many rounds as you can, and maybe you'll hit the target that you're looking for. That's the old Soviet massed fire system. But he's absolutely right. Precision rounds, bonus Excalibur. Now, of course, I'm a fan of HIMARS, right? The multiple rocket and the M270 multiple rocket launch system, or as the Germans call it, MARS. Um, you know, these are the surgeon scalpels that they're, they're really sort of like assassin weapon systems. Again, I had to, from the intelligence level of our, our battalion, uh, to get an, a HIMARS fire, you could designate, the brigade would check it, they would cross-reference it to known intelligence and, and um, persistent drone systems that they had, but you couldn't get an authorization to fire unless it came from Keith because they were just so, not that they were rare, it's just that they wanted to make sure that it fit within the rhythm of their battle. Uh, so they didn't want anything killed that was extraneous, that wasn't really going to have a lot of impact. But when the HEMARS fires, you know it's going to hit whatever it hits. So I agree with him. I thought that Biden's visit the other day when he announced the new weapons package of 500 million, that the majority of it was, you know, the uh, small diameter glide bomb system for the HEMARS, which is now going to extend the range of the rounds. The rounds are smarter. The rounds can fly. The rounds can glide themselves to a target to within one meter. It can avoid air defense. This is going to freak the Russians out. It's going to give us the ability to make sure that every command post, uh, you know, out to almost 200 kilometers is just dead. Right. No, no getting away with this now. So um, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. That being said, we have to have the armor. Uh, but, you know, um, we have to have as, as much armor as we can coming into this summer, maybe late summer for that multi axis offensive that could smash the Russian line into manageable, chewable pieces. So you may have two leopard task force by the end of the summer of a, a m1 bradley task force uh you know married up with challengers and then another one by the way none of those t72s and t64s and t62s that have been upgunned and up modernized none of them are coming off the battlefield they'll stay on the battlefield we're just gonna have hundreds more more advanced we western weapon systems even if they're in small batches they'll have the ability to split some of these lines and to give us an offensive capability that could smash the entire Russian line to where the Russian army breaks. And that's what we want. We want a route, just like we did in, in September uh, and then in October down in Kyrgyzstan. We want them to run, uh, you know, not necessarily do a fighting withdrawal. So those are the things that I think, you know, like he said, artillery, precision artillery, masses more HEMARS and glide bombs, and then 
tanks. Okay, before we cycle through uh, many hands which we have up here, Thomas, question, just quick, just uh, quickly, Malcolm is absolutely correct. You want the Russians routed. You want them such a crushing defeat that the regime in Russia can never deny it and lie it away. You can't do a little bit thing. You need to route them. Yeah, and remember what? And yeah, go ahead. And Malcolm is absolutely right in his outlook here. What is needed for a route? Yeah. I was just about to hand it to both of you in that regard because um, the Twardy tanks, which are coming, um, in the package which was announced at the end of January in those 60 tanks from Poland, there is at least 42 Twardies in there. That in itself, that is already uh, good enough for an, uh, a proper Ukrainian battalion. Mm -hmm. And don't forget what I said a little earlier that we learned in the two offensives, Kharkiv and Kherson. If you're on the attack, their artillery, their artillery has to run. So they can't shoot if they're running, right? Absolutely. All right, here. Let's cycle through a few hands, if I may. Wait, when the Russians run and the Russians <laughs> run, they can't refuel. And if they have no fuel in the tanks, the troops abandon their equipment and just run on foot. Because in the end, the Russians don't really want to die for the stupid shit that Putin has sent them into. But they're still more afraid of Putin's goon squads and police than of killing their officers. So, but when the Russians run, they run. And when the Ukrainian offensive comes, the Russian collapse will be brutal, rapid, and unstoppable. They will just all run. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, I would have added one thing, and that is that if now the uh, the daggers or the uh, GLSTBs are in play, and uh, you can have, uh, say, deeper range uh, and deeper reach uh, attacks, you should be taking out that second echelon fuel depot or many of them, uh, if you can, because then not only they can't flee and they can't really run, they have absolutely nothing to rely on in the back. We're back to Ben Hodges and his approach to say that uh, killing the logistics, uh, the supply lines of the Russians is absolutely key, just as is rolling back the air defense. A, a quick thing here, the Brits, in World War II in North Africa made destroying Rommel's fuel their main goal. In almost all the years that in North Africa was, there was fighting. Because in North Africa, when you have no fuel in the desert, I mean, what do you do with your tank? Nothing. And if you start to walk in the desert without water, good luck. So the Brits, all these movies of the SAS, how they started the British Special Forces and long-range reconnaissance, it's always about them going behind German lines, blowing up fuel depots, because that was really, really one of the key things. No fuel. How are you going to run a modern army with no fuel? Good luck. And that's why I was really happy when the Americans uh, unloaded the Bradleys in Hamburg. There were a lot of fuel trucks they unloaded with the Bradleys which was a key thing that I saw was like, yay, Bradley's, Avengers, air defense systems, and a lot of fuel trucks. Really good mix. 
I like it. So let's cycle through the hands. I have on my list James, Ralph, George, Abdullah. James, give it a shoot. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I've been here most of the day today, and it's been super entertaining. I'm hanging out in my sick bed. I've been here, I think, about four hours. Wonderful, wonderful room. I enjoy the intelligent commentary. I particularly enjoy that everyone's nice to each other. And unlike some other spaces, there isn't a lot of crosstalk. I see a lot of solidarity with these corgi emojis. I want one. If someone knows how to do that, please message me. Um, I also appreciate how you've clarified what the Freedom Marathon is. I was worried when that name came up that it was the Freedom Convoy, and I appreciate knowing uh, those things are different. Senior Chief Nance, huge fan of you. Uh, glad to see you here, sir. Um, yeah, love the swagger. The man has a PhD in swagger. He's showing us how to talk shit in the war, and I'm here for it. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Nance, um, Chief Nance, which do you prefer? Senior. Senior senior Nance, um, nice to meet you. My name's James. I'm from Canada. We've been having a discussion, or at least we were the last time I was in there and a couple of days ago, um, about new equipment coming into uh, Ukraine, particularly jets and how jets might provide some kind of air cover or air superiority uh, ability uh, for the Ukrainians, which is, of, of course, something Mr. Zelensky, President Zelensky, has been asking for from the beginning. I watched him speak to the Parliament of Canada, and it was the number one thing he asked for was, was air protection and, and a no-fly zone. The conversation we were having was rather technical, and I'd love to invite you to weigh in. The A-10 platform, would, you know, which there seemed to be a large number of airframes for the A-10 in the United States, kind of just sitting there that are available. There have been a number of news reports that since August, Ukraine has been making its own simulators and training pilots on the platform. Given that Ukraine might be seeing some new air superiority capacity, you know, in the near to midterm, uh, and given your experience having seen the A-10 platform up close in the Gulf War, um, I wonder if you would like to comment on the discussion we are having, whether you would like to see it, whether you think it's a suitable platform, whether you would encourage the United States to, to provide that specifically, and whether you'd like to see it. Yeah, well, very interesting question. Um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, he's senior chief Navy. What does he know about this stuff? Well, you know, I am in the intelligence side, and we did a lot of joint strike uh, planning. I've, I was on two carrier battle groups, and I've carried out actually airstrikes and helped coordinate and carry out uh, airstrikes in, um, you might recall, Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, so, you know, I've seen a lot of these platforms at work. The A-10 is a unique platform. I think the, the big issue here isn't flying the A-10. Uh, if I had my way, yeah, give them all. Everyone that's going to be decommissioned, give them to the Ukrainian Air Force. The problem is, is that you're going to have to have a contractor base that is going to have to be able to service the mainly the main gun, uh, which is one of the biggest problems it has, given an ammunition pipeline. These guys, the Ukrainians, had set up these DCS simulators, right, uh, which is a simulation, online simulation game, where you can actually fly those aircraft, you know, exactly what the characteristics they have. But if you recall in World War II, um, aircraft were getting blown up. Right, left and right. And, you know, our production capacity was so strong uh, that, you know, you could have two, you know, two to one replacements in a week. 
So why couldn't the Ukrainians just jump into an A-10? Principally because the United States has this qualification process that, you know, we want to make sure everything works. We want to make sure there's no airframe stresses. We don't want any flight safety accidents. You know, we don't want to stretch the flight safety manual and all that. And there's, there is an aviation um, uh, group here uh, on Myriad Reports. Uh, I think it's led by um, Colonel Jeff. And, uh, you know, he's a wild weasel guy. The, the Doolittle Airway. Yeah, Doolittle Airway. And, um, you know, that would be the best place to address this. But I say give them whatever. I'm more interested now, now that we've attained uh, ground parity, if not, um, if not the initiative and in some areas ground dominance, um, and we certainly will it by the end of this year, no question. Now it's time to push air, uh, air dominance. Um, the Ukrainian, um, I'm sorry, the Russian air defense has been relatively weak. Um, you know, they're going to be susceptible to a lot of things. I mean, you know, we've put AGM-88 Harms onto MiG-29s without asking anybody. And, uh, you know, they just showed up and started blowing up Russian radars. There's now a ground launch version of this. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, the NSM missile system has proven to be a really worthy air defense system. The Ukrainians are very good about integration. So we haven't seen any, you know, uh, you know, blue and yellow on blue and yellow, you know, accidents where they accidentally shot down anybody. They can tell the difference between a caliber cruise missile and a uh, MiG-29. So that being said, I say we plus up their air force. Um, close air support. I, I was in our offensive. I was impressed that one day we had. Um, we had airstrike support from uh, MI-24s on the first day. And the Ukrainians are, are I think, are better believed that, or that they can hold the air with air defense. Uh, but I would personally like to see the Ukrainian Air Force push their air defense envelope to the Russian border. And instead of, F you know, A-10s, which they got SU-25s, you know, we don't really want to get into the gun range with the Russians, right? We don't have to deliver, maver you know, Mavericks and things like that. If I had anything that I would give to them instead of A-10s, I would give them a ground-based Hellfire launcher platform. The British have given them a truck-mounted brimstone. Why not replace the aircraft with, you know, weapons that will just eat up all their tanks, you know, from ground to ground? Uh, we have more than enough drone capacity. They should be giving them the Gray Eagle drones now. The Ukrainians already have some really good drone capacity. I'm not talking about commercial drones. I mean, you know, tiny drones. I'm talking about big-ass persistent battlefield surveillance, ISR, in real time, 24-7. The Ukrainians have good systems. I've seen them. But I think that blowing up their assets without, you know, dedicating a, you know, you know, if you say we're going to send 10 A-10s and it's going to, eat up $100 million in budgeting. No, I'd rather get $100 million worth of, you know, uh, rockets for the HEMARS and for you to release Hellfire to the Ukrainian Air Force. And better yet, here's what I said on their, their the Doolittle uh, section the other day. Re reintegrate all of the Ukrainian Air Force um, rails for their aircraft to launch AMRAM and nine, AIM-9X Sidewinders. Game changer. 
suddenly the Ukrainians aren't shooting 35 miles at the longest range. They're going to be shooting 60, 70, 100 miles with, with AMRAAM, right? So let's, let's plus up the weapons that they have, the SU-27s and the MiG-29s, and make them lethal, right? That's my guess. Ladies and gentlemen, All right. that, that's the sign of an excellent answer from an expert speaker. Those of you who are here the other day heard me making the case for the A-10, and I just love the A-10. I think it's the coolest airplane in the world, and I was hoping the senior chief would come down on my side, but I, I still love his answer. It was still excellent, and I thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, I, they can still have the A-10. I'm just saying, you know, let's, let's give them AMRAM first. And then give them A-10s. I said give them all the A-10s at the end of this war. I have to inject here something and quickly say that the A-10, as long as there is Russian air defense systems and Russian fighter jets, the A-10 just has a little bit of self-defense sidewinders, not even a radar system to spot a Russian jet. The Ukrainian definitely need air defense missiles like MRAM first, um, at the moment, the A-10 is, you have to think of it like a helicopter, you know? If you send a helicopter over Russian lines right now and flies along the Russian trench and fires its gun at that Russian trench, yes, you kill a lot of Russians, but then the Russian fighter jets with their long-range air-to-air missiles or Russian ground-based air defense with their kind of stinger copies or with their books or whatever they still have are going to shoot you down and you're going to lose your A-10. The Ukrainians need right now, that's what they also want, a solution to fire, <coughs> sorry, to fire air-to-air missiles that are active radar homing because right now the Ukrainians have very old Soviet missiles which require the pilot to keep his airplane's radar pointed towards the target until the missile hits. That means Ukrainian pilot spots a target, fires the missile, has to keep flying and pointing the radar in the general direction of the target. So the missile is a semi-active radar seeking mis- uh, radar and um, semi-active radar homing missiles. What the Ukrainians have. So if the Ukrainian pilot breaks away, the missile loses its target. And next point is that the Ukrainian missiles have much less range than the Russian missiles, and the Ukrainian radars have much less range than Russian radars. Which is why they're exposed. They're completely exposed. Yeah. Basically, a Ukrainian pilot, when he sees a Russian jet, the Russian has already fired his missile, and the Russian missile is already on the way. And the Ukrainian pilot at that point can fire his missile but he will have to keep his plane in the path of the Russian missile to just guide his own missiles to the Russian. So the Ukrainians have momentarily, at the moment, nothing to shoot down Russian jets. So what the, as Malcolm said, MRAM missiles either hook them up to Ukrainian jets, that's the MRAM, AIM-120 um, MRAM, in the versions from C upwards, like C5, C7, have a way over 100 kilometer range. And they are active rad- radar homing missiles and fire and forget so the Ukrainians spot a Russian jet, they fire the missile, the missile is going after the Russian on its own, no big deal for the Ukraine to then just immediately break away and go 
hide and save himself. So before the A-10, the Ukrainians need for their air force a platform to shoot down Russian jets. The best missile is Meteor right now that the British, Germans, Italians have on the Eurofighter. And you put two Eurofighter with eight, each one with eight missiles up there, the Russians cannot fly any plane in a circle around these in a radius of 200 kilometers around these two jets. Yeah, Thomas, you know what I recommend? I recommend we give them Reaper <laughs> with all, with JDAMs and, and harm, um, uh, JDAMs and, um, and uh, Hellfire missiles. There, I mean, you, you, you don't, why even bother going air to air? Let's secure the air from the ground, build up their air defense capability, like you said, with AMRAMs over time. But we need to kill things. And here's another thing. I mean, you want to ruin May Day Parade, somebody needs to create a drone that has enough lift capability and auto automation to get to Moscow or to Engels Air Base or to any other air base in Russia to ruin Russia's uh, war fighting capability and morale. And right now, an A-10 is fun, but I'd rather blow things up uh, with greater capability on the battlefield. Or, you know, let's start or 100 new Bayrock cars. But I would prefer Reaper, right? We'll come to that. Or missiles, attack missiles, or something that. can shoot a harpoon missile against a Russian ship. I mean, we have to sink the Russian Black Sea fleet. They're not venturing anymore into the range of Ukrainian harpoons and Neptune missiles. So we need some drones that can carry one Neptune missile and basically launch it at a Russian ship because we know the Russians are incapable of intercepting yeah. a harpoon or a Neptune That's missile. Last week with Chuck Guys, can we make a, can we please uh, um, put a pin yeah, in this for just a few minutes because just very briefly, has joined us and uh, thank you very much good evening on this momentous day hi everyone how are you doing today good one year after this attack good i mean i'm still feeling better i had not given malcolm his stamps so you know it's been a year uh, <laughs> from the beginning of the war and uh, we already issued another one today putin go f yourself and uh, you know so putin got his stamp and malcolm didn't so you know i feel bad for you know, I I'm felt like we're on the wrong side of the story here. I'm coming. <laughs> I take it that it is a promise, Malcolm, not a threat, right? <laughs> oh, no, that's going to be a glorious day. Igor, you and I and, we, and Tim, we had some great communication in recent days, and uh, I, I saw that you, even during the night when normally the postman sleeps, you've been very active in fending off those who were spreading lies yet on the internet because evidently there was too much of it. But on the other hand, you have so much good news to tell, and you have, and uh, say, preempted a lot of things. I mean, let's look at the Moskva. You were always either slightly ahead of time or right on time with the messaging. Can you uh, talk to this? What was most momentous in the last year? Well, I kind of hope that today's stamp, you know, Putin go F yourself, will become, you know, the predictive as well. So, you know, wait, I'm waiting for the result tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but uh, obviously, I mean, this year uh, has been difficult. I mean, every day um, we make decisions who and where we send our employees. And, 
you know, depending on the, I, usually at night I get reports uh, what was damaged during the day. Uh, but uh, obviously the stamps help people uh, to switch on and off. Uh, they help them uh, with their emotions. Um, you know, when you think people are tired, you want to give them something to look forward to. So uh, we do have a predictive uh, capability. I can tell you a few stamps already printed and waiting for the time. So uh, we're getting ready. And um, obviously, we're also getting ready for our operations because, I mean, we know we're going to operate in the occupied areas and we know what's uh, waiting for us there. We know we have to establish operations basically on the burned land without any buildings, um, without any communication. So it's like uh, the postal military ops. Uh, we're getting ready with container branches, uh, with uh, starlings, with generators and everything. So we're looking forward to uh, coming back to the entire Ukrainian territory. Yeah, I remember the days when uh, essentially Alexander, Alexander Commission uh, told us that essentially when wherever he goes, uh, it's a uh, world uh, food kitchen, uh, uh, Andres is with him, you're with him, and it's like a race to the point uh, of, uh, say, liberation as to who gets there first, who gets the operations quickly um, into gear. And uh, there are many people who are waiting, for example, for their pension checks and the likes. And Ukraforsta is delivering those as well as everything else. No, absolutely, because you cannot live in the vacuum. So uh, many people don't understand it, but the way when uh, the occupation happens, it's basically facing the story where people are living under Russian propaganda. Then uh, you have military action when, uh, you know, uh, cell phones and any communication are switched off. And then there is a vacuum until we come in. So it's information vacuum. Imagine people being under Russian propaganda, then silence, military action, and then nothing. So as soon as we have to get there as soon as possible to fill that void. So they don't feel like they're left, you know, alone. Now, uh, other everyone is uh, basically a friend of Ukraine. No, it's not. I just recently been, uh, I think that's I told you, I recently been in Lugansk region. We delivered first pension there in a few deoccupied villages. And as I was standing, uh, the guy did not see me. So we distributed pension and the guy saying, well, it's good they brought pension. Unfortunately, it's Ukraine. <laughs> so uh, you do face those cases as well. But uh, you know what? Uh, you just have to understand this is the reality. And we need to work one person by person uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, we slowly turn them around. So, um, you know, it's important, as Alexander Commission said, it's important for Ukraine to be back as soon as possible uh, in the different shapes and forms. Can you just briefly highlight what logistical effort Ukraposhta undertakes? Because sometimes people don't get the numbers. They don't understand what mass is being transferred, how many people are doing this. Just run us through briefly the key highlights. I mean, uh, you know, Ukraine is the largest European country, so uh, the distance is the challenge. Um, we are consider. I mean, we take that into account into our operations. So, for example, when Kharkiv region was freed up, we have to drive from Kharkiv to Balakleya or to Izium to deliver everything, and we had to be back before the curfew. And we have to be back because uh, it was dangerous to travel at night uh, to make sure you don't, you know, 
get on the mine and everything. So um, it's a huge country. We have over 5,000 uh, branches, uh, the regular branches, and we have now over 2,000 movable branches. And movable branches help us to get to um, any small villages and in the areas that just been freed up. And uh, so we deliver over 2 million, 2.5 million um, pensions per month. We are also distributing Red Cross uh, payments, which are by now over 100,000. Uh, and um, what else? And obviously, it's millions of parcels that we carry every day. In Ukraine, people are demanding. They want a good level of service, meaning next day delivery, uh, maximum a few days despite the war. So we have to deliver. As Alexander said, he, ha he has to make sure that the trains run on time and you have to deliver. Now, there's a lot of logistical, um, uh, say, components which are being delivered, which also go for the ZSU, I take it. And there's a lot of uh, effort going into this. And this is massive as such. Can you, I mean, this is stuff which we probably can't talk that much about, but can you highlight um, how important strategic infrastructure is and uh, how difficult it is also to protect it? Because many Europeans have now understood that electrical infrastructure, utilities and the likes are at risk, but for the postal infrastructure, from sorting centers to um, distribution areas, it's absolutely key that uh, you are not under fire, right? Uh, you know, uh, we're learning new things every day. So for example, we are now distributing generators, right? So imagine we have 5,000 branches, uh, thanks to the help with, from European Bank, uh, from our uh, donors, uh, we are getting over 1,700 generators. Now think about this, we have to fuel them, make sure we control that they don't work over 50 hours because we have to do the checkups after 50 hours, change the oil, and now think, you know, they're not in the same location, they're distributed across the entire Ukraine. So now we are learning how we maintain our operations when the power is down, and on top of that we're actually getting, hopefully getting, we are on negotiations, uh, Starlinks. So the Starlink as well, uh, you have to make sure that it's not stolen. Um, you can place it so it can receive a signal. And again, it's not one location, two locations, and thousands of locations. So we are, uh, I feel like sometimes we are in a semi-military operation uh, on distribution and maintaining this network. That's it. Uh, Semi-military. Well, is there anything which is not actually in support of military operations, one would ask in that regard. Now, we understand also that packages uh, have arrived to all the TDF units on a regular basis. So when uh, TDF units have done their fundraisers, for example, or have, uh, say, raised additional kit from abroad, actually Ukraposhta delivered it and delivered it on time. And that seems to be working quite well. The feedback we're getting also here amongst our fundraisers and when speaking to people has been exceptional. So Ukrainian society seems to be quite happy with what Ukraposhta is doing. I'm not trying to flatter yeah. you, but this is the feedback we are getting. Uh, thank you very much. It's really cool to hear. To be honest, I'm not happy about it. And uh, we actually jointly with Alexander Commission uh, now for seven months trying to get uh, the postal railway car to Poland because that would help with lines on the border and this way you can get parcels from Warsaw to Kiev in one day. So it's our joint dream that uh, we will finally get through all the bureaucratic stuff 
uh, and uh, once we launch this uh, postal railway car, it will be basically one day delivery to Europe. So imagine something flies 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 from the U.S. to Warsaw. It gets loaded on the train. Uh, it's in Kiev the next day. So you get basically three four days delivery from New York. So that's my goal. Well, under the conditions that no flights otherwise I can go into Ukraine, that is probably the fastest one can get, right? Exactly. So that's uh, what we're planning with Alexander to achieve. I mean, I wish, um, you know, everyone would move uh, across the globe with the speed we're moving. But, um, you know, we have to be considerate the fact that not everyone does it. Okay, I have one question which I have to, which I, we are asking everyone here today, and I have to cycle back to that. I know Malcolm and I have heard it now many times over, but how did you experience the morning last year, February twenty fourth? Where were you? What happened? Um, actually, I even just posted video on my Telegram channel. Uh, we finished investment committee at three a.m., and we've planned for a year for lots of investment. So I went home. I slept for an hour and I obviously woke up at four uh, and uh, I got a call from my directors from uh, Donetsk that the war had started. And so I went back to the uh, head office. I destroyed some of the documents as I was supposed to. And then I made a decision uh, to shut down Ukrposhta for one day because I did not know where the attack is coming from and I wanted to try to protect the people, uh, our employees and uh, workers because we worked 24 hours. So that was actually the only day Ukrposhta had not worked. And after that we've been working ever since. So that was my day. I came back, uh, did the video and um, then, you know, we start planning how we're going to operate during the war. Well, that's how good management uh, and strategic management works. Focus, reset, organize, arrange. Did you have any day off since? Uh, no, uh, actually, uh, if you've seen the interview from uh, Mr. Zelensky to Letterman, um, he asked him what he's going to do uh, on the victory date, and he said he will go to the beach. Uh, that's exactly my dream. Uh, once we win, I want to have a day off on the beach. Okay, well, if on, on the second day you still don't know what to do at the beach, come join us because uh, this whole space migrates to Lazuni Berek um, and on Crimea at that time. I mean, uh, you know, and we'll be opening the branch there even before, so, uh, you know, we're getting ready. Okay, I'll take you for the word. We know where to how to post our stuff there then. <laughs> exactly, so, you know, we'll have, uh, imagine we launched the railway car and you'll get a delivery or from Crimea, you know, they have some good wines, so um, we can ship it from Crimea. I can see this right in front of me. Uh, this is, by the way, the other question that we've been asking. If you close your eyes and think of one image which comes to mind of the last year, which one would it be? Mm, the good one or the bad one? It doesn't matter. What is the first thing which comes to you? I mean, the the first loss of life of our employees, uh, it's the two young employees that's were, that were killed by Kadyrovci. And uh, so that was probably the image I still remember every day because it helps me to focus, uh, to make sure that we stay sharp, uh, that our security procedures the best they could get. And uh, I'm proud to say that we had not had, we did have casualties, 
Uh, unfortunately, our employees died, but uh, we had not had uh, people dying in the line of duty ever since. So that's my lesson for the life. And, um, you know, I still have that image every day when I make decisions. There you go. Well, thank you very much, Igor. Uh, this has been tremendous yet again. Absolutely stunning. Um, stay with us. We have a number of hands up and we have a number of people here on the panel. I'm quite sure that more questions will come up. And in the meantime, we will definitely, I'm absolutely certain, given who we have here on the panel, also talk about logistics and yet again more missiles. But uh, let's cycle through some hands. I have George, I have Shovel Girl, Dogfight and Ralph. George. Okay, so I have a quick uh, question for uh, Thomas, actually. Uh, there there's been video of uh, Ukrainian uh, BMP2 firing of uh, its auto cannon at, at a house, obviously with some Wagnerites in it. And we can see the damage that this one uh, BMP2 with an auto cannon can do. We've seen uh, Ukrainians use BTR4s with a 30 millimeter auto cannon. Can he speak to what's gonna happen uh, when Ukraine starts using the Bradleys. And the Bradleys don't have to necessarily be tied with uh, uh, Leopards, or they could be tied with T the T-72 Tawardies. It's just that, can he speak to the, to the firepower and what, how that changes the battlefield dynamics for the Ukrainians when they have that, when they also have a, the, the two tow missiles on a box next to them? Uh, sure, I can. Um, I didn't see that video, but uh, auto cannons on infantry fighting vehicles are meant to slaughter infantry because there, I mean, no bulletproof vest, no helmet, no brick wall will protect you if an auto cannon starts to unload. So the difference between a Russian BMP with its auto cannon and a uh, Western infantry fighting vehicle with the, like the Bradley, the CV-90, um, is the following. The BMP fires and the barrel will shake. Bullets will go left, right a little bit. They will, you, you will not hit a target. You will hit a radius around the target. And that also reduces your range because, you know, if you shoot too far, you just spray it all around and not really hit your target. With a Bradley and a CV-90, you're going to punch holes into chests of Russians that are like a kilometer away, precisely. And if there's a group of Russians, you just unload and you will have them in such a tight circle, your bullets, that all of them will die. Add to this that the Russian infantry fighting vehicles are ridiculously lowly, thinly protected. Their armor is just against bullets. If a Bradley comes up, a Bradley is much, much better armored. So, once Ukrainians have Bradleys and CV-90s and combine that with tanks, beat PT-9, PT-9140 from Poland or Abrams or Challengers or Leopards. Um, they can drive up the Russian trenches 
with some infantry and tanks and infantry fighting vehicles. And right now, Ukrainian troops have to get in these trenches and walk around and basically clear them out from the Russians, right? In the future, you can drive up and load with the autocannons and with the tank cannons. If the autocannons can't get the Russians in the trenches, then the tanks will. And those that few that are injured and survive the first onslaught, I mean, you can take them prisoner afterwards. Because a Kalashnikov doesn't really go to a bunch of sandbags or the rounds of a Kalashnikov rifle. A 30mm autocannon bullet, it's going to punch through some sandbags. If there's some trench and there's like the Russians are covering behind, the autocannon bullets, the armor-piercing bullets, they can penetrate a bit of the earth of that trench and fire in that trench even through a little bit of the earth on top on the edge, you know. Plus infantry that supports that, a dismounted infantry with machine guns, grenade launchers, hand grenades, 60 millimeter mortars and tanks for the more difficult aspects. You can storm Russian trenches without having to get into the trench and without losing any of your infantry because they will be will be behind the tanks and behind the infantry fighting vehicles in cover while the ones that you have in front the auto cannons and the cannons will take the russians down with far more precision than what russian cannons are on russian vehicles right now i mean in russia it's always coming back to the same principle mass not quality so the russians were like you know our auto cannons suck precisions but we put 10 there and if these 10 fire they will kill everything because you know it's 10 auto cannons and the west was like you know let's make a very very precise auto cannon which will hit a target and have extremely hardened armor piercing bullets to also penetrate something like a russian infantry fighting vehicle and protect it much better than a russian infantry fighting vehicle so we have um in an encounter 10 russian infantry fighting vehicles and one bradley i think the bradley is coming out on top because the russians don't have stuff that can penetrate the bradley and they will spray him all over but the bradley will be like oh with the tau missiles i take out the two furthest russian taus at the russian with the tau missiles he will take out the two of the russian uh, infantry fighting vehicles, and then it's going to start punching holes in the Russian with its autocannon. So <clears throat> the Ukrainians wanting Western equipment means that they care for the lives of their troops. Why do Russian troops ride on top of their infantry fighting vehicles? Because it's safer than sitting inside. If you sit in a Russian infantry fighting vehicle, it will just, you're dead when it's getting hit because the thing will just immediately start burn and incinerate you and nothing will stop enemy bullets or rockets if it hit a russian infantry fighting vehicles you never see american troops riding on top of their bradleys or you never see swedish troops right on top of their cv-90s because it's much much safer inside i mean if you look at a kf-41 links that the german uh, germans are building now for greece and hungary um the Germans could sit in there, the soldiers, for hours, and the Russian BMPs could fire at it for hours, and it wouldn't puncture a hole in it. 
it's a it's a completely different level of armor protection and precision of the gun and yes the russians then started to build bigger guns you know and um, put two the terminator that the russians builds has two outdoor cannons which were mounted so idiotically onto the turret that the blast of the left gun makes the right gun wobble and the blast of the the, the gases that come out when they fire at the same time the uh, blast gases of the right gun will make the left gun wobble and basically the both guns are wobbling up and down left and right and you can hit a house a barn but you you know no bullet no two bullets will hit at the same spot because it's completely idiotically constructed and shoddily constructed and without care so the difference is always coming back that Western stuff is more precise, better protects the troops, has much higher quality armor, and the optics are far better. You know, if you look, um, Chuck Parra and I um, put it out tweet comparing Russian laser designators and American laser designators, and you know you have you have optics in those and the russian thing is is is, is huge it's like a, a tv from the 70s like you know gigantic and it has you have to carry it on your back and it's for two guys and you need a tripod to use it and it's gigantic and it weighs like 80 kilos or whatever and it's it's it basically man the guys that stand next to it are dwarfed by it and then when you look through it you can see that it's all a blurry image and unclear and not sharp and so on and the American version is like you carry it in one hand and you can hold it with two hands precisely like lying on the ground and the optic is crystal clear for things that are even further away than the Russian stuff. So we always come back that whatever the Russians have is junk and it's crap and what they then built and produced thanks to corruption didn't even work. So nothing that the Russians have works and is of quality. <laughs> When the Ukrainians get that new stuff, I mean, it's, you know, Excalibur um, um, artillery shells hit a Russian tank 30 kilometers away precisely. You can just whack it with one shot. The Russians don't have any artillery that in the distance of 30 kilometers will hit a football stadium. They will land in the near the football stadium but they won't get it into the onto the pitch you know, they don't care because they always had mass but the russians now have lost so much equipment that they don't have the mass anymore so they're attacking at Vuladar with six tanks and all the six run into the minefield because the russian battalions have already run out of mine clearing vehicles so so thomas if you do a bulk purchase of excalibur ammunition Yep. the price will drop to what somewhere like 68 70 thousand dollars right yep. so for seventy thousand mm -hmm. dollars you can take out a whole tank battalion of the russians when it's on the move yep each and every case <gasps> take seventy thousand dollars one tank seventy thousand dollars another tank so you end up with a whole battalion what uh, if they have literally 30 tanks there that's it that is cheap value for money Precision is the cheapest way to wreck an enemy because you cut down on all the expenses. Yes, if you make it like a niche capability and you just buy like 200 precision rounds like the Germans did with Vulcano precision guided ammunition, then those 200 are 
extremely expensive. But if you start to buy like 50,000 of those or 60,000 a year, automat automatization comes in and the prices drop incredibly. And at that point, you know, um, battleships in World War II, right, had to carry hundreds of massive shells for naval engagements because they were firing at a distance and hitting an enemy ship was luck. I mean, they, they, I don't know how many shells the British hit at the Bismarck, hundreds, if not thousands, until they finally sunk the Bismarck, the German battleship or battle cruise or whatever it was. Um, today, yes, and harpoon missile or an, a naval strike missile costs a lot of money. But you know, one is enough. The Neptune cost probably $200,000 for each, but two Neptunes sank a Russian cruiser. Cheapest investment ever. Everything you can invest into precision pays back. So, yeah, you made a good point uh, going back to those battleships. Uh, I rode the battleship Missouri for a short time during Desert Storm, and uh, I was one of the first. Uh, guys who used the Pioneer drone to identify Iraqi targets. We could hit within 100 meters, which is a lot of distance, from 26 miles with a 16-inch gun shell using a drone. In World War II, we couldn't have done that, right? So we took old technology and made it so much better by introducing a drone. All righty. So we have a couple more questions. Hands up, uh, Dogfight. You had your hands up a second ago. Uh, you still have a question? Yeah. Sorry, I, I had to cycle out again. Um, love the panel. A lot of my heroes up here. You guys hear from me frequently. But I have a question for Igor. Um, been amazed at the creativity uh, that's come out of your office with the stamps and whatnot. Let me correct that. I'm not amazed. Nothing about Ukrainians amaze me anymore because they're just friggin' amazing people. It keeps going over and over. But I'm curious, as I'm in the United States, I've bought five different sheets of stamps uh, that you folks have released, and they're awesome. And I've given away as gifts and shared with friends, and I've raffled some for the community. And I'm wondering how much of an impact uh, it's been to your bottom line financially people outside of Ukraine wanting to buy and collect stamps. It feels like a, a reinvigoration of doing that, something that maybe had died down a little bit. And thank you, Slava Ukraine. Slava, thank you very much. I mean, it helps in two ways. Uh, one way definitely helps our bottom line. Second way, um, about third of the stamps uh, had charitable component. So for example, the stamp we launched today with Banksy and you know, Putin go F yourself, uh, part of the proceeds will go toward restoring schools and kindergartens uh, that's been damaged by Russians. Uh, before that, we almost almost hit our target with Patron stamp to buy the mining machine for our miners. The miners. So um, we collect obviously donations that uh, we uh, then use to buy drones, uh, to help kids, to help animal shelters. And obviously, it does help our bottom line uh, because we probably, I cannot say we are the only post in the world, but we are one of the few that do not take any subsidies from the government. We are self-funded and not only self-funded, last year we spent over 100 million grivnas or $4 million um, 
on helping our businesses, helping the government uh, to fund the budget. So uh, we are self, and I want our company to be self-sustaining. I don't want to take anything from the budget. I hope and uh, I want the budget to be focused on the war efforts and the restoration. So any Grivna uh, helps our bottom line, helps restoring the branches. Someone asked me, I think it was Bill and Kat, uh, report how many branches we have damaged. And I think it's over 500 uh branches that are damaged so you can calculate how much investment we need uh, to restore them but uh any any grievna helps and as i said uh, this war is a war of emotions and if we can make people spend money uh with good emotions and you know with uh, good mood uh, i think it's the best combination excellent thank you very much all righty we have more hands up Shovel Girl, you've been cycling up and down five times. Yes, I don't know why Twitter pops today. Um, hi, everybody. It's so good to see you all here. Um, first of all, I just want to quickly say I am so glad. It's so refreshing to hear from Thomas um, about wanting to deliver as much as possible right now rather than the drip, 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 because... It's starting to drive me nuts. And hearing Kyle Parker the other day, who's in Vienna, talking about how the Ukrainians, you know, they're they're not able to train up enough troops. Um, they're getting tired, and we need to keep giving them whatever they need to keep up that momentum, especially now while Russia Russia is flailing. Um, so I'm I'm just I'm really happy to hear that, but. I wanted to speak to Igor. Oh my goodness, you sound like a tour de force. Um, I just have to say I really, really admire everything you've been doing. Um, my only <laughs> complaint is you're making way too many good stamps. <laughs> um, I have, I, I, I have a request. I do request that perhaps at the end of the war, if possible, you could compile like a collection of the war stamps for aficionados to collect um just just a request but um i wanted to ask so i've ordered several things from ukraine mostly packages from people in etsy shops and that have you noticed a substantial amount a substantial increase of packages in that um moving out of the country worldwide or is it pretty much the same um, first of all, thank you for kind words. Um, we'll take a pause uh, for a few days uh, before we issue the next stamp, so you can, uh, you know, you can recoup. Uh, but um, you know, it, it, Etsy and uh, Ukrainian sellers—it's something very important. Um, you can imagine uh, how much damage is done to Ukrainian economy. Uh, and before the war on Etsy, we had 1.3 million Ukrainian SKUs. Uh, some of those people, unfortunately, obviously were killed. Some of them moved to other countries, like Poland, for example. Uh, but on the other hand, we now have uh, we have export school that teaches people uh, how to sell on eBay, Amazon, Etsy, because that's how they can maintain their families, especially during the war. And again, I want to thank everyone who is buying on Etsy uh, because it supports many families. Again. I have lots of stories where, um, as I was traveling around the country, and right after shelling, I was in Kharkiv, 
the siren just went off. Uh, they've been under heavy bombardment. And I step in our branch, and this woman comes in, uh, like a minute after the siren is over, and she brings packages. And obviously, she recognizes me, took selfies, and what you're doing. So I am selling uh, glasses, wedding glasses, in the U.S. on Etsy, and I maintain five families. So it's very important. We're doing our best uh to get a uh, good quality delivery because uh, sellers rating depends on how fast we deliver and every day we see an, an increase of export volumes we were able to maintain it and uh, now we're actually getting ready uh to educate more and more people so uh while they lost part of the internal market because you know five to seven million people have left ukraine uh so people who are focused on internal markets we want to trade them uh, not once, we're already training them so that, uh, you know, they don't have that fear uh, of selling externally. Again, Amazon, eBay, Etsy. So um, in terms of the numbers, uh, on export, we've done 92% of pre-war levels uh, for 2022. So almost, almost 100. Well, that's fantastic. Keep up the great work and we're all here with you. And thank you so much for your energy and what you do. I'll thank you very much. Down. Dr. Nick, you had a question as well before. You had your hand up before I crashed out. Oh, no, it's okay. Uh, between Doc Bites and Shovel, it, the, <laughs> ironically, uh, they chewed up uh, both my questions, and that's, that's fine. I, I mean, the only other thing I was kind of curious about, um, I guess, Igor, was I noticed that you are also uh, jumping in on the energy um the energy uh circuit uh to be punful um and i was curious um about that if you might want to comment on that at all sure um we actually just had today uh, a meeting uh, that we need to uh, already look forward uh, you know everyone talking about for example we have this uh safety points for people where they can come in uh connect the device charge their phone and warm up and uh, I was telling my team today that we already should think about the summer when uh, during the hot days, if there is no electricity, people cannot switch on the air conditioners and they will need some cooling points so that we need to buy some uh, air conditioning that we can, can uh, connect to the generators and give people an opportunity to, you know, to cool off. So um, we have to build in what we do, planning to do in Ukroposhta, uh, we need to build infrastructure that's independently sustainable. That means we can operate when there is no power, when there is no connection, uh, and we have to keep it going because we need to deliver medicine, we need to deliver uh, to our military guys uh, and girls, um, we need to deliver people basic uh, you know, needs, food and everything. So that's our goal, uh, to have by, by the fall, uh, hopefully by summer, but I'm realistic in procurement, um, to have this independently sustainable infrastructure because uh, I worked, in my experience, I worked before in energy. So, uh, unfortunately, you cannot restore a stable energy uh, quickly. It will take some time. Uh, even after the, we win, it, it still will take some time, especially if the industry will be coming back, more and more uh, companies will be coming back, uh, that will put more pressure on the energy sector. So uh, that's our goal, uh, to have the independently, uh, that our network can work independently of the central uh, energy system. 
that is not unusual for both railway as well as other large infrastructure operators. In the good or bad old days of Deutsche Post, they had their own substations even, uh, just in order to be sure that they would always be able to keep their postal sorting centers running. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a fuel supply recharging. Uh, you have to know that they obviously cannot work 24 hours a day. You still need to shut them down uh, and service, etc. So uh, I'm learning lots of things about energy and uh, how the generators work. Well, there you go. And, and, uh, and, star and Starlings. So for Starlings, I'm trying to be politically correct. And uh... <laughs> Well, we are equal opportunity offenders here. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Um, everybody gets, uh, gets their fair share of criticism when there is some to be dished out. But at the same time, we've heard that there's now various operators actually coming into this field of secure communications. Have you seen something like that as well? Or is it just currently literally those two offers which everybody knows about? No, uh, I had not seen anything that's reliably working to the same level of service uh, aside of, you know, the Starlinks and the additional opportunities. So uh, I hope and I'm pretty sure there may be some startups that are trying to get into that space. Uh, but uh, again, I can only tell from the experience that we've checked and uh, that's, that's the Starlink. There you go then. We have more questions on the panel, and then we'll go back to the missile topic after. So we have Drivefly, we have Ralph and Gunther. Drivefly, who day? Hello, got a question for Mr. Tyner and Malcolm. Um, it was mentioned, I think, by George that he saw a video of the <clears throat> Soviet era BMPs um, shooting up around Bakhmut and some of the other hot uh, zones. And I saw those two, and I agree with the analysis uh, Mr. Tyner said about them being pretty much they spray, they don't aim. Um, but the question I was going to ask is, do you think that this is indicative of the confidence on the part of the Ukrainian general staff to bring these more to the to the front and to places at risk because they know that the better stuff is now in process in pipeline behind them? Uh, before, you got the feeling that they absolutely were not going to put any armor uh at play because they may need it. I mean, they may really, really need it. And so you could see some of these attacks, the Ukrainians just didn't have what they needed when it came to firepower. But it looks like they're putting more um, in play, not the new stuff. I'm not seeing any of the new stuff, but I'm seeing the old stuff. And I'm one, my, my thought as a, it is actually of a strategic or tactical change. Uh, can you comment on that and I'll listen. Malcolm, you want to take it first or should I? Yeah, let me let me just talk about the employment of these systems, you know, because I've I've seen mech in in four different engage major engagements and in the training fields out in in West. Um, first, I don't think they're just bringing these things up. I think what you're seeing is so, uh, that you're just not seeing video of the systems that you would like to see, and you're finally seeing some. Uh, this answers a question. I always get this. I, I, I've been dying for someone to ask this question. They go, Malcolm, how come we don't have any video of you in combat? Well, unlike some other guys, I'm, when I was in combat, I was concentrating on not getting killed and doing some killing. So same thing with a lot of mechanized infantry crews, right? They don't have GoPros attached to their guns. Uh, so, the, you know, that, that piece of video down there, which was quite impressive, 
the one that got that I was most impressed with throughout the entire war was the BTR four in um, in Mariupol that went block to block back, you know, would back up, advance, shoot a Russian tank in the rear, move forward, shoot a BMP and destroy it, back up, shoot that tank in the rear again. These guys were operating these systems at optimal, optimal tech, tactical expertise. And uh, the Ukrainians are using them where they are necessary. Uh, but like I said, when we did the Kharkiv offensive, then the Kherson offensive, masses of armor came out of nowhere that we didn't even see that weren't even indigenous or you know or assigned to some of these mech brigades until it was ready for them to punch the russians in the face so just just wait you'll see more thomas thank thanks i mean that's that's kind of what i was wondering if it was a selection bias so that's kind of you, you kind of indicate you kind of suggested i just wondered whether you guys actually saw something on the ground that was different than than that and i'll listen i have the opinion that the ukrainians are currently keeping almost all their heavy equipment out of range and well hidden from the russians because human waves attacks us in Bakhmut. You don't need a lot of heavy equipment. You can chop them up with mortars, artillery, and lots of infantry machine guns. Um, in Vuledar, the Russians attacked, and the Ukrainians didn't even have to pull a single tank out from anywhere because the Russians just ran into, drove into minefields. Um, then the Russians cleared those minefields, and the Ukrainians with artillery deployed mines basically re restored the minefields between the Russians having cleared a path and then the Russians coming. So. The Ukrainians right now don't need heavy equipment on the front lines. They bring some of them up to support infantry when infantry attacks. But for the defensive operations, you can tell that the Ukrainians basically uh, let the Russians come run into minefield, into ambushes, and then they whack them. And I have seen Russian BMPs drive up to Ukrainian positions, and the Ukrainians were just laying low. And then from close range, suddenly two anti-tank uh, missiles came out and the BMPs blew up with the Russians on top. So you don't need to have a BMP and lose maybe a valuable vehicle right now. I think the moment, as Nance Malcolm said, at the moment the Ukrainians go on the offensive, there will be swarms of tanks and vehicles and infantry fighting vehicles and armored personnel carriers and whatnot and strikers and MRAPs and immense amount because the Ukrainian keeps so much hidden. By my count, the Ukrainians have right now 107 combat brigades. And if you calculate for each around 100 to 150 armored vehicles, you get numbers that say you're in 10,000 and you don't see that. Um, it makes sense that you only pull them out when you need them. And in Bakhmut, the Ukrainians tried to dislodge some Russians. Immediately, a BMP came out to support. But when you look at how the Ukrainians defend, basically they have a building and let the Russians run towards that building for days and just shoot them up. And in the night, the Ukrainians move out and place a lot of new fresh mines and traps, and then they move back in and let the Russians come again. So as long as you don't need your heavy vehicles, you keep them in reserve. That said, if you know you're getting more stuff and better stuff in the future, 
You know also that if there is a need for armored vehicles, you can use them. Because if you even lose some, replacements are on the way. We are coming back to mass. If I have 10,000 javelins, I know my troops can fire it at every kind of Russian armored vehicle that comes up. If I have 200 javelins, I have to keep them in store for the most powerful Russian tanks only and tell my troops to deal with everything else, whatever they can find. Mass, mass is what the Ukrainian army needs. We, so America is sending each week new javelins, anti-tank systems, 84s, uh, Germans are sending Panzerfaust. The last big resource of anti-tank missiles that the West has is the Israeli spike, which is in European depots, is 25,000 pieces. But Israel hasn't given the green light yet. So that is something that the Ukrainians need, because if they get another 10,000 spike to the javelins, to the Panzerfaust, to the Swedish-made Karl Gustav, the recoilless rifle, forgot the name, and all that, if you get another 10,000 spike or something, at that point, the Ukrainian platoons can basically, every time they see a Russian vehicle, blow it up immediately. Is it sensible to blow up a Russian, let's say, ammunition truck or a truck with Russian troops with a spike missile that costs $60,000, $80,000? Yes, it's always useful because every time you kill enemy troops or destroy enemy equipment, you also demoralize the Russians. And a demoralized army, when going on the attack, not going to be enthusiastic, not going to charge ahead with, yay, this is cool. And when coming under stress from a Ukrainian offensive, those guys are going to break and run. So again, mass, mass in artillery, in anti-tank missiles. In If you if, if some nation has a 1,000 Browning machine guns they don't use, just give it to Ukraine. The Ukrainians might not need them right now, but having this amount of machine guns gives the Ukrainian the depth to say, you know what, we can just put another 100 into Bakhmut just for the fun of it, because obviously then the Russians in the crossfire of those will be completely devastating to them. Always go for mass and this European drip, drip and little bit and so on. The Pentagon decided, I read the Pentagon uh, procurement papers, decided to replace American M119 artillery howitzers, 105 millimeters, in a lot of units with HIMARS. So there's an immense amount of um, M119s gonna get free in the future, National Guard units especially. Just back them up and send them to Ukraine immediately because, I mean, if the National Guard guys cannot train for a few months on um, M119, no one cares, the National Guard, sorry. Um, they were getting high mars. They will anyway need months and months to train on high mars because America, you know, take it slow only on weekends, every month sometimes. So you can send it to Ukraine now. And if Ukraine gets them now, so much better. And mass, mass. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a little bit of a cold and my voice is a little bit sore. And uh, whatever happens, if you have some representative politician you meet, tell them that mass is a quality of its own. That is the only Stalin quote which we can accept. And that the Vatican has no divisions. <laughs> the Pope said to stop the war. And Stalin, does the Pope have any divisions? Nope, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
So I don't. I got to tell you guys something because uh, you're you're absolutely right about that. If you guys have M two fifty cals, machine guns, send them our way. We just got a Mark nineteen grenade launcher. We're like happy. You know the Russians hate those things. But you know my my battalion right now, and I've been working with them. Uh, I got them eight Altel drones, and you know we had a bunch of drones. Now we have a bomber squadron, and we are all about dropping RGD five hand grenades into tanks. I mean, if you want to talk about asymmetric, the Russians do not have drone dominance out there right now. I think we have we're starting to lean towards drone superiority, but it's a an asymmetric way to neutralize whatever the enemy has out there, and they are really demoralizing when a hand grenade or a mortar shell drops into your position and uh you know the drones just come in and out and blow up your tanks and your fuel trucks and everything and all you can do is sit there on what we call the wagner line and take it and it's not even artillery it's just little nuisance hand grenades falling right into your pit cheapest way to get rid of russian tanks Sorry, can I ask a question? Yeah, Ralph, um, I was about to go to you. Yes, please. I was about to say that, uh, uh, that uh, our a friend and colleague from Azerbaijan has his hand up. So please, Ralph, go on. Uh, thank you very much. Today, uh, anniversary, one year anniversary, Russian large-scale war against Ukraine. But to remind you, war actually started nine years ago time russia occupied lugansk region and uh, crimea and uh, uh, donetsk um i want to ask uh, mr uh, uh, eager uh, uh my question is what do you feel that uh, i mean living this um, war reality uh because uh, i many time the debate that uh, anti-Ukraine mind people and actually didn't have a imagine what the reality is Ukraine living. Uh, second question is, Mr. Igor, uh, what do you think that Azerbaijan's rule uh, in, uh, in the Ukraine? Because inside Ukraine, a lot of Azerbaijani community, I mean, uh, Azerbaijani origin Ukraine people uh, serving uh, in Ukrainian army and I working in uh, voluntarily in NGO and act participation in civil society. And uh, uh, what do you think about that uh, disinformation uh, policy uh, against Ukraine? I mean, fake news, a lot of, I see this Ukrainian headers. And uh, my last question is, uh, uh, you know, uh, for Mr. Malcolm, for Mr. Chuck, uh, uh, about Ralph, how Ralph, Ralph, just last. No, Ralph, uh, let's let's do the uh, just last last please. No, please, Ralph. Yes, just my, last. Follow my lead, please. Let's do okay. the question for Igor first because everybody okay. has time, and then we'll come back to your question for Malcolm. Okay, Igor, please. Yes. Okay. Uh, let me start. First of all, I want to thank people uh, of Azerbaijan for supporting Ukraine. Uh, as you know, um, former Soviet republics are divided into who supports Ukraine, uh, who supports Russia, uh, and uh, who is still deciding who they want to be with. 
so I think Azerbaijan is firmly uh, with Ukraine, and we want to thank uh, everyone uh, who supports us. It's important. It's really important. And I think Azerbaijan jointly with Turkey hopefully will help us uh, get to uh, winning faster. In terms of your first question, uh, the mindset and the feelings, again, uh, it's not black and white, and it's not the same for everyone. Um, psychologically, there are people who are afraid, and uh, you know, some people left the country. Again, we should not um, criticize them. It is what it is. Um, there are some people who are not afraid, and uh, so I can judge by myself. So if you start going to war zones, you won't stop because you want to come back to those people. You want to come back to our soldiers. You want to come back to people uh, who are waiting for you and understand how important your visit is. Uh, before, um, um, before we mentioned Alexander Commission, so the reality was that out of the managers of the top companies, uh, Alexander and myself probably were the only ones going to the front lines. And let's say, again, not critiquing anyone, but uh, so, some managers did not. And uh, they have a totally different view. Again, I don't want to name names and trying to be politically correct. But um, if you manage it on the ground, if you understand on the ground, you'll make an informed decision. If you try to manage it from the distance, even in Ukraine, just from the distance, uh, you will always err on the side, psychologically, on the side of the risk. You will think the situation is worse than it is, and um, you will really piss off people on the ground because uh, you will make wrong decisions. So, And it also reflects in the feelings. Uh, so uh, not everyone is the same. Not every region is the same. I think as a country, we'll need to heal. Uh, we'll need to go through this, the, the, you know, the process after we win of uh, uh, getting together again. It won't be easy. People who are staying in Ukraine have some views and have some feelings. People who left Ukraine also have some feelings. Uh, they also have some views. So it's more complicated than to put simply. But I think everyone, uh, no matter what where they are. Uh, they they want Ukraine to win, and I personally think uh, the goal of Ukraine is to make sure and to do the best we can that everyone who left the country is coming back, because uh, Putin thinks uh, because he is really guy in the, back in the USSR he is fighting for the territory, the modern countries are fighting for the people's capital, so every Ukrainian that would come back is an asset to the country. So that's uh, why we need to be mindful of people's feelings and uh, take it into consideration as we uh, as we proceed toward the peace and toward our victory. Very well said, Igor. Uh, we would call this, or Malcolm and I would call this a big tent, given the fact that he's a lefty and I'm a bit more conservative, but we <laughs> all are under the same tent. Alrighty. Okay, guys, I have time for one more question. I have to go do an interview okay. on satellite radio. No props. We have George and we have Gunther. Who has a question for Malcolm? Mine is a general question. So uh, my, my general question is, uh, 
how would you, and this is an open question, is how would we rate where the Ukrainian military was a year ago to where it is now to where we uh, conservatively um, hope it will be in, in nine months? Uh, let me take a shot at that. Uh, I was around in those first days. They had a core of, Padashi, Padashi, of veterans, combat veterans. Padashi. Yeah. Sorry, I had to defer yeah. another call. I apologize. Okay. Um, I said they had a good force when this started. Uh, you know, the Ukrainian army has been in the field since day one. Yes, people rotate out. Yes, people take leave. But they were a good force uh, back at the beginning of this war. Now they are the best force in Europe, period. Uh, in terms of combat experience, skill, capability, they've taken very little, a fraction of what a NATO battalion or brigade would have. And they've been operating uh, in, in near real-time, constant contact, and devastating forces 10 times their size with the fraction of the weapon systems that we had. If they had all, if each Ukrainian brigade had the communications, the surveillance, the intelligence, all of that that a U.S. brigade or a NATO brigade had, this war would have already been over. It would have been over. So, uh, you know, in the next year, I mean, you're going to be seeing Ukrainian training teams all over NATO countries because there's a lot to learn here. All right, here. Malcolm, do you have one more for George? George, I thought you had your hand up as well. Real quick. George? I'm fat fingering in camera, Axel. You know, as people from Philadelphia, we, yeah, we can't get the cheesesteak cheese grease off our fingers, Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> so what's up? <laughs> yeah, so uh, really quick, um, you know, uh, we know the weather is going to turn there and it's going to get a little soggy. You know, get your wet weather gear out and uh, mm. your galoshes. So um, we're, we're going to have, a, a, I guess, a, what would we call a lull in the ground fighting? Doesn't mean that we're not going to keep seeing videos uh, uh, of uh, Malcolm's uh, drone bombers taking things out. But um, has has this winter been a little drier than than last year? Do you have any sense of that? Well, not in my sector. Um, it's it's constantly snow covered. We're in a lot of slush. Uh, as a matter of fact, here on Maria Report, we did a fundraiser to get ATVs and uh, medevac trucks, which we successfully raised money for, <clears throat> and we're using them. I don't think it's drier. Last time, this time last year was warm. It was really a mild winter, <clears throat> and there was very little snow uh, where I was up in, in the north in Kiev and, and some parts of the east. I felt it was muddier last year. Uh, I'm hearing a lot more ice and snow right now, but I don't think it matters. I think, uh, you know, when the time comes um, and the ground, even if it gets wet, uh, if we find a crack in their, in their lines, the Russian lines, the Ukrainians are going to exploit it. Absolutely. All right, thank you. Hey, and with that, I have to go, guys. I'll be back tomorrow morning. Uh, so, Igor, I'll see you in Kiev. Looking forward. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you, Malcolm. All the best.
All right, and we continue on our Freedom Marathon. The, um, by the way, a term which we borrowed from the very successful Thomas Tyner, Tynatons, which we've had here. So we will continue with that. Ralph, you had a question uh, which you wanted to ask further. I don't know whether that pertains to Thomas and Chuck and uh, us or. Uh, I want to ask that, uh, I think that Mr. Chuck uh, is a military expert. I, a lot of times, uh, uh, participation with Mr. Chuck in the room. I think that Mr. Thomas also a military expert. You're uh, only journalist. No, uh, very much uh, so. My question he, he, is, he is definitely, he is definitely a, a very, very capable former artilleryman. But please go on with your question. Uh, I, uh, I have a, a question is uh, two quick uh, question. Uh, how uh, I listen carefully that what's the world leaders and expert speech in Munich Security Conference and uh, in Munich Security Conference people leaders say that we are uh, defend Ukraine until win. Uh, okay, but uh, how's the uh, Western world enough resource for uh, helping uh, Ukraine? That's the first question. Second question of militarily, uh, how uh, there's no doubt, no discussion that Ukraine army, one of the capable, strongest army in the world and good fighters and brave. Uh, uh, but how, uh, I mean, uh, solve in logistic and other uh, issue of Ukraine quickly as possible. I mean, liberated of uh, Crimea and uh, uh, Mariupol and other places. That's my question. Thank you very much. Glory to Ukraine. Hello. Uh, good. Have a good evening, everyone. Nice evening. Chuck, go ahead. We haven't heard from you yet, so I'm looking forward because uh, your baritone I, is always I'm missed. Had that, that, <laughs> Thomas, then this place that uh, hours, uh, maybe. Sorry, Chuck, continue, Tom, please. This... Uh, hi, guys. Hi, I, Thomas, I thought this was a question right over your plate, so please go first, and I will swoop in from behind, as I always do, riding on your coattails. Okay. Um, <coughs> yeah, my sore throat is acting up, so sorry, guys. Um, no. The Ukrainians will take back territory, and it is no problem what the ground conditions are and whatever. And um, guys, give me the give me the question again. I lost my train of thought here in the middle, but when I was coughing, sorry, shit, sorry. Oh my god, no problem. I'm getting red right now. I think the thrust of the question was, uh, how are these arms going to be provided by the West, and how are they going to get into the fight, uh, and how is that going to happen in a timely fashion, or a more timely fashion? Okay, okay, I remember. Thank you, Chuck. I was coughing, and I was like, okay, don't cough, and then I was like, what was the question? Okay. Uh, the problem with the Western weapons is that they're coming in piecemeal. Not the Americans. The Americans are training around five, six battalions of Ukrainian troops right now at Grafenwehr in Germany. So they're training an entire brigade of troops in one block. And the British are training an entire brigade of infantry in one block. The other companies and equipment stuff from 
European nations that are coming in, you know, are going to come in with a bit of piecemeal. But, you know, the Ukrainians already let it known that they're pretty happy to take a little breather here and not immediately throw these units at the front because the Russians are just right now killing themselves in suicidal attacks. So that's very good because basically it's like, you know, the 155th Russian Marine Brigade is a very good brigade. It might pose a problem because it has good equipment and experienced troops when Ukraine goes the attack. No, because the Russians attacked first and the 155th Marine Brigade killed itself in Ukrainian minefields by just driving into that. And it's kind of like, you know, you have to love the Russians. It's like the first one blows up on a mine, the first tank, and the second tank is like, hmm, I will be more lucky if I go to the left of him and he blows up. And the third Russian tank is like, if I go on the right, I'll be very lucky and will not hit a mine. And he hits a mine. So Russian um, combat units that Putin spent the last half year basically getting back into shape, which could pose a problem when Ukraine goes on the offensive, are right now destroying themselves on their own. And Ukraine is like staying there and looking at drone footage of that and is clapping the whole time for that excellent performance of suiciding entire brigades. So <clears throat> the Western equipment will come in piecemeal. The Ukrainians will take their time to shape them into um, companies and battalions and brigades that are capable to carry an advance, an offensive. And then not in one week, not in a month, so at some point the Russians and everybody will wake up and hear the Ukrainians are 20 kilometers behind Russian lines. And left and right, tons of dead Russians who do basically, you know, made a encounter with a Western weapon system and saw it and died. Because to see a Bradley as an enemy means you saw the Bradley and that was the last you saw. You see an Abrams, it's the last thing you will see if you're an enemy, you know, coming up against those. Unless you raise your arms, you have a split second to raise your hands because, I mean, if not, so that equipment will come in piecemeal. The Ukrainians told the West they need everything for a spring offensive, and it will be there for a spring offensive. Spring in Ukraine, um, April, sometime in April, the Russians will have a little nasty surprise because um, it's end of February now. The Leopards will arrive in mass at the end of March. The Bradleys are being trained on. They will arrive in mass in sometimes in March. Other equipment, like CV-90, and all the fixed Panzer Hobbits that are being repaired and such stuff will be at the ready by the end of March. Then Ukraine will want a few weeks, you know, to have the units that just arrived interact, get to know each other. You know, it's it's. The battalion commander needs to know his and company commanders, and the company commanders need to know who is the logistics guys and who are the artillery contacts and so on. So um, I would say that Putin will have a very, very unhappy May 9th, which is Victory Day in Russia this year. And and I think, Thomas, you, you hit it right on the head. I, I think that what Ukraine is going to do now is sit back and and be ready but if the russians want to fight and putin is telling those russians they do want to fight 
Ukraine is smart enough to say right now, well, you bring the fight to us. You, your diesel fuel, you organize. Thomas Adler was an eye-opener for everyone. I think that the 155th Russian Naval Infantry opening the ball for Russian winter offensive. And we all saw what happened. They lost more than 30 main battle tanks, upwards of 120 infantry fighting vehicles. And very interestingly, uh, reported yesterday, uh, there was a mini in 155th. There are people in that unit that said, we're not fighting anymore. And that was a Marine outfit, right? Uh, Marine forces around the world famed for their discipline, uh, their fighting ability, uh, etc. I think that Putin uh, is, is facing a problem. Uh, you know, I don't know where his offensive operations are, gonna, are going to work. Uh, and again, th there's one thing that Russia cannot do in this war, and that so far has been surprise the Ukrainians at the point of attack, because Ukrainian intelligence is better. And, uh, and also, as Thomas mentioned earlier, Russian morale is uh, dissipating. It's, it's evaporating. And these guys, it doesn't matter if you have superior numbers at the point of attack. It doesn't matter if you have better equipment. It doesn't matter if you have a better plan. It doesn't matter if you have air defense superiority air superiority, and every other factor in battle. If your guys, your individual guys, they're not willing to fight, it's not going to work, Thomas, is it? Absolutely not. If your guys feel that they are being wasted and they don't want to fight, an entire army will surrender or run. It's just a question what they prefer to do. We have seen soldiers in the ranks striking their commanding officers. We have, we have all seen, the, I, I'm afraid it's literally hundreds of videos with an appointed spokesman standing in front of his Russian unit reading a list of demands, complaints, uh, issues, failures, whatever they're doing. And, and again, you know, that seems like a nice democratic thing to do, but in the armed forces, it, that is mutinous assembly, right? That is conspiracy to mutiny. That is insubordination. And all of those things I just said in combat, those are capital offenses. So, uh, you know, good luck, Mr. Putin, with your new model army. It's going to be fun when the Russian army, you know, um, the Russian army is undisciplined it has always been undisciplined and that's why they have so many military police units or a cadre of troops to keep a discipline up and you know everybody saw dr shivago right the movie basically the russian soldiers leave the front in world war one to go home and on the way back they shoot the officers of units that try to stop them um, it was much, much worse because the Russian soldiers basically not just uh, killed their officers in World War I in the trenches because they hated them. No, they then grilled them and ate them because the Russian troops were so famished. So Russia has a history of the troops at some point um, putting their guns against their officers. And that's why 
it's so important that Ukraine keeps demoralizing, demoralizing the Russian troops with drones, with attacks, with artillery, by undercutting their supplies, because you want the Russian army to be undisciplined, grumpy, hungry, starving, freezing, out of ammo, out of fuel when you attack. Because when you do that, it all gets much easier to overrun them. So long story short, um, what the Ukrainians are doing right now, letting the Russians attack and waste their limited supplies in stupid charges while losing left and right their comrades is going to demoralize the Russians. And that's exactly what you want. And while the Russians get demoralized and die in masses and waste their ammo and fuel, Ukraine is like, what do we get next week? Oh, Portugal said we're getting 37 Leopard 2A6 during this year as replacements for the ones that we would basically you get it in batches but you know ah very cool very nice tank or what do we get else oh from america ground launch small diameter bombs nice so it's christmas for the ukrainian army every day and the russian army on the other hand uh, gets only coal and the coal is getting scarcer and scarcer every day <laughs> i i agree and Thomas, when I, I look at Vuladar, and there was let, let's call it the the opening shot of Russia's winter offensive. Uh, amazingly to me, that that attack seemed to be carried out in broad daylight. I, from the videos I've watched of the fighting, I didn't see any preparatory artillery fire by the Russian side. Uh, we, you just talked about what happened when you put a Russian armored column in a minefield. Uh, they did everything wrong that I could think of, and about five things I couldn't even think of. Uh, when, when, you've, when you've got an armed force that is demonstrating that it cannot execute an offensive operation that presumably had a plan, a briefing, a briefing cycle, quite possibly rehearsals, uh, briefings right down to the vehicle crew, communications plans, everything, fill in the blank. How are they? those same Russian troops, how are they going to re react on a dark and stormy night when all of a sudden in front of them, as you've said, here come three M1 Abrams, uh, two or three Leopards, and uh, 15 or 20 Bradleys. Uh, rolling over them, but even worse. When they get on the radio, they hear that there's also Ukrainian forces in their rear. I think they're just going to go to pieces. I don't see them putting on their big boy underwear and uh, rallying available forces and leading localized counterattacks. I, I don't think that they can do it. I mean, just to give you an idea, the attacks at Ulidar were groups of 30 to 60 Russians, like a platoon. Uh, if you go on the offensive, you know, a real offensive is 10,000 guys because you have to pressure the enemy, break through, and then exploit. If you send 60 men, it's, it's yeah, it's maybe a reconnaissance in force, but, you know, then you don't send uh, 60 guys with six tanks or infantry fighting vehicles for war and lose all of them because it's complete waste. And if you attack, artillery should fire on the enemy to keep it down. And you send in, uh, air 
defense along to shoot down drones or enemy air attacks and to send engineering vehicles up, up the front ahead to clean mines even if you cleaned them yesterday you sent still an engineering vehicle out front to with a mine plow to move mines aside and you have recon elements if you do it properly and you will have a recovery tank to recover damage to vehicles immediately when they run onto a mine and not lose them and 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 what the russians said was like okay here are 60 losers and you have here six vehicles um, none of them are really usable for what you have to do now and good luck you're the offensive make putin proud <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, I'm, I don't know what to tell you, but I mean, this is kind of like, this is, you know, when if you are, say you're the second best army in the world and you suck at basic stuff, this is like a cook and he's ordered to make whipped cream and he's like, no clue. And then he starts to take a fork and starts to whip the cream with the fork. And you're like looking at him and he's like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm the second best cook in the world. And you're like, so for military people, seeing what the Russians do is amazing because there's never been such an incompetent army, which doesn't mean that the Ukrainians aren't excellent. I mean, the Russians are incompetent, but they have a mess, you know? They threw mess and mess and mess at the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians smartly let these Russians kill themselves. It's kind of like assisted suicide. You know, yes, Russians, please attack. Please, please, no, 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 no. We're not getting out of our trenches. We let you attack. Do us the favor, attack. Please, come on, come on. We are, we are staying in the trenches. We're not even shooting at you. We will be really nice. You just have to attack. And the Russians attack, and Ukraine's just in laugh as the Russians drive around in minefields. The funny part is, or the tragic part, Thomas, is that when you look at these videos, when you close your eyes, the only thing you would want to hear is Ali Boumaye, Ali Boumaye. Because essentially they're waiting, they're on the ropes, they're waiting, and then there comes the knockout blow. Yeah, the Ukrainians are doing a really smart thing right now. And so people are like, oh, Bakhmut is about to fall and Solidar is a tragedy. No, 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 no. The Ukrainians are basically um, reducing the enemy's potential to resist them when they strike. The Ukrainians have. I have only one moment in all that year thought that the Ukrainians made a military error, operational error. The Ukrainians decided to let the Russians grab the last unit out of Kherson and bring them over the pontoons and over the Kharkova dam to safety. That were like maybe five to 10,000 Russians that the Ukrainians basically decided to let the Russians escape with. I wouldn't have done that. I would have tried to kill all those Russians or take them prisoners just for the show of it to tell Putin, remember your airborne assault division that is elite and you call guards and it's really excellent? Yes, here you have a mile of dead Russian bodies and vehicles that we fucked up. So that's the only time that I talked that the Ukrainians made an error, but all the other things the Ukrainians fought very smart. Very smart. Brave and smart. It's a winning combination. It is. And, you know, I, I always like to remind people, uh, we, have this, we have this fight in Bakhmut. That, that is the center of gravity of, of the Russian effort in the East right now. But it is a political, rather military objective. And what is at stake in Bakhmut is the M03 highway, which goes to the northwest, 
and the H-32 highway, which uh, goes to the west. Russia has shown us that when it engages in one of these prolonged struggles to take an urban target, it is exhausted afterwards. And in any other situation and any other terrain, perhaps taking the intersection of the, of the H-32 and the M-03, that might be important. But the terrain going out of town, it, it means that the Russians, first of all, those roads diverge as they leave the city. So you can, you can thrust up one or the other, but you can't thrust up both because your, your, your new offensive axes, they don't support each other. The farther you get out of town, the farther you get as a Russian from, from help or mercy. So this is a decision. He wants the town of Bakhmut. And in terms of efforts against Ukraine, this is going to avail him very little. And Bakhmut is not the key to the eastern struggle in Ukraine. It is a an irrelevant crossroads town that has been made into a political objection, uh, objective by, once again, every dictator who has ever thought himself in command of the military, whether you were formerly a corporal with a funny mustache or a KGB thug. You get into power and you think you know more than your generals. In fact, in Putin's case, he probably does know more than his generals, get, looking at what I'm seeing. But uh, Bakhmut is not the be-all and end-all in this war. But if you're a Ukrainian commander, it is a great place to kill Russians. All right. Quick uh, thing. We have two, two hands up from uh, Gunther and from Luca. And I have a question from a listener for Igor as well. Let's go to Gunther, then Luca, and then we'll do the question. Gunther. Oh, uh, what I was asking about the progress of things, um, I was also interested in sort of their macro level, like... Uh, a year ago, my understanding is that there were 30 combat brigades. And uh, where are things now with Ukraine, and where will they be in the in the future? Also, uh, just as an aside, too, I've seen uh, some commentators talk about divisions, which I, my understanding is not really sort of applicable anymore, but is still a useful term. And um, I know, and just how to how to think about that. Okay, I will take that because I think when it comes to military organizations, I have done every single article on that on Wikipedia, so I know all of them by memory. Um, the thing is, um, NATO moved away from divisions to brigades because um, if you have an armored division, it costs much more to have than an armored brigade, which is a third the size. And which, if you deploy to something like Afghanistan or some Kosovo or something, you don't need division because the, the enemies you face, you can deal with a brigade, especially light brigades. There's a renaissance of the division right now. The Poles are raising divisions. The Americans are putting their division back as the top unit of uh, the top operational units away from the uh, brigades and strengthening the divisions. The Italians decided that they have to put two divisions into the field, a medium and a heavy. So the division is making a renaissance because if you fight peer-level enemy, um, you cannot attach to a brigade the 
extra things, you know, like rocket artillery, missile artillery, air defense, because then basically you have eight battalions between reconnaissance, combat uh, supports in the artillery and engineering in the brigade. And then you cannot attach six, six, seven battalions of support units. That's what you attach to a division. So um, the division is making a renaissance. The Ukrainians, interestingly, have now 107 brigades by my last count. About 30 of those are territorial defense units, but the, all the rest is mechanized, armored, airborne assault. So that's really combat power. The territorial defense units, which is light infantry, a lot of them are in the front line right now in Donbass because infantry in trenches with a minefield in front, they can destroy Russian attacks easily and just, um, and hold the line. Even in Bakhmut, there's quite some Ukrainian territorial defense units. Um, new brigades are formed left and right. I haven't seen a single Ukrainian division yet. I'm wondering if they will create some or if they will continue to use like corpse level uh, higher commands where basically you have a core which has all the attached units like bridging, engineering units, air defense units, helicopters, and so on. And then you have the brigades. I don't know. But um, the division is making a comeback. The Americans have a complete new uh, organization for the US Army now underway. The Marines are going smaller than brigades with littoral combat regiments, because the Marines understand they will fight on small Pacific islands where you cannot even place a brigade. And the US Army, if you look at their new structure, they reform the US Army tank and mechanized formations for one battlefield, and that's Eastern Poland. You can tell by the amount of bridging capabilities they put in that, that they know they were gonna fight if they will fight between Warsaw and Belarus in that area. You can tell. And so the, the division is making a comeback. And I'm not unhappy about it because the division is such a powerful tool because it has so much attached, you know, a combat aviation brigade, a engineering brigade, an artillery brigade, and military police and air defense brigade and, 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 and logistics brigade and supply brigades and stuff that uh, that is such a block that a country like Russia with its shitty army can not, not overcome. While a brigade, you could even go, you know, left or right around it because it's just too small. And so, yeah, divisions are making a comeback and I'm all he here for it. I, I think that reorganization, there has been a lot that the United States Army paying attention to in Ukraine. And uh, the United States Army is literally in the process of rewriting its own doctrine based on Ukrainian combat experience uh, in this war, the first 20th century war. Uh, for example, uh, at the turn of this century, and in the year 2000, uh, you had to be a pretty special special operations force to have a, a drone operator with your fill-in-the-blank, let's say, 20 guys. Uh, you had to be a pretty high-speed unit. 
Now, uh, if you are a regular infantry squad in a regular infantry company, you need a whiz-bang drone operator in your rifle squad. So basically, one drone for every 10 people. And we have seen Ukraine take basically uh, drones from a hobby store, right? Drones that a snowboarder would buy to, to film himself in the mountains. And they have turned them into potent anti-tank weapons. You know, a couple thousand dollar drone dropping a $50 uh, armor-piercing grenade on a million dollar tank. And we have seen that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Well, the United States Army, I would dare say, until 16 months ago, had never even thought of that. They'd never even thought that their armored vehicles forward deployed could be taken out by uh, by drones zipping along a treetop level. And I, I don't make any excuses for the Russian Army. I absolutely don't. This, this war can end as soon as they go home. And they can either get mailed home to their mothers or they can leave. But here, here is something I would say, and, and something that Putin did not consider when these no army in history has faced defenders as well equipped as the Ukrainian army. And I, I put a caveat on that. They don't have everything they need. They need more. They need more of everything. But we, we've seen in a couple of cases how important weapon systems have bolstered Ukrainian defenses. The Russian Air Force is vastly superior to the Ukrainian Air Force. Every day the Russians fly maybe 10 times as many sorties as, as, the, uh, as the Ukrainian Air Force. But the, but the Russian Air Force is not having 10 times the effect on the battle space that the Ukrainians are. Why? Well, remember those 10 guys I talked about with their new drone? Those 10 guys also have a, a shoulder-fired heat-seeking missile that they can lob at uh, any Russian aircraft that gets within a kilometer or two of them. And that has blunted the effect of something that should have been a superior weapon that the Russians had, meaning their air force. Okay, Russian armor. Arguably, some of it is very sophisticated. Some of it's pretty good. Uh, but 20%, 25% of the world's Javelin missiles are in eastern Ukraine. The United States has never faced an enemy with that many anti-tank guided missiles. And it isn't just the Javelin. You know, it's the Enlaw. It's the Brimstone. It's, it's a, a dozen other. And then the unguided weapons, still extremely effective if you're willing to fight them. The Carl Gustav, the AT-4, even the lowly law rocket. Uh, unguided weapons, but if if you let that tank roll and pop up, even a law rocket will do some damage. And then all of this pivots on morale. If you have bad morale like the Russians, your combat efficiency is going to be crap. It is going to be crap. And if you've got morale that is so low that your own Marines are mutinying on the field, it just does not bode well. It doesn't. And you know what? It There are going to be some dark and painful days ahead. There, there truly are. But I, I, I'll say it again. The Russian army, the way it is led now, the way it's constituted, 
and, and the way it operates now, it cannot win this war. It can't win it. And as long as every day that Putin does not win this war, his position becomes weaker, his men get more exhausted, and the end approaches. Chuck, you got interrupted. Seems you got a call. Uh, nobody calls me, you guys. <laughs> so it's only us uh, reaching out to you. Okay, all right. Then let me let me move on. We have a hand up from Luca, and I do have that question for Igor. So Luca, uh, question or comment, Luca? Well, thanks, Axel. Good evening, everybody. Thomas. My question is either for Thomas or uh, Chuck or both of them. Knowing how it's been for the Russians to deal with anti-tank mines, what are the advantages, the strategies, besides, uh, you know, not having the Russian sheer stupidity, uh, but like more practically technical strategic advantages uh, for the next uh, uh, counteroffensive? Uh, by the Ukrainians, uh, uh, how will they not uh, uh, suffer um, uh, and how will they avoid the anti-mine, uh, uh, you know, uh, devices? That's my question. Thomas, I think that's a big army question. So I, I remind everybody that I'm a naval officer and Thomas was an army officer. <laughs> Just army soldier. They wanted to send me to the academy, but I was too lazy at that age, and so I just sent my time into the staff office and read every paper I got on my hands on. Um, now, if you have a minefield in front of you that you need to clear, the NATO armies have all their various favorite mine-clearing vehicles. Some have the mine plow that just moves them aside. The Americans have line charges that are basically fired onto the minefield and then detonated to blow the mines up. So there's various things, and Ukraine is getting them. So um, when I said that the Russians attack without an engineering vehicle, it's because you never do that. You have an engineering vehicle based on the tank chassis, at the same tank base. Basically, you take an Abraham to make out of it an engineering vehicle. You take a Leopard 2 and make out of it an engineering vehicle. Because then you have something that is heavily armored and can keep up with your tanks. And that opens up the way for you. Remember all those Russian dragon teeth they put down on the ground somewhere in Luhansk? They just placed them on the ground. They didn't really put them into the ground, just on the ground. And they put mines in front of that. And so the Russians behind there will fire on the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians will attack. They have to know where the minefield is. They stop a bit in front of the minefield. And the tanks and infantry fighting vehicles will fire on the Russians together with the artillery further behind to keep the Russians in their trenches, heads down, not looking up, not firing at the Ukrainians. And then the Ukrainians will send forward the uh, engineering vehicles with the mine plows, the line charges, the mine flails, whatever it is they have, to clear a path through the minefield. And once that path is cleared, the Ukrainians will immediately move tanks and infantry vehicles through it, 
to attack the Russians that have been protecting the minefields. And once those are dead, they will go into the begin to move into the Russian rear. The Russians made the error. They sent basically guys forward to clean minefields. You know, you have a stick and you stick in the ground till you find the mine and then you clear it by hand. Takes an internal time. And the Ukrainians then sometimes hit them with a little bit of mortar, killed some, then the Russians had to come back. And when the Russians finally had cleared a path to the minefield, like at Wuledar, the Russians were like, you know now, let's have some vodka and some sashliki, and then we sleep, and tomorrow we attack. And naturally, the Ukrainians were like really thankful for the Russians to take a break and allow them to close the minefield, the gaps in the minefields again. So there are ways for the Ukrainians to clear those minefields and like the sweet um the finnish were like we cannot send ukraine tanks because we need tanks because we have a border with russia but you know we can send them minefield clearing leopard variants because uh, sweden is not, uh, finland is not going to clear minefields because uh, they want the minefields that they have to finish to be intact and the russians should then die in the minefields so there's coming um if i'm not mistaken uh, engineering vehicles of that type from um, Sweden, from Finland, from Norway, from the US, from Germany. France was talking about it, and I'm sure the Poles are sending in there too. And the Finns are sending bridge so, layers. Bridge layers, yeah, that's the next thing that you need um, modern bridge layers if you want to cross stream and brooks, because what the Germans sent in the first wave, the Biebers, the bridge of the Bieber is not sturdy enough to hold an Abrams tank or a Leopard 2 tank. You need something like the American Wolverine, which they want to take out of service anyway and replace with the Joint Assault Bridge, or you need something like the German Leguan, because those bridges were specifically designed to carry Leopards and Abrams tanks. So the Ukrainians need those and some recovery vehicles. And, and, and then the Leguan is, is generally also faster. That, that's another thing. It actually lays the bridge Yeah, because faster. it's based on the Leopard 2. Yeah. Because the Leguan is based on the Leopard 2 this, uh, chassis, and the, uh, the older version is based on a Leopard 1. Yes. So, yeah. So, a good military builds a tank and then builds on the same engine and armor, but without a turret, the three main support vehicles that you need for an offensive. The recovery vehicle that recovers damaged tanks, the engineering vehicle that cleans the minefields, moves obstacles aside, and if there's an anti-tank ditch, fills it in, and the bridge layers. The Swedish have that with Le Leopard 2 chassis, the Germans have that, the Americans have that with Abrams chassis. The British, have it almost they didn't build the recovery vehicles on the challenger tank so those recovery vehicles are a little bit weak and not that well armored but you know the ukrainians don't need all of that they need just one country to supply them with engineering vehicles and bridge layers and uh, recovery vehicles and they're getting from america recovery vehicles and mine clearing equipment engineering variants of the leopard tank from finland and so on so they will pass through those minefields and there won't be a problem for the Ukrainians. <coughs> the Russians had them and then all those Russian vehicles encountered a javelin. 
And the Russians, again, you know, when they built this stuff, because they built on mass, they built them really shittily armored. And when the Russians sent them forward, javelin, uh, end loss, whatever they had, they blew them, they were destroyed. And the Russians claim their industry is producing so much stuff and working so much overtime and putting out so many tanks. And if the Russians were producing as much as their propaganda claims, the Ukrainians would be destroying five times more equipment per day as they do. So the Russians are just lying what they produce. And, you know, it's typically Putin. He's like, build me tanks. So the Russians are building tanks and not trucks for the fuel and not engineering vehicles to clear minefields. And... Yeah, then when you go to the offensive, you just have tanks. There's an image of six Russian tanks, one next to each other, that all blew up in the same minefield. Because each Russian tank driver was thinking to drive around the two, three, four, five other tanks that were blown up and hit a mine themselves. And, you know, also, Western anti-tank mines have a magnetic anomaly sensor fuse. So basically, if the Russian tank is nearby, it will detonate by the change of the magnetic field. Um, Russian mines are typically still with the pressure. You know, you need to drive exactly on top of it and pressure something down so that it detonates. And then when it detonates, the Russian mine, the blast is directed first and foremost to the tracks and then the wheels. And then lots of it goes up on the side of the tank to the left because, you know, you hit it, the mine must be pressured by the track of the tank to detonate so you waste a lot of the energy and modern western mines they lie on the ground and something drives over it and they feel the change in the magnetic field they detonate nothing is over them they have air between the mine and the tank there's air and the mine can deploy its penetrator which is a, a mach 25 fast metal slug that is formed and accelerated by detonation and that just hits the, the russian tank i mean if you look at russian tanks that blown up you can tell that not only did the mine detonate and then enter the tank the, deton the explosive slug from the mine no it came out on top because it pierced the tanks bottom and then the top because it's just so much better than what the russians have i even saw an image of a russian a wheeled armored personnel carrier that I think weighs 16 tons and it was lying with its wheels up because it had the amazing luck of driving over two Western anti-tank mines. The detonation was enough to lift it up and twirl it around so it came lying on its back and with the wheels up. So Western minefields are much more deadly than what the Russians can, you know, put up. Because if you have a mine plow and you push the mines just aside, Russian mines that react to pressure, you know, if they're pushed aside by a plow, they're not going to detonate. Western mines, some have anti-handling devices, some recognize if there's a mine plow pushing them. Basically, you will destroy um, the mine plow within minutes in a Western minefield because the mines recognize, oh, there's a mine plow and destroy the mine plow. And 
next point, and then I stop about mines. The Russians have lots of not mine closed. They just have mine tracks clearing devices, you know, where basically the tank has in front of his tracks, so left and right, mine um, flails, mix of a mine flail, mix of a pressure thing to detonate mines. That means the tank drives into the minefield and only pressure sensitive mines will detonate that are exactly under these two pieces in front of the tank. But all the other mines, all the magnetic anomaly, or this, this NATO even has sound mines that react to sound, or mines that react if a tank drives over a fiber optical cable, you know? And all those mines are unaffected by these Russian mini mine plows. So I saw images of Russian tanks who were burning and had this mine plow in front of him. And the Russians probably are asking themselves, can a mine plow that clears in front of the tracks? Yes completely useless in a Western world minefield because our minds are much more evolved than yours. So the Russians are learning the hard way that technology-wise, they're 30 years behind. American Hornet mines are dropped from the air by artillery or rockets or helicopters on the ground. The rocket, um, this Hornet mine, M93, stays on the ground. It has microphones, it listens for Russian tanks, a Russian tank passes by, the mines twist, the mine twists itself in the direction of the Russian tank in the right angle to then fire a basically anti-tank missile, kind of like warhead, in the direction of the Russian tank, just by hearing the sound, there's three, micro three microphones on it. This warhead flies towards the Russian tank and angles itself so it comes in the right position over the Russian tanks and then when it is there it fires a explosively formed penetrator down into the Russian tank. Can Russian mine plows find those sound activated mines? No, no chance. So just a second does it have to um, stop <laughs> I think the headset is playing up on it. So no, um, basically the Russians have no chance to clean the minefields, and since most Russian mines are garbage, the Ukrainians will clean the Russian minefields without problems. And I will just quickly um, go out of the chat of uh, the space now to see who called me and if it's important because that late at night no normally problem. normal call unless it's emergency. Okay. We will be here. Sorry, guys. And in the meantime, I'll okay. ask the question for Igor, and then we'll see you in a sec. All right, Igor. Question came in first from one listener and then two others uh, added to it, and I think it's important. Uh, because people had heard beforehand um, how, for example, Ukrasalisnitsia uh, works with people who, A, there's attrition, some people have left and uh, volunteered for the army, um, and they wanted to understand as to how, how the numbers work for you for Ukrasalisnitsia. There will be people who've been working with you, very important people, but also many, many people who are doing the normal walking rounds, who actually as reservists then said, okay, I'll go fight. Um, have you lost a lot of people in that regard that they had to, uh, had to go out and replace them organizationally? And how are you dealing with those who are veterans who have been injured by war and now work within the company? 
Well, uh, we have, uh, <laughs> I don't know if uh, I, I can say we've been lucky, but um, in general, 76% of our com company staff before the war uh, were women. So uh, that was uh, slightly easier. And then obviously um, our employees, since they're critical, been excused, excused from servicing because they needed, uh, like drivers, for example, um, they needed to carry the social mission. So uh, obviously we do have people who chose to go to the army. Um, I cannot say it's easy to replace because even though uh, by law, um, we can, uh, you know, keep our employees, but only if they don't have um, a specific military occupation. So, for example, I just lost one of my uh, key managers. Uh, he got called into the army because uh, he had degree and his major is anti-air missile. So uh, you cannot keep those people even though you're a special company. Of course. So... Um, they uh, they have to go and serve so um i cannot say we have like you know thousands of those cases but uh, i think we are in the hundreds and um it's tough it's tough um which is why uh, we invest heavily now in digital uh we're trying to be as efficient as possible and then also i think we've discussed it once um it's a moral choice once we go into the occupied areas do you hire people who work with Russians? Or you only hire people who, um, you know, who never worked with Russians? Uh, obviously, you know, it, it takes time to train the person to know all our services. So um, it's one of the moral dilemmas. And uh, the further we go into the occupied areas, uh, we'll have more of it. Because, for example, in Kiev, Kiev had been only occupied for three or four weeks. So obviously you have very small number of people, if any, that work with Russians. Like Kherson had been occupied for five months, or Kharkiv had been occupied for four months, for five months. Um, so there people, uh, you know, many people had worked with Russians and uh, then it's a choice. So personnel issues, uh, something we deal with on a daily basis. And uh, again, sometimes it's not black and white. So for example, in Kherson, our team had told me they don't want anybody who worked with so-called post of Kherson or post of Russia. They don't want to see anyone uh, in the, as a part of the team. And I agree with them. Now, for example, in Kharkiv region, in uh, know, Kupensk, 90% of the people work with Russians. So you, it's either you don't open or you open and uh, you make some compromises. How do you bring those people back in those regions where you have to make compromises? Is there a way to actually show them what, I mean, some people will have been pressed into service because that has happened. We understand this. And others will have just simply out of complacency said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, again, others will have said, okay, this is exactly what I wanted. I'm, or I'm in favor of it. So you have to make this a very individual approach. It is an individual approach, and not only individual approach. Everyone, everyone still goes through the check uh, by security by Ukrainian uh, security service. So uh, we only hire after they've, they've done their checks. So they obviously uh, we don't allow any active, you know, or the last category to speak uh, to join. 
Uh, we don't take anybody who been actively involved in the referendum, so-called referendum process. Um, and then, um, you know, it's one by one, and it's tedious process uh, of selecting people who you can at least relatively trust. Because you see what happens is uh, we are a special company. Uh, our mail carriers coming into homes of people, and it's important the message that they carry. So if they carry the message that, you know, Russia is coming, they think that's the representation of Ukrainian state because we, you know, we're representing Ukrainian state. So uh, that's why we're extremely careful in uh, those personal decisions. Yeah, and you deliver the pension checks. So uh, you not only the do you represent the state, you actually you are um, bringing them uh, those components which they need to survive. So I fully understand this. Uh, our colleague Konstantin, Ukrainian based in Texas, has joined us. Konstantin, you have a question. Yeah, I wanted to say, like you said, that a lot of people uh, work um, worked with Russians in the, uh, in the railway in the Ukraposhta. I wanted to say, yeah, that they worked, but those people usually, you know, the, there are like a layer of population in the eastern Ukraine that does not uh, really care about anything. Uh, you know, they they are just surviving there. So I would not try to uh, say that they are pro-Russian or anything like that. It's it's usually just people. Uh, you know, they just live their lives. They they are just what you call uh, complete civilians that that just want to survive. That's that's all. Just wanted to comment on that. Thank you. Yeah, the, the the threat to the individual at times has been quite excessive. You mentioned this about Kherson. Um, we understand that in Kherson, as well as seemingly in Melitopol, um, and we heard this from Ivan Fedorov, the um, yeah, emigre mayor of Melitopol, that uh, the resistance is intense, but also there's a certain uh, layer of collaborators in the city. And uh, this uh, does not bode well for those collaborators remaining in the city as soon as it's freed. So I presume there are certain areas where the intensity of that uh, conflict is quite high. Uh, it is, but for example, some people who left with Russians, uh, for example, from Kharkiv region, uh, we had numerous of cases where active collaborators left with Russians, uh, stayed in Russia for a few weeks, realized they no one really wants them there and they had come back and be arrested actually some of them how did how did they come back like which route do they take to come back obviously you cannot there, uh, it's much go ahead no it's direct route i mean there are a bunch of calls if you're local you you know how to come back all righty let's go to george george you have a question yeah, I do. Uh, for Igor, thank you for being on the space uh, today. Uh, I know uh, you guys have been doing amazing work because uh, my babushka in uh, Kiev still gets her mail. So uh, hats off to you guys for doing that. Uh, I know that uh, you're working on the uh, Malcolm Nance stamp. I know he mentioned it when he was on here. But um, I have a suggestion. Uh, have you considered uh, uh, a Ukrainian stamp with uh, a babushka or two holding a jar of pickles? And do you know what I'm referring to? 
Yes, abso yes, absolutely. It's the one that uh, hit the drone. Um, yeah, bingo. <laughs> so uh, that would be that would be the way to like just get under the Russian skin, right? Uh, just a just a picture of a babushka or a painting holding a jar of pickles, smiling, you know, in in on the stand. That would be just the perfect. No, it's one of the, it's sort of in one of our ideas uh, list. Uh, as you probably have seen, we are trying to alternate, you know, serious stamps and funny stamps. So um, we have some ideas coming, you know, going forward. So I'm, hopefully we will not disappoint. So we, we keep following all the key uh, impo important images. Yeah, because I know the, I know you guys did the one with the, with the, uh... I think, was it the Banksy image with the uh, the child yep. throwing? Today. Obviously, yes. Obviously, the image of um, you know, obviously the Banksy image, and that's you know, even though you don't clearly see his face, we know that's that's supposed to be Putin, Mr. Judo Master himself. Um, so yeah, I was just thinking that uh, you know, there, there's a. I know you guys did the uh, you've you've done some great work this year with the uh, Moscow and uh, some of the other um, some of the other images but uh, yeah the, the babushka with the uh, pickle jars uh, would be good that would be just perfect we'll keep it posted quite thank you, thank you. And, quite uh, literally <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, no pun intended right no pun I, I do have one more question though so um because uh, you said that you now have a deal, uh, not a deal, or there's there's some kind of uh, uh, thing now that someone can mail something from Warsaw, uh, or what was that you were mentioning earlier? Because I, I kind of missed it, and maybe some of our other listeners missed it. If you want to uh, reiterate what was that, there was some kind of deal about uh, getting packages from Warsaw to Kiev or to Ukraine? Uh, yes, so I mean, we are getting them now, and uh, thanks to our Polish colleagues, we've reduced the rates. So right now it costs about 250 grivnas, or about $6, to mail a parcel uh, from Poland to Ukraine, and from Ukraine to Poland. But uh, it now takes about a week uh, or 10 days. And uh, why? Because uh, the trucks have to still uh, stay in line. I mean, we do have preferred line, but they still need to stay in line on the border. And uh, what we hope to achieve is um, we already have a railway car jointly designed with Ukrazalizny. It's a postal railway car that we want to attach to a daily train, Warsaw, Kiev. So this way, uh, the parcels would be, you know, it would take one day to get from Kiev to Warsaw and from Warsaw to Kiev. So the speed of delivery will be, you know, several times faster. Um, we started to work on this project in August. Uh, President Zelensky even asked President Duda to speed it up. Uh, but, uh, you know, we are where we are. Um, but we still hope uh, to achieve that goal. That's great. That's great. So that would be like a, a freight car, uh, you know, like a cargo freight car attached to the daily train or whatever it is. That yep. goes uh, Warsaw to Kiev. That that that's that's uh, that's good news. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being on here. And uh, thank you. hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, remember you're invited to the uh, to the big uh, Crimean surf beach party whenever that happens. 
uh, hopefully sooner than later. Maybe, you know, with the uh, leopard tanks showing up and everything else showing up, and uh, just from uh, my personal experience, I think uh, we might be uh, having that beach party when it's still warm out, you know, maybe uh, late August or September. I hope so, and I have to check my real estate. You know, Groposhta still has real estate in Crimea, so, you know, I need to go and check it out. Well, you know what? You know what's a good way to make money? So you can, re like, you could just, uh, you know, uh, if you could just rent out the space uh, in the uh, post offices, uh, something like a like a hostel, like a youth hostel, and raise some money till you get everything back in order, you know, because uh, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to go to Crimea and, uh, you know, go swimming on any of the beaches. So. Yeah, I mean, I just hope Russians don't screw it up for us. I, I uh, let me just tell you something. If they, if the Russians run as fast as the uh, as the Iraqis did in Desert Storm, uh, they're not going to have a chance to screw it up, my friend. <laughs> I I hope so. I mean, um, based from what I've seen on the ground, because we have to plan for the occupation, so we estimate that um, almost everything will be destroyed from our property in Donetsk and Lugansk region. Uh, we'll have a 50-50 in Kherson region and uh, hopefully we'll have up to 60-70% intact or repairable property in Crimea. So that's our estimate. That's good. That's good. I'm just telling you, uh, you might be surprised. You might go into, uh, you know, what used to be an ex-Ukraine uh, post uh, uh, office and, uh, you know, the, the, the shashlik might still be hot on the frying pan because that's how fast they ran the hell out of there. So. I don't know. With the corruption in Russian army, I would not go for that shashlik. It can be you know, not the best <laughs> no, quality. No, I'm not saying to eat it. That's for sure. It might be, you know, <laughs> God knows what that could be. Uh, let's not even go there. I know uh, some people, it's like dinner time, and I don't want to upset their stomach. So <laughs> let's leave it at that. All righty, gentlemen, guys, we have questions. Exactly, Thomas, sorry, please. No, guys, I will have to leave now too because I still have this cold and my sore throat is acting up and I'm coughing worse and worse. So I think Don't I will have to go and... I had a really brilliant idea for day for the cat. I put it in the garden. <laughs> and it's warm enough and she's out there hunting birds, so I think she's quite happy. But... <laughs> I am. I, I was running in the mountains and sweating and then getting a cold and it has been acting up all week and I feel like I am. I need to go back to bed. Sorry about no it, worries. guys. I, I, w I wanted to do an eight-hour thing because we started <laughs> earlier today, but I just felt like the last minute to go make some tea and lay down is the best course of action for me. Sorry. Thomas, Thomas we got you, bud. Get, get some rest. Thank you, and I will be back on very soon again because I think we will have to talk a lot about tanks again. Absolutely. Guys. Thomas, <coughs> Thomas yeah. really quick. Remember the meme we sent with the ancient uh, Roman statue uh, with a cat on uh, sitting on your chest? I actually have an artist that's recreating that, so uh, I'm going to get uh, <laughs> your contact information from Axel, and you can put that on your desk, okay? <laughs> my cat would throw it from the desk because she's very jealous in anything else you can show her videos on tiktok of other cats and she will curse them out you can like yeah, yeah. very jealous lady 
guys have a good evening or good afternoon wherever you are chuck it's up to you now and Thank you. bring Thank the you, optimism brother. to the people that ukraine will win as it should be thanks everyone and hear you soon bye Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. Everybody, give a big hand to Thomas Tyner. Excellent day on this memorable and momentous February the 24th, 2023. All righty, we have lots of hands up, lots of questions. Let's go through them. Whoever doesn't have her or his hand up will be cycled down, I have to say this. And no, Igor, this does not apply to you. And Chuck, anyway, has a fixed seat from which he can't escape. So there you go. Um, we have um, Abdullah, then Uki, then Reinhardt. Abdullah, shoot. Hey, thank, thank, thank you, Axel. Good evening, everybody. I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know if anyone is a scuba diver, but I'm looking forward to dive in the Black Sea for the first time in search of the Moskova. Uh, Chuck, I wanted to ask you a question about the, the head of Wagner group. I was just, what, what do you make of the rise and fall of Gregosian? And then I will have a follow-up, uh, if I may, about China. Well, there are some interesting things going on with Mr. Prezhoshin. He, uh, in the last month, uh, Russian media was warned not to uh, give him airtime, not to mention Wagner. And I imagined this was a, uh, a, a sort of an attempt by Putin to sort of quell the infighting between Wagner and uh the Ministry of Defense, particularly Minister Shoigu. Uh, but in, in the last week, uh, Prezhoshin's popped back up, uh, mouthing off about uh, Wagner could have taken Bakhmut if we'd been given uh, what the Ministry of Defense was withholding. One of his more memorable quotes was, uh, they wouldn't even give us shovels. Uh, I think there's going to come a certain point where Mr. Prezhoshin has uh, outlived his amusement value uh, for Putin. But an interesting thing broke in the, in the press uh, uh, earlier this week, and that is that uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense is setting up its own private military corp uh, contracting firm. Uh, it's going to be called Hawk. The Russian uh, word for that, I believe, is Yatreb. Uh, but interestingly, I, I think Mr. Prezhoshin should pay attention to that, because if nothing else, uh, that that provides the corporate shell, the sort of entity that uh, the Ministry of Defense can transfer all of Wagner's property and employees and everything else into this now standing Ministry of Defense affiliated corporation. And I think everyone in Wagner will be transferred over into it, with the exception of one guy, who I think may be joining the Moscow City skydiving team, which uh, we've seen uh, people peeling off balconies. So I, I think Prezhoshin is pushing it just about as far as he possibly can. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how much longer Putin uh, is going to put up with it. And again, you know, don't don't think that uh, Minister Shoigu is without resources, or without uh, viciousness, or without cunning, because uh, he's not gonna he he's just not gonna take this stuff 
you know, there will come a time where, uh, uh, you know, things, accidents happen to troublesome people uh, in the Kremlin. Thank you so much for that. Just a, a follow up about China, uh, Chuck. There are rumors that the Chinese are planning to give the, uh, to give the Russians some drones. I don't know how good these drones are, as you know, in China. When it comes to innovation, the Chinese just rely on stealing other people's ideas. So I'm just wondering, what consequences should the Chinese, the Communist Party, face if they were to provide weapons to um, to uh, to Russia? And also, I was going to ask you, Chuck, why isn't the why isn't the West in a wartime production mode when it comes to mass producing weapons for for their own stockpile? Thank you so much. Wow, uh, a two-part question. Uh, I, first, I'll go to China. Uh, you know, uh, China's interests are are China's interests, and I, I think that China is taking a long, hard look at what's going on in Ukraine, and it sees a couple of things: uh, Russian weapons and Russian tactics and Russian doctrine are not doing so well on the battlefield. Uh, China realizes that its own weapons are, for the most part, copies of Russian weapons. So the Chinese have inherited all of the problems that we see that are wrong, for example, with Russian tanks. Russia made a decision 30, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, that they were going to cut down the number of people they put into a tank, thereby saving the amount of homogenous armor they had to produce, making the crew compartment smaller, uh, all of those cost-saving uh, measures. And they were going to do that by eliminating the loader from the crew. So there would be a commander, a driver, and a gunner instead of a commander, driver, gunner, loader. Well, we, we know what happened. They replaced the loader with a carousel of ammunition that uh, the crew of the tank sits on. Uh, we know what's happened there. Uh, I think China also knows that Russia started this war as a global power, and now they're getting their butts kicked by a former satellite, right? By by a nation they did everything they could uh, to starve, to isolate, to demean, uh, and the Chinese see see that unless Putin literally pulls a rabbit out of his hat—not literally, but Unless he, he does something amazing here, he's going to lose this war. And I think China is going to be very careful with this foreign policy. And why align with a loser? What's in it for China down the road if Putin loses this war? And win or lose this war, wh whatever happens militarily in the Ukrainian War of Liberation, as I'm calling it, Whatever happens in this war, Russia is going to be in the diplomatic doghouse for the next 25 or 30 years, with Putin or without Putin. Russia is going to be diplomatically isolated. It's going to be economically isolated. Uh, it is going to be culturally isolated. Uh, when the Ukrainian war ends, we're going right back to the deepest depths of the Cold War, and I'm talking 1970. I'm talking 1980, 84. I mean the lowest depths of the Cold War. 
and and that's going to hurt Russia. So there isn't a whole lot in it for China uh, to to kick in here militarily. Now that doesn't mean they won't try to do it in an underhanded manner, in a clandestine manner, in a covert manner. But I also put up a post. Uh, 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 Russia needs uh, uh, needs parts for its uh, for its strike fighters, and China was in discussions to provide parts for this particular fighter. Uh, what what Moscow would be buying in that case are Chinese-made parts from a Chinese-made knockoff of a Soviet fighter, which are now in the Chinese J-11 fighter. So you would be buying knockoff parts of a knockoff item. Now, what that showed to me is how absolutely desperate Russia is. I mean, that's where you source your spare parts. And again, it isn't like buying a light bulb for your house, right? This is aviation equipment. It, it can't fail, right? It, it, look, you know, I have trouble talking on the, on the show here because I have Chinese-made uh, Type-C connectors on my computer. <laughs> So uh, you know, I I I don't know about uh, I I don't know about that one. Regarding wartime production, uh, it, it's a political and an economic decision here in the United States. Uh, you know, I don't dabble dabble in the stock market, but my advice would be buy Boeing, buy Raytheon, uh, buy buy the companies that manufacture uh, uh, American. American weapon systems, because eventually and inevitably, the U.S. is going to turn up production of these items because they have to replace the equipment that is being uh, sent to Ukraine, and especially now, especially now, given given that what Russia Russia has shown, they've they've shown their uh, their strategic intentions, right? And 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 this is another thing that that how badly. Putin has has you know he embarked on this war when this war started a year ago actually it started in 2014 from 2014 till 22 NATO was declining every day there was infighting there was bickering about who's paying for what who's pulling their weight there was a lot of talk about well we don't even need NATO anymore so Putin's invasion of Ukraine he has revitalized NATO. Uh, the best ever Sweden. salesman, the best ever salesman for NATO actually being appealing and worthy. Absolutely, no question. Chuck, give me one second. I need to interrupt briefly because I want to recognize friend of the space, friend of our program, and uh, at, uh, say a very well-known figure in Ukraine, Oleksiy Goncharenko. Dobrovechar. Oleksiy, can you hear us? Do you hear me? Hello. Loud and clear. I hear you now, Alexei. Uh, Slava Ukraini. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for all the work uh, Maria Report is doing for almost all this year. This is, as I said earlier today, it's a pleasure. It's a privilege. It's a moral imperative. That's the least we can do here. Thank you, and that is really important. And you know, I, I'm impressed 
So it was clear that uh, the, this day will attract a lot of attention from media from the whole world. But I am really impressed. Uh, what I saw today, yeah, there was a conference, and at the same time, um, in one of the hotels of Kiev, press conference of President Zelensky, at the same time, international conference. So I was taking part in this international conference, and I saw the number of journalists from all over the world who were taking part in this uh, in this uh, press conference. That was that was striking. And uh, me personally, I, this day started for me at seven a.m. Uh, Kiev time uh, f- with the comments to Australian TV, and uh, will finish in four hours. In the uh, U.S., one of the top uh, channels, top shows uh, in the prime time of U.S., so it will be the complete day from Australia to United States. But it shows the very, the absolute great interest to to what's going on in our country to to this anniversary, uh, grim anniversary. But yeah, the, that was a tragic day. That was a tragic year. But at the same time, that was a historic day, a historic year. And uh, the whole world found Ukraine on the map of the planet. But at the same time, and even more important, I think, is that Ukrainians themselves found the, the national idea, uh, the freedom. They found the, the power to stop dictator, to stop tyrant of whom the whole world was scared, I mean Putin, and uh, I'm sure this year to defeat, to defeat this evil, this empire of evil. That is our objective, and we need to do this because the price we are paying for every day of this war is too high. So that's so important for us to finish this war as soon as possible. 100% 100% as a good friend of mine says here on this space on a regular basis. Alexei, um, you're from Odessa. We have a voice from Odessa here on our space on a regular basis, Olga, Oscar domesticated. And I just invited her up as well because um, during the uh, dark days of March and April last year, when many people were coming to our space here to discuss uh, situation when things were within the fog of war and there was so much going on we all discussed what the experience was and i just wanted to highlight you and i we discussed this before recently met uh, tim my colleague um in uh, um ukraine on his trip with ukraine but we really wanted to highlight as to how important it was that this friendship between people all over the globe and ukrainian people has been fostered, and that was the task for us here. So I'm very glad that uh, Olga has joined us uh, just now as well, because uh, now we have two people from Odessa with us. Olga, добрый вечер. I'm so happy to be today, tonight uh, with you all, guys, and it's quite symbolic um, to join you today. Uh, and um, um, I can say that. I, re- I have repeated it many times that this space was responsible for my mental health in many 
cases. Sometimes it alarmed me when <laughs> there was the analytics and uh, some stuff that was not as optimistic as I would like it to be. Uh, there's some amphibious landing in the desk and all the stuff. And lots of messages and DMs. Maybe you should consider to leave, but well. Um, eventually, it all the amphibious landing is not on the table and Russian warship went to the direction we all know. And it was, by the way, reminded by our Latvian uh, friend. And uh, also, mm, I would... Uh, I would like to say thank you to Igor because Ukur uh, Poshta was and is and has been for a long time before the full-scale invasion, um, the place and the initiative, many great things, and your stamps uh, is something special. It's treasure and uh, it's so inspirational. And I've seen just recently the new issue and the new ideas, and I hope we will see many more. And I'm looking forward to the designs that will celebrate the victory, of course. Um, and uh, to Olexi, well, I am, of course, as a fellow um, Odessa citizen, we're all following your political career and we're happy that you made it from the local city council to the parliament to the um, European institutions. So thank you so much for your work. And... Um, uh, Bond text is my favorite one. <laughs> and, uh, Thank you so much. <laughs> now, I'm a, I'm a big fan, truly. I never, uh, no Uber, Snowball, they don't work for me. I love Bond. And for those who don't know, this is such an Odessa thing. I absolutely love it because uh, Alexis relates, let's say, to uh, this Bond text in Odessa and it has the phone number. Uh, 007007, starting with seven, and it's marvelous. It's so, so, so much a death vibe in that. I absolutely love it. <laughs> this is like a, um, one of many precious things. Um, and I think when there is victory and many people promise to come to Odessa for a coffee or a drink, you now know <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> what uh, taxi you can use. Yeah? Absolutely, exactly. Uh, Thank you, Olga, very much, and really. I think that, by the way, Odessa is so important part of all this story, our city, and it's so symbolic in so many ways, because Odessa was definitely, and is, unfortunately, I think today, definitely the, the most important objective for Putin. I think that he uh, realized that he can't take Kiev but he still thinks that he can take Odessa. And all what's going on now in Moldova is again the sign of this, because he can't really take Moldova without taking Odessa. Uh, you can just open the map and you will see it. And also the whole world during this war, one of, you know, like this war, like always, that shows, that, that opened some things which were like quite obvious. But the things which you, you forgot, it's like, like, you know, like it is said that you never understand that the most important is air because you are just constantly breathing. But if, I mean, I hope nobody, it will be the case for nobody. But if for some reason you don't have air, at this moment you realize how precious it is. And the same about Odessa, Black Sea, uh, Ukraine. Uh, from times of ancient Greeks, 
Black Sea was a breadbasket of civilized world, and uh, con- and still is. But many, many people throughout the whole planet just forgot about it, just forgot about importance of the seas geopolitically, about the importance of uh, commercial navigation, about the uh, importance of food security, uh, about the fact that Ukraine is a breadbasket, and many, many other things. And this year... Putin reminded all of this, reminded why the world needs NATO, why the free world should be united, why democracy matters, why rule of law matters, why Black Sea is important. And Odessa is the biggest city on the Black Sea shore. So why Odessa as a capital of Black Sea is so important. Uh, and uh, that, that is just a part of the picture. Also, it's about, like, Odessa was the uh, fourth largest city of Russian Empire in the 19th century. It, the bigger were only St. Petersburg, which was 1.5 million population, Moscow 1 million, and Warsaw, which was 0.6. And even Kiev and Kharkiv were, uh, and Riga were smaller than uh, Odessa. Yeah, and... Um, it's also the story how the city, which was built um, very much as a gate of the empire to the world, became free and chose its own destiny to become the capital of Ukrainian South and, and, and is ready to fight for it. And how today Odessa is deimperializing itself uh, maybe many of you heard about the story about Catherine II monument in Odessa, but what is important, it was discussed for years, but what was important that it was decision of Odessa people finally to, to, to remove the monument for Catherine II. By the way, we did not destroy it. We just removed it to museum. We acknowledge our history and uh, Catherine II was part of our history, but we never ever will be anymore part of this empire, and that's why there is no place for this monument anymore in our central square. But it's also so symbolic when people realizing these things and, and doing it, and in this way is not easy. It wasn't easy for me. I realized it ten years ago. Many people realized it just uh, one year ago, on February 24. But uh, we did this, we, we came through this way, and we, uh, I think th- this way was so important for all of us. So Odessa is a special place. All those who are still never been in our wonderful city, you, I know that you, sh- you want to go, you want, you just had no possibility to do this. And I'm sure that you will come, welcome Olga, me, and others, and definitely Bon Taxi will be happy to host you and, and to show you our wonderful city, one of the most beautiful Mediterranean cities because it's absolutely a Mediterranean vibe there. And, uh, and you will f- see how diverse is Ukraine. I think you cannot understand Ukraine well, completely without visiting like Kiev, Odessa, Lviv, Kharkiv, they're very different, absolutely very different cities. 
a lot of in common, but a lot of different things. And to, to see the whole picture, you need to be in all these cities. And, uh, and again, these cities became one of the symbols, like Odessa was uh, the symbol of our fight on the Black Sea and is the symbol. Kharkiv is just a fortress, 30 kilometers from Russian border, still fighting and still in very difficult situation. Kiev, no words, like the whole world is watching and everybody remembered the last year, 40 miles convoy and this uh, Russian attempt and Bucher Pengostomel, which are suburbs of Kiev and how that, like, how important it was. And Lviv now is a gates for all help supply to, to the country. So in this cooperation, coordination is also the strength of Ukraine and its diversity. But this diversity, which enriches and uh, and and make and and makes us str so strong, that's something I, I'm proud of, and I'm proud of. You know, sorry for maybe emotions, but today, at this exactly day, I just want to tell once again that I'm proud to be Ukrainian. That is the kind of message uh, we wanted to hear this evening yet again. Because we have another 31 minutes and then actually the 24 hours, which mattered so much of this ominous and momentous first day, um, are over. That doesn't mean that the, uh, February 24 is not over in the US, of course, for our transatlantic friends, but this marks the last half hour of that day, that anniversary. Alexei, Olga, Oscar domesticator Olga, she has been here as the voice of Odessa been presenting Odessa Mama to those who never knew it, and for a long time. And we have been um, doing this here uh, day in, night out. And from time to time, there were these little snippets, which made a lot of sense, whether it was that one uh, um, little public toilet on the beach, which the Russians selected for annihilation, whether it was, yeah. the, <laughs> whether it was the Satoka Bridge, um, the fact that people were dancing in the street in the dark, Odessa simply didn't give in. Like many exactly. people in Ukraine never gave in. Exactly, exactly. One year ago, uh, also like, yeah, today a lot of coming backs. It's normal because it's such day. But one year ago on February 23 of last year, the day before, even hours before invasion started, I spoke in the Ukrainian parliament from Tribune, and uh, I said to, uh, I addressed to Russian officers and soldiers. It was clear that something can can start. Uh, yeah, I me personally, I was waiting for a lesser scale attack, but uh, yeah, it happened like it happened. But it was clear that some that that the the danger is here and very 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 close, and I addressed Russian officers and soldiers, and I said to them that uh, no, if, if you thinking that somebody is waiting for you here with flowers in their hands, you're just making so great mistake. We're waiting you with the javelins with the stingers in our hands, and if you will come in into the country, you will never come out. And uh, so it was like, welcome to the hell. 
And uh, that's exactly what had happened for already more than 100,000 Russian soldiers and officers. And uh, very good. Very good. Alexei, Alexei do you, would you allow a couple of follow-up questions? Because we have lots and lots yeah. of hands and people want to talk to you. <laughs> and Olga, I think you have a follow-up and then we have Reinhard, Uki and Dawn. So let's, uh, if, if you don't mind, let's cycle through because otherwise we're never going to get there. Olga. Yeah, this is what's happening when you have two people from Odessa. <laughs> you can never in, um, like um, squeeze in the and other speakers. But uh, I have uh, maybe two comments as a follow-up to what Alexi said. Um, when people say that Odessa um, uh, has not experienced as much harm as uh, other cities, yes, but well, Odessa maybe is among those few cities that was repeatedly mentioned by uh, Putin uh, in his speeches. And uh, it just shows how symbolic it is for, for capturing it. Also, uh, we must not forget that the front line, um, uh, there is no front line uh, for Odessa on the land. However, it's on the sea. And I can't remember it so clearly. It's just before my eyes until now, how we saw, actually saw those warships at the horizon without naked eye, with, naked, with a naked eye. And also some smaller boats uh, that were traveling uh, too close to the coast, just very close to the beach line in the early weeks uh, of the war. So the front line is still there. And when we uh, read those messages that the missile carriers are out and were threatened, like it's just very recent message, by the way, then uh, we realized that it all depends on the weather, on the Black Sea, and that we're just looking at it directly. It's not, it, it, they cannot come close no longer, thanks God, and thanks to this uh, anti-ship uh, weapon. However, they're still over there somewhere. And um, the other thing um, I would, like to remind, speaking about the early days of the war, which I'm remembering today, and we have never forgotten them, of course, uh, is that um, Odessa is called Mama, as you right now already know from me and many other people. And there was uh, that slogan, and it's still on the table and still um, quite loud. If you hurt Mama, Mama will bury you. So Many were buried by then, and many are feeding fish, the black sea fish, and maybe that's why it's so fat in the summer season. So, yeah, that was that. what I wanted to say. Thank you. There you go. Okay. Hello. Yes, uh, I just wanted to um, take an opportunity to uh, thank Pana Ihor and uh, the, uh, all the staff of Ukraposhta. Uh, I am a Ukrainian living from Kiev, living in Miami. And I had published a book, um, uh, my first book in 2021, but because of COVID delays, it actually ended up being printed um, early 2022. And so our director sent it from Kharkiv um, by Ukraposhta on February 22nd. Um, and 
obviously once the invasion happened that was about the last thing on my mind and i never thought that i would see that package again um it was um in kiev uh, on the 23rd um and i just had you know the tracking information hanging in the usps and form delivery thing and i never deleted it from there and lo and behold at some point i see it moving and i just couldn't believe my eyes i was like no way um and so i went to the uh, main page of ogreposhta uh, where i saw an announcement that ogreposhta uh, resumed uh, its international deliveries as of march 1st i mean mind you that's like less than a week after major invasion and um, that package showed up uh, a month after it was sent you know right on schedule and um that's like a favorite um story for many of our american friends um they just start thinking about castaway and um so um i have always been a huge fan of uh, ugrposta and i love the stamp designs of course my dad i think has most of the t-shirts um uh, with the stamp designs but um that story is really special so i'm glad that i have a chance to thank pan ihor for um really phenomenal work and um just you know outstanding uh thank you very much thank you so much for the story i will make sure to relate to the team thank you i want uh, it's a pause now i want also to thank Igor, who is from odessa definitely everybody knows this uh if, if somebody doesn't know now you know uh we made also I have this network of educational cultural centers in Ukraine, which are called Gronchilenko Centers, which uh, we started several years ago. And uh, it is a free English language free of charge for adults and children and many other things, other languages, cybersecurity, financial literacy, and so on. And we continue to definitely from February 24, we switched to volunteering like the whole country. And uh, we are doing our job to our military. We even bought a self-propelled hobbitzer for our army, which is a, almost a tank, which is called Gvezdika. Uh, it's also interesting. But uh, you know, recently, it was just, I think, two weeks ago, we made our stamp. Uh, and and uh, I don't know the right word, Igor will help me. Uh, when, when you're making a new stamp and the process of the first using it and stamping the stamp, uh first day first day launch yeah first day launch and we did it in odessa in our historical wonderful beautiful love poshtam that is one of the pearls of our city and we did it and we have now our own stamp which is called about shelter shelter for education because we continue it's unbelievable people in ukraine during the war children and adults are coming to our centers to learn english to learn french um uh, that is unbelievable that is that shows the potential of, of of people who are living in our country so i wanted also to say thank you for for doing this and for, for working together thank you thank you very much and uh, i just want to tell a really quick story um you've mentioned the book that was sent from kharkiv on february 22nd we had even more amazing story, the, uh, the package uh, that was sent from Nova Kakhovka in Kherson on February 22nd. And um, we were not able to take it out of Kherson because it was quickly occupied. 
but uh, it was in our sorting center hidden in Kherson. So uh, once it was freed up, the package after five months was delivered to Chernivtsi. So you can imagine the face of the woman that uh, got the SMS that her package from Novokakhovka from February 22nd has been delivered. Uh, she actually said that she, uh, she received the package and she said she will not open it, she will frame it uh, as a memory of this war. Thank you so much, Eero, for sharing this story with us. Uh, it's a reminder to our listeners that war is also a summation of stories like this. Good evening from Cairo, everyone. It's the Maria Report. And uh, tonight we're continuing a marathon to mark one year since the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, let's take some hands. Uh, Don Croxford, please go ahead, sir. Hey, thank you. Um, um, just a quick question for Chuck, and then uh, and then I had a little, little um, pleasant thing to share. Um, yeah. So Ch Chuck, Don, uh, Chuck has already left. Uh, Chuck has left. Oh yeah, yeah he has an, he has an oh. appointment to attend to. He will be back uh, in about three hours. Okay. Well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll say this anyhow. Um, there was an incident this um, that was reported this week, and uh, now it happened a couple of months ago, but it made me think, why is China being so aggressive uh, in their, like, Russia's, uh, Russia's at war, they're silently supplying them. But then we get this report of an illegal bully in the high Arctic. Um, and it turns out to be Chinese. Uh, Don, let's put a pin into that question because uh, Ivana Stradna, our friend and colleague uh, from uh, Washington, will be joining us in about 20 minutes. And that is a perfect topic for that question, if you don't mind. All righty. And I was just going to say, and the other thing is uh, a, a, a quote from Winston Churchill. And that's, um, success is not final. Failure is not final. It is the courage to continue that matters. I just want to put that out there on the on the first anniversary. Just keep fighting. Thank you very much for that, Don. And with that, uh, let's recognize. Uh, let's recognize a good friend of ours and someone who's been with us from the very beginning. Whilst we haven't, we haven't been operating in the same organization, we've always been working alongside and working on the same battlefield. Alexander Bakus, Maria Eid. Dobry večer. Dobry večer. <laughs> Slava Ukraini. Um, yes, um, indeed. And uh, thank you for all the hearts and support. And, um, and of course, I'm super happy to be here. You might hear some kids in the background. So uh, I appreciate the patience. Just a quick two, um, uh, two things that, you know, Don uh, shared with us, uh, a fantastic quote by Winston Churchill. I think, you know, I want to follow up on that and just sort of build on top and say that, um, you know, the important piece here is while Ukraine has shown tremendous uh, resilience, victory is not yet guaranteed. And we're here, Maria Report, Maria Aid, 
everyone in our communities, the respective folks that are joining us today. We're, we are mourning the year of the full-scale invasion, and we are here working to make sure we get to victorious Ukraine. I think Ilya Ponomarenko from Cave, um, from Cave Independent was one of the first folks to, to tweet an invitation to see, uh, you know, an invitation to victorious Ukraine um, on 23rd of February, 2022. I extend the same invitation and I look forward uh, to joining each and every one of you in Ukraine. And to that, um, you know, I think I had a, a two second opportunity to meet Alexei um, this, um, this fall, actually, you might not remember, sir, but um, I, we ran into, both Axel and I ran into you in Tallinn, in Estonia. We took a quick pick and... <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. And I, I, and I was hearing you, and just I, I thought that we, di we didn't make one theme, me personally, today. I mean, here in me, I did it for, to some of my friends, Estonians, but I didn't uh, do it here. I want to congratulate you with, because today is Estonian national holiday. Yes. So, yes. And Aita, and Aita, Aita. for all Aita tele, Aita Estonia, Yeah, <laughs> Estonians are really, real, so big friends of Ukraine. I mean, that is for me about that there are no small nations in the world because Estonians is a big nation. With because the nation. Is, is big not when there are a lot of uh, like people in this nation or the territory which is uh, yeah, where this nation lives is big no nation is big when the heart is big and i really i don't know i don't know nations with i i okay i don't know many nations as hard as big as estonians estonians uh, have so just Aita, thank you very much for all your support. You are amazing, you are wonderful, and uh, you are real friends and brothers and sisters. So together to our common victory. Together. And in Estonia, today we had um, pretty much the whole NATO establishment also. Uh, and uh, then we had some Ukrainian soldiers joining us at the parade. There's a couple of images which our friend Tim Sennett also posted out. So what we would say here, I mean, both the Estonians and the Germans in Estonia, we would all say, which is a good national holiday of the Free Republic of Estonia, which was lucky enough that it didn't have to fight after 1990, as Ukraine now has to do. But there you go, Estonians have fought until the 1970s against the occupation army. Alexei, thank you very much for joining us today. And I'm very, thank you very much. I'm very honored that it you're all here. It was a great honor. That was an honor for me and thank you very much. And uh, uh, yeah, I believe that next year on RIA report, we will discuss how we are rebuilding Ukraine, how we are building stronger free world together. How many plans do we have? So that will be a, a matter of our discussion. And definitely, again, welcome to Odessa. Alex, I think we have to go to Odessa. Indeed, indeed we do. Um, and I think uh, I have huge respect to, um, you know, our, our Pan Ihor Smelyansky. Um, as well, I wanted to give him a shout out. 
because as soon as the stamps for the liberation of Kherson came out, uh, I had ordered a set of 10. And as I'm looking in my household, I'm looking at a set of six uh, altogether, still in one set of the watermelon, um, looking at right back at me. And, and what, a, what a fantastic and symbolic design your team has put together. And uh, I'm just going to keep on sending you money and you keep on sending me stamps. <laughs> Absolutely, we will. I'm pretty sure the last time this Putin uh, will be part of your collection. It's a full series, sir. It's a full series. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you, Alexander. Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. I, I just wanted to highlight uh, that. I Reinhard was next. That, uh, Alexei had to drop off. Uh, I knew that you had a call upcoming. So, um, everybody. Um, Say, send big thanks and give a follow to Alexi Goncharenko as well. Please do that. Uh, Reinhardt, please go ahead. Hi. Um, I, I have a question for Igor. And, and it's a question uh, from my mother who, who doesn't speak English, but she wants to do something. And she noticed that uh, here in Germany uh, with DHL, uh, one can send free packages to Ukraine with like human, humanitarian aid and there's lists of what should be in there and so forth. And it says that Ukroposhta would then distribute those uh, in Ukraine. And my question to you is uh, whether that's really a thing, whether it's useful or whether it's a big hassle uh, in Ukraine to kind of separate these things out and then distribute them whether it would be better to just donate money to a charity or maybe if you could give us a quick overview of how that works when when like individual packages uh, arrive uh, that are not addressed to anybody but they're just sent as as aid to ukraine thank you Well, I wouldn't know the answer to that. Igor, so, did you hear the question? Igor may not know he's muted. Or he might be having trouble with his mute button. Igor? I'm not sure whether Igor uh, Smolyansky can hear us at this point in time. Bernard, we'll have to park it for a second until he is right back at us. No problem. Thank you. In the meantime, uh, maybe just ask, let's ask um, Alexander Bacchus. Um, what did you do on February 24 last year? Um, Everybody yeah. had to answer <laughs> the question here. Oh, oh Seth. <laughs> I'm on the spot. So, um, in, indeed, I believe I was on the former iteration um, of the report uh, of of this of this very same space, um, and I was speaking with Yehuda and uh, the folks that um, joined up um, uh, to discuss the sort of ongoing 
uh, events. Um, and it was, the, the, you know, the same, actually last night, um, on the 23rd is when um, I began to uh, organize and I began to uh, rekindle and restart the volunteer uh, nonprofit that uh, I opened up in 2014 and 2015 um, when we shipped uh, 750 pairs of combat boots um, for the Ukrainian army, uh, the 128th um, battalion from, Zak from Zakarpatia. So on the 24th, um, I quickly began calling my friends who helped me out in, in that 24-2015 campaign. Uh, and I began to get to know new people and that in, in the next few days from last year, um, I found the amazing folks who are now my co-directors and co-partners. Um, and we've built Maria Aid since then. So um, 364 days ago, uh, 365 days ago, we begin our journey, our Maria journey. Um, that's how it starts again. So what's the outlook for this year then? I mean, the whole year has passed. I'll ask the same question. I asked pretty much everyone else before. What is, if you close your eyes, what is the one image of the last year which sticks in your mind? Um, this is a super unfair question. Uh, I don't have a single image. Sadly, um, if I like reverse back the 24th, um, I have anxiety, I have fear, I have um, dread, existential dread um, this, this last year, um, specifically the first few days, um, things where I clearly remember not sleeping, I clearly remember consuming all the media content in Russian and Ukrainian telegram channels, seeing the bombings, seeing how close they came to the occupiers arrived in Kiev, and you know I think Alexei mentioned this in, in Bucha Hostomel. As I say this, my heart rate picks up, and I have that sort of reliving that anxiety uh, all over again. But here I am in the West, so I have no right to sort of uh, uh, claim any kind of uh, uh, sort of pain. Just that I was living through this moment. Um, and, and living through it and consuming as much media as I could in, in that regard. And so um, that's the past though. And the, 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 I think that you, know, you began the question, you began this discussion with what's the future? What's, what does the future yeah, exactly. hold for Maria Aid? And, and I think that's a far more optimistic and far more um, uh, wonderful conversation that I, that I would, you know, I want to have and I want to keep having. And you know we've we've achieved tremendous amount of impact um, on the ground. Um, you know we got to know fantastic folks, you know companies out there that um, supported us, um, communities, the Maria Report communities. You know we got to know all the moderators at Maria Report and so on and so forth. Um, we delivered a ton of humanitarian aid, um, like quite a few tons, actually uh, eight plus containers worth of humanitarian and medical aid, um, oh, you know, a couple of thousand uh, tourniquets, um, you know, we're approaching something like uh, half a half a hunt, about 50 or so drones, 
that are tactical and reconnaissance, you know, just like those details we'll, we'll be releasing um, as a summary uh, shortly. I think uh, our, our year end is March 31st, and that's what we'll be sort of doing a quick summary as to, as to the impact. Uh, but again, that's also the past. I think uh, the future for us is is honestly doubling down on things that we know that are very much needed and are going to be highly requested um, um, by uh, the general staff in Ukraine, by the soldiers, because we're here for them. We're here for the front line, for the zero line. And so we're going to be investing a lot on uh, explosive ordnance, demining, uh, we're going to be investing a lot in um, our ability to, to change the impact of this, um, uh, of this, like of the outcomes of, towards Ukraine. And um, all I have to say is stay tuned because the scale is ten times more than what we're, you know, the, the kind of planning we're doing, the kind of conversations we're having. It's 10x the amount that we've done uh, this year, and we hope we hope that uh, all of you uh, get to join us on this journey together. Absolutely. Would you allow a few questions? I mean, uh, by the way, Reinhard, you had a question. Igor is back up, so why don't we address uh, your question, then we'll move on forward from there to uh, com uh, combat and then to Wojciech. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, hi, Igor. Um, I'm, uh, I have a question actually for my mother who doesn't speak English and she wants to uh, also contribute something. And she saw that uh, in Germany, DHL um, has this special program where you can send packages with humanitarian aid, like medicines, canned food and stuff uh, as a package to Ukraine free of charge. And um, it says that Uko Poshta would kind of distribute those on. And my question is whether um, that's really a thing, whether it's it's useful, or whether it's just a lot of um, hassle for for your organization. Whether it would be better just to donate money to to a humanitarian organization like Maria Aid, and if you could just give us a quick uh, rundown how these programs work, whether other countries do that too, and whether they are actually useful. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, you know, it's also something that we had learned along the way, uh, thanks to many people around the globe that were sending us things uh, similar to uh, Deutsche Post program. We have the same with Norway, Ireland, uh, Poland, uh, many other countries. Uh, I think it was working uh, well at the beginning when, uh, you know, we could take anything we could and uh, quickly distribute to people in need. I think by now, uh, contributing to large organizations uh, is the best way, the most efficient way to do. Because when you have now, obviously, I mean, it's uh, the reality of life. You don't have the, such a big flow of donations. So the cost to process smaller donations, to sort it out, deliver, uh, exceed sometimes the uh, amount of donations. So uh, I think going forward, uh, the best uh, way to proceed is actually as uh, pick the cause you support. Same thing we do with our stamps. We pick a few causes we support so we don't you know, overextend ourselves. Uh, and uh, this would be the, uh, the best way forward. 
Thank you. That's very helpful. And that's what I kind of expected. So, but thank you very much. Alrighty. And as we are approaching the midnight line, I just wanted to highlight one thing. Uh, Alexander's commission had sent uh, a few minutes ago a quick message and uh, I was about to refer to it. He was just finishing his work today. Uh, they had a tough day yet again at Kristallis uh, Media, and he will have to miss the opportunity of speaking to all of you today. Very proud, of course, that Igor is here today, and he hopes that we had a proper show. So the Iron Army rails on. Uh, combat. Uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are. Um, I have a question for uh, uh, Alex because well, I've known him for a while. I want you to opine a little bit on the uh, on on the future of Maria Aid, and you you kind of hinted around at it. Uh, <clears throat> we've seen in the past, uh, and I, I'm wondering if this has ever been considered. Uh, a, a lot of the smaller organizations and individuals opening up. Uh, basically Amazon gift accounts and saying, uh, you know, we need 400 sets of underwear and socks and it all gets delivered to, uh, well, Maria would be in Toronto. So we'll all get delivered there. And we just fly it, fly it to Ukraine. Has that, that ever been considered? Um, yeah. And so uh, at times, um, so Battlemus, <laughs> great to see you again, brother. Um, uh, you know, I think that's a great question, and I think um, it's similar to what Ihor mentioned uh, right now with Ukar uh, Poshta, that um, at, a, at a certain point, the sort of the uh, the type of donation or the value of the donation uh, that you know folks are super kind to to get together, and I would I will never sort of demotivate any any of those kinds of initiatives, um, and so uh, at a certain point. For Maria Aid, we had sort of um, uh, moved away from accepting those random shipments, and, and part of that is because it's very important for us to identify an end user uh, that we know really needs that um, uh, kind of kit that's being donated or those items that are being donated, and we have a home, and the stuff is going to get utilized. At the beginning of this whole thing, um, we certainly um, worked with quite a few uh, offers similar to that nature, and we pushed it, consolidated all of that um, type of kit or gear or or uh, clothing, put it into our containers, and then shipped those containers uh, to uh, Premshel, and then from Premshel uh, to Lviv, and then you know we we found. Nonprofits and, and organizations inside Ukraine to distribute that stuff. What we have found, though, is that it, you know, for for random things, for one-off things, for you know, let's use an example of you know, warm underwear or warm clothing. Unless we knew a specific group of people who really requested and needed this stuff, we couldn't accommodate um, sort of taking it onto our books and then being responsible for the shipments. The other thing is logistics costs are ever rising, right? The stuff is not actually getting cheaper to get into Ukraine. So sometimes a pack of 500 of something is actually cheaper 
to buy and cheaper to source locally in Ukraine than it is to actually pay for the logistics, even though it's already been purchased here uh, in North America. And so, so that's like, you know, economics of, of logistics and shipping gets in the way for that. The second piece is we also don't want to promote destroying the local economy and the local um, uh, sort of the businesses, small businesses inside Ukraine. Now that things have stabilized in some areas where there isn't that imminent threat and some business communities and sort of infrastructure in terms of electricity and production and commercial in infrastructure in Ukraine has stabilized, the businesses are opening up again and some of them never closed. Some of them just found ways to operate despite uh, the rolling electricity shutoffs uh, and things of that nature. And what we know from, from you know, um, like there's, there's a, a bit of a reason why we uh, talk about on our, on our, on our portal, mariaaid.org, that we are a network of experts. Some of the folks behind the scenes that, you know, don't come out to Twitter spaces, but work with us in the back, uh, have years of, of sort of nonprofit and aid and charity experience in terms of um, delivering and doing logistics. And the, uh, you know, the short end of it uh, is that a lot of times the, these well-meaning um, moves about shipping and moving actual SKUs and items into a country ends up destroying the local economy and the local the businesses because they're flooded. Uh, they're basically dumped on the market and there isn't any kind of demand for local stuff because the stuff is arriving for free. What happens after nonprofits and charities sort of stop doing that is that because the network of logistics, network of delivery of those SKUs and production of those SKUs is destroyed initially, um, it never gets picked up again. And so in a, in a, in a short period of time, it ends up leaving the place that you're trying to help in a worse off situation than before you delivered this sort of uh, a container's worth of, of uh, goods, right? And so the, the, the stuff that we can source and that we can um, get manufactured in Ukraine, Maria Aid prefers to find suppliers within the country and deal with them directly. So we use funds that we collect to go ahead and purchase things right uh, locally inside Ukraine. Again, promoting commerce, promoting business, promoting manufacturing. The stuff that is tactical, things that are certified, for example, um, our combat uh, uh, ready, uh, our com uh, combat application tourniquets, those are certified. They need to, we need to know who the manufacturer is to make sure we have the the actual real stuff, we source that in Canada. We source it from the only authorized reseller uh, of combat uh, application tourniquets, and then we deliver it, hand delivered to the folks in Ukraine who will be actually using it. So the soldiers or the, or the army unit uh, directly. So that's the balance that we try to keep. So things that can be manufactured or sourced in Ukraine, and we can sort of verify that they're high quality items, that this is something that somebody used and is relying, we, we, we tend to prefer that for stuff that requires a higher level of dependability, 
and that we have a very good relationship with the original equipment manufacturer. We source that directly from us. And so that's the general sort of long-winded answer to your question, Balamus. No, that's really sage points about preserving the economy. And I just got one more point before we jump in with Ivana that just came up, and technically it's her hour. The Canadian Leo 2A4s are now on Ukrainian soil. And I was talking to some of the Air Force personnel that transported it to Poland. I transported them to Poland, and the troops had filled the crew compartments with consumables. So they, they filled it up with rations and toilet paper and foot powder and uh, right to the gunnels. Uh, they basically went to stores and emptied it out and uh, filled all four uh, uh, Leos uh, with and, and some joke items. They threw some cigarettes in there and, and dip and whatnot, uh, stuff soldiers would appreciate. Uh, you know, Battlemus, that is classic Canadiana. Uh, we certainly fill to the brim our containers and we pack in, uh, pack in as much as we can because the, you know, once it's on the boat, it's all the same. <laughs> so we, we make sure to maximize the full use of the space. First rule of logistics, fit it all in. All righty. Alexander, just very briefly, let me just uh, recognize a friend of the space uh, and of our efforts and of Ukraine. Ivana Stratna, Dobrovece. Ivana. Oh, I need to <laughs> mute myself. I said Dobrovece. <laughs> oh, how are you doing on this momentous day, which has just ended in Ukraine nine minutes ago, the anniversary of that uh, outright attack, this absolutely the stunning move to many people of Putin. Indeed, thank you so much, you know, for organizing today's events and with so many great speakers on different topics. Um, the more we talk about that and making people aware of actually what's going on there, the sooner we will um, end Putin's brutal war. Um, it's certainly, you know, devastating to see that it's already 2023 and this has been going on every single day since February 2022, but I want to take this opportunity also to remind people that this particular war did not start in 2022, but rather in 2014. Um, so that's something, you know, that this morning uh, I reminded myself, even though it is one year anniversary uh, since last February, uh, this has been going on since 2014 and there are so many lessons um, that we need to that we need to steal uh, absolutely learn. I'm completely with you Ivana just uh, given the fact that that's also why the Biden visit was so timely and so perfect on the 20th of February wasn't it that it actually harks back to the very beginning of this arc of violence created by uh, the Russian Federation under President Putin so now let me nevertheless ask you the same question. Sure, Can please. I just jump, Jeffrey, just to, just yes, to emphasize something on that? So, I so I've been monitoring the space even before February 2022, right? When it comes to Ukraine and Russia, and um, I remember when um, last year the war—I don't want to say it started, but like continued. 
people were terrified. People didn't know what to say. People didn't know what to do. I mean, you had very confused statements coming from the West. But when Biden visited Kiev, I have to tell you, it was such a hope uh, for me um, to see how people were more relaxed, uh, making like using satire and using humor to mock Putin um, on social media platforms. They really, really gave me lots of hope uh, that people are not buying any more threats that Russia is, you know, not going to launch um, nuclear weapons and start World War III and all those statements. So um, Russia has really shown um, it's like a... It's real face, so that is not that strong and powerful as everyone, um, as everyone had thought uh, last year. Very good point. Now, Ivana, where were you on the morning of February twenty fourth last year? I was in Washington D.C. Um, and I was one of those people. And this is really not one of those moments. Oh, I told you so. But I was one of those crazy people on Twitter warning um, since the late fall of 2021 um, about potential attack in Ukraine. And the reason for that is not only because I have friends there, but also because I was trying actually to read between the lines. And I remember it was late November uh, when the Serbian president visited Putin and around the same time immediately ordered that all golden reserve had to be uh, brought back to, to Serbia. Like literally he managed that in a matter of days. Um, I never, I mean, I never seen his face, you know, so pale and so scared. And when he had that interview in late November, he stated horrible times are on the horizon. It was really around the time when he met Putin. So that was for me also the signal that something was off in addition to all the information you know, that I shared with my friends um, in, the, in this sphere. So um, as you can imagine, you know, people back then certainly you know, called me a warmonger, you know, uh, conspiracy theorist, but there were numerous um, evidence for that. And, and the problem I think with many people in the West is that, look, I grew up during wartime. So for me, I do not take security for granted. Um, I very carefully observe threats and different information, but it's hard for people to accept, especially you know, in the heart of Europe, that something like that can happen. I understand why it was immensely difficult for people to accept. And in psychology, I mean, clearly one of the ways that people deal with, with trauma and deal with fear is they just freeze. They cannot accept that it can be possible. So that was also a very harsh lesson for me to learn um, that people in the West, let me put it this way, people in the West, some analysts in the West, um, no matter how amazing information they can have or theories, still, it was immensely difficult for people to accept that. Even on February 2020, 20, like a, last February on 2024, even then people stated, oh, you know, this could be like a 
just a brief thing. No way did this can escalate into a serious war. So this is a really such warning for all of us for future um, that we should never, ever take uh, our security for granted. You're muted, Axel. Can you hear me now? All right. I think yes. 100% as a friend of mine on this place regularly says. And um, key aspect there being, I should welcome you to the club of Cassandra. Because um, it seems that uh, you and I, since a long time, have been singing off the same hymn sheet in that regard. It is despicable, if you think about it, how many signs, how many opportunities, how many signs we have disregarded, how many opportunities we failed to adhere to. The opportunity was there in 2008. The opportunity was there yet again in 2012. Uh, there were opportunities missed thereafter in the run-up to the little green men there were there was enough opportunity there was enough warning uh we knew that something was up and uh, it never see i mean never ceases to amaze me how utterly bereft of practical intelligence we have been i mean look clearly both the united states and the united kingdom i was so pleased when i saw uh that it put um, like they did a called out their uh, false flag. That was the right thing to do. But I can assure you, uh, like people in Europe, they did not believe in that. It was tremendously difficult to believe. I mean, even just if you recall all the statements by France and Germany, um, for many people, it was very difficult to to accept that as a, as a possibility. And, but they did this, Ivana. They did this uh, against you, knowledge. The German intelligence services had I mean, the know-how. They are engaged in Baltic air cap. They are part and parcel of the whole setup in Riga, in Tallinn, in Lithuania. They had the know-how. They saw the same imagery the Brits saw. They are actually working with each other. So nobody can tell us that they didn't take the same conclusions out of what Sapat showed in its preparation in March, April, then when it was carried out, and then when the Russian troops didn't recede in early September and through October. It was evident. It was clear. Everybody who saw these images understood it. They saw even the mobile crematoria as unique assets in April. And then they had to find out through humans what on earth these new little thingies would be. And they found out in summer. All of this has been collated. This is actually something they knew but seemingly the top end of that tree those people on the top simply didn't want to listen they didn't want to think that this is possible how is it how, how does that work absolutely how, how, because on from? one side you know i mean on one side you know you do have intelligence that was fantastic but the real question, and that often, you know, happens, you have intelligence, but someone needs to execute that. And it's the question of willingness. Um, and, you know, now things, you know, one year later, things are a little bit different when it comes to France and Germany. Uh, but back then, I mean, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, both France and Germany, especially Germany, had very, very strong 
economic ties with uh, with Russia, let alone um, energy dependence and and different um, energy deals, investments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this whole notion, you know, in Europe, let's do the business, and as long as we have like a business, it's impossible, you know, to have wars. Uh, this whole concept stems from the fact that the Western Europe has not suffered any serious security uh, challenge since the World War II. Um, and and it's tremendously difficult for those people even to imagine something like that. I mean, the Baltic states, they were screaming and yelling like for, for months, let alone you know, since 2014, Central Europe as well. Um, but, you know, oftentimes I like to make jokes that well, some some officials in the West, you know, they think that, well, you know, what Central and Eastern Europeans know about the world. So maybe this is this war in particular is also a good reminder that um, it's not a bad idea to listen to us sometimes. Well, we have another Eastern European here with us, Wojciech. Uh, hi, uh, if if I could, um, do you hear me well? Reasonably fine. Yes. Okay, that's that's good. If if I may, I would like to share a little bit of experience as a neighbor to to Ukraine as a Pole after the the year of the Russian invasion from my personal perspective, and also wanted to wrap up the the most important things. If there's a question in there for Ivana, absolutely. Well. I wanted to ask you, Ivana, whether your perception of, let's say, the Western unity has changed after, especially visiting the United States and the West, after the Russian invasion. Uh, because I wonder whether Ukrainians still perceive the West as not a group of states, but rather states with their own interest. and. Did you actually see a difference in posturing of those Western states towards Ukraine after after February 24th? I mean, absolutely. Uh, look, one of the things that Putin was counting for, certainly he was counting on um, this unity in the West. And if you go back and read statements carefully, that was actually the case. I mean, France and Germany, they were not on the same page like the United States and the United Kingdom. A mere fact. I mean, both France and Germany were calling for peace talks at the beginning of, uh, of Russia's invasion. Uh, there was a lot of confusion in the rest of Europe. Uh, so, and that's something that he counted on because, you know, we had Brexit in Europe. Uh, there was a failure uh, on behalf of the Biden administration when it comes to Afghanistan. Um, huge discrepancies within the European Union itself. So it was a perfect opportunity for, for Vladimir Putin to exploit this vulnerability. Um, and it took a lot of effort. And by the way, let's also not forget that uh, this transatlantic ties with, with Europe were also... Um, disturbed by, by during the Trump administration. 
especially you know, between Germany and, and the United States. So Putin wanted to exploit that vulnerability. And that was one of my main concerns. Uh, I have to admit uh, that right now I'm not concerned about that. I think the West is speaking more or less in one voice, even France and Germany. And if you follow me, you know how I've been critical of both France and Germany, but I like to give credit when it's due. Um, I think Germany's stance now when it comes to um, sending tanks um, and, and France sending other weapons, it's significantly better than um, a few months ago. Because I think that more European leaders are realizing that this war is also, if I may call it also our war. I mean, Ukraine is really fighting for all of us. This war is not about territory itself only. This war is really a war between democracy and um, an autocracy and what will prevail. And you know, when you talk about all those abstract terms, it's for some people, it's just some random abstract idealism. I don't think so. Because I am very confident to say that Putin is performing poorly on the battlefield. But I'm also very confident to, stay, to say that we need to still be very careful. There, Putin still has um, lots of cards that he can play. He can, um, he still has, he still, you know, has lots of people um, that he can, uh, that he can use. He still has enough weapons, no matter how poorly they perform. Uh, but more importantly, Putin has um Putin has also its hybrid war um, tactics uh, at his disposal. I mean, what's happening right in Moldova to me it's immensely concerning. This is the part of typical Kremlin's playbook. And just for those who are not following Moldova closely, so let me just give you a few hints what happened. So approximately two weeks ago, um, the Ukrainian intelligence, they intercepted uh, communication and they found out, you know, that uh, Russia wanted to um, organize a coup uh, inside Moldova. Uh, then Moldovan intelligence confirmed this. Um, and then a few days later, uh, there were protests uh, in, in, in Moldova on the same time. Um, the prime minister resigned. Uh, Moldova has really, really awful uh, economic issues over there. there. There is an incredible energy dependence on Russia, a lot of internal issues. It's a very poor country and very vulnerable. Let's not you know, also forget that there is, of course, the issue with Transnistria, where Russia uh, has what I like to call 1,500 peacekeepers. Um, and just two days ago, uh, Putin repelled 2012 um, a decree regarding recognizing basically Moldova's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Um, and the reason why I'm concerned about Moldova, not because Putin can actually send tanks and jets over there, but rather because that's another theater that can 
it is stabilized, and then we are going to spend our time, energy, and resources focusing on Moldova instead of having a laser focus on, on Ukraine. And Moldova is not the only one. Um, there are also numer numerous issues inside Georgia, but also in the Balkans, what's happening right now in Kosovo, for example. Uh, so he has lots of theaters that he can destabilize, not necessarily militarily, but politically, um, that can cause certain problems on, on, on the long run. Um, that's, you know, one thing that I'm concerned about. The second thing also that I'm concerned about the war in Ukraine is the continuation of the Western approach. Um, Putin wants to make this war uh, as a um, long war. And I cannot emphasize enough how it is important to send every possible weapon Ukraine needs to defend itself. The sooner we send, the more we send, the faster this war will end. And the reason why I emphasize this, because often, you know, here in, here things here in Washington, D.C., this is going to be another endless war. Why should we support this? Well, precisely because we do not want to have this endless war. We need to help Ukraine now. So that's going to be another challenge, how to battle fatigue in the West when it comes to um, the continuation of our support to Ukraine. Thank you, Elena. I would like to ask you a question. Um, so, Mike, you've just uh, ended your comment now. The role of diplomacy. How do you see Ukrainian diplomacy performing going forward? And how would you describe their performance over the last year in order to change perceptions and to reach out to governments, um, win allies, change positions, secure arms and uh, aid shipments, and even uh, their next move, uh, as announced by President Zelensky, that they should be exerting more effort to build more bridges and reach more countries in the global south? I love your question, and the reason for that is because I think we can learn so much for Ukraine when it comes to strategic communication, when it comes to building bridges, and when it comes to communicating messaging. Um, I think uh, Ukraine has done a marvelous job um, in rallying its allies across Europe, uh, but also um, in, in Canada, in Australia, in, in the United States, just name it. Uh, so I'm not concerned really about that. I'm also not concerned about, and we can talk about that later, on how Ukraine has been doing quite well in the information space when it comes to information operations, battling Russian propaganda. Um, uh, we, we can certainly talk about that. But I am actually very concerned about what's happening in Africa, what's happening in Latin America and uh, Asia, but also in some places in Europe, where Russia has been very active diplomatically. I'll just give you a very concrete example. I mean, the Russian government has visited Africa a couple of times so far. I mean, they just had conducted military uh, exercises, if I'm not mistaken, even with South Africa recently. Um, and the reason for that is because I oftentimes like to say, you know, that we in the West, that we think you know, that the world revolves around us, when in fact that's not the case. I mean, Russia 
has used offensive information operations in South Africa to accuse the United States of starting this war and uh, making Ukraine responsible for uh, food crisis in Africa, because the goal was to have a food crisis in Africa and then to have um, like a rallies and, and, and protests that will actually result in social unrest and then further destabilization through refugee crisis in Europe. Um, Russia is actively using media um, in Africa, but also Latin America using Sputnik and using RT. And look, well, the majority of us, I'm confident to say on this, um, on this call, we can laugh about Russian um, propaganda. I can assure you that there are so many countries across the globe where people do believe that the United States is operating biolabs in, um, in Ukraine, where people do believe that the United States uh, is responsible for this war, that this is a proxy war, what they like to call, and I can go on and on. I mean, I do read the news uh, in, in different parts of the world. I monitor very, very closely what uh, our team Sputnik are doing. And the reason for that is because, look, sometimes you will see like five or 10 likes on Sputnik and RT and that's irrelevant. But what is irrelevant is that they operate using different blogs, using different social media influencers. They pick up the story and then um, uh, use that in the information space. So uh, it's a very, very complex uh, situation. And I cannot emphasize enough that we do need to reach out to people in the global south um, to tell them the truth about about this war, because if this is if this war is going to uh, last longer that, than we think, um, whoever has information superiority will win this war because perception matters. Absolutely, uh, thank you, Vanna. A quick follow up. So. If we examine the United Nations General Assembly resolution on Ukraine, we would see that the countries that supported Russia are basically Syria, Iran, Eritrea, uh, another one in, in South America, I can't remember right now, uh, and uh, some countries abstained completely and others didn't vote. But one, if you look at a map, you'd see that not, not the vast majority, but a large number of countries in the global south actually stood by the resolution and uh, adopted it. So that's that's the first observation. Uh, the question is, uh, what do you make of it? Um, and the second one is that given the proliferation of social media and other technological platforms and the internet mainly, wouldn't you say that younger generations in those countries are watching and even if uh, a large percentage of them is subjected to misinformation, disinformation, they can uh, either indoctrinate them or at least uh, affect their perception by flooding them with uh, false information for a long period of time. But that at least there are things that they can see that without a shred of doubt proves that the Ukrainians are fighting a just war, that Western weapons are more advanced than 
Russian uh, weapons, that the uh, Western-trained Ukrainian forces are conducting themselves as a professional fighting force more than the Russians are, that the Russians are resorting to a criminal uh, uh, PMC to recruit convicts to just to fight in a stupid, arcane uh, method of, of waging infantry operations, such as sending human waves after human waves to gain a couple hundred meters in a trench uh, system. Wouldn't wouldn't you say that there is there's there's a great opportunity for for those younger generations to just by watching those videos and and consuming that that content that they would arrive at a different conclusion than the one that Russian uh, the the media apparatus that they had put up for the last fifteen years and propped up and spent so much money to 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 send out their message of reactionary politics and revisionism and their parallel history of version a uh, parallel version of history wouldn't you say that the, the the exposure also to those platforms can can aid those younger generations in realizing that it's all lie it's all paint and rust and and, and criminal activity so regarding your first question regarding un uh, resolution um you're right that the majority of countries actually support Ukraine, but you also need to read the text of resolution that just stated something obvious. The second thing is the negotiation um, regarding the votes in the UN General Assembly certainly requires a lot of diplomacy and internal lobbying. Um, so I have no doubt that the West, you know, has rallied its allies to help with this particular resolution. Uh, the third thing is the United Nations General Assembly resolutions are not binding, they're just political statements. So the cost for voting on one issue or the other, I mean, doesn't oftentimes change the, the calculus other than the reputation um, of, of, of a certain country to vote in a particular way in regard to its allies, whether it's Russia, whether it's the West, whether it's China. So I'm not really, for me, it's a virtue signaling. I don't pay that much that much attention to, to the UN General Assembly voting. Um, but it's also very much related to your second question. Um, that is, that I should provide you actually a very logical answer by saying, yes, you see, I mean, information is publicly available. So even people in Venezuela or people in filling the blank in, in South Africa, they should see this, they should notice these things, but that's really not how information warfare works because I am confident to say that unless someone wants to troll people on Maria Report who are pro-Russian, they don't show up in those spaces. Um, they, they prefer to listen to um, media platforms um, that resonate with their own already um, thinking. And while all of us here in this space can probably laugh about Russian claims about biological weapons, what I just stated earlier, um, I'm confident to say that such disinformation campaigns perfectly function and operate in, um, in countries um, in Africa, where they actually claim that we also have uh, bioweapons. As a matter of fact, the Russian Ministry of Defense accused us of um, developing biological weapon, um, a monkeypox, of engineering monkeypox last year, 
as a biological weapon in uh, allegedly one of our biolabs in Africa. Um, so the reason how Russia is so successful there, and this is where I actually disagree with so many um, of Russia analysts um, who are working in the field of information warfare when they claim, you know, that Russia has lost the information war. Yeah, maybe Russia has lost the information war on Twitter, uh, but Russia is actually doing quite well um, on other social media platforms um, in countries where you just mentioned in the global south, for instance, um, because they are not going to listen CNN, BBC. Um, they operate through small channels. They operate through different small blogs. They have even influential people like uh, social media influencers. They operate through, for example, um, through the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, they can operate uh, through uh, sports. They can they they have like a different tools that they can project their cell power tools and it works and that's something you know that is invisible you cannot smell this information you cannot see it you cannot touch it and this is why it's so successful because what i like to call it in military it's like a perfidy like it's something invisible but very very uh very successful and the reason why we think that we have won the information war, it is because we have done quite a good job when it comes to defensive, um, defensive measures that we have taken since last year. For example, uh, numerous Russian media platforms are banned from social media. They're banned in Europe. We, we sanction uh, different uh, Russian social media platforms and, and media, sorry, more broadly speaking. Um, but that's really not enough because um, even though RT, and I'm just making this up, might not be visible in Paris or London, um, it doesn't matter because in this context, because RT and Sputnik are perfectly functioning in all over Africa. Um, so if you follow my work, I've been actually recommending multiple times that the only way really that we can counter Russian influence operations if we go on the offensive. And look, there are numerous uh, government-linked institutions that uh, work in the information space. For example, um, the Global Engagement Center is publishing amazing reports and even this morning, he published a really outstanding report on Ukraine. But the real question is, how many people read those reports? Uh, when you look at, for example, social media platforms by the Western governments, with all, due with all due respect, they are boring to death. They're really boring. Text is very um, plainly like written, um, nothing special. Just open on your Twitter. Um, the Twitter account uh, from Russia's, sorry, Russian embassy in South Africa. They use funny memes, they write witty uh, messages uh, full of emojis, very emotional. They, they know how to reach to emotions. They really know how to um, reach to people with, with anger and, and, and 
like using different tools that they can trigger different things in your brain. I mean, this is how, you know, psychological warfare clearly works. And the West is not willing to do something like that. I'm not advocating that we should spread lies. We don't have to. The truth is really on our side. Uh, but we also need to find a way how to deliver the truth, you know, using maybe memes or using humor or using satire um, um, is one of, one of the ways. Uh, we should help all those people in the global south uh, through opening Western-linked uh, media or help every social media influencer who shares our values to give them every platform they need to help spread the message. And then finally, the real question is, what are we going to do inside Russia? Um, there is very little right now, you know, that we can do, but not because some people claim you can do nothing because the Russian media space is the Russian information space is closed. I disagree with that because, you know, technically it is possible to do, I mean, using VPN, et cetera, even though actually yesterday someone reported the VPNs are not properly functioning inside Russia um, uh, now. But it's not a question of technicality, it's the question of the messages because. We abandoned influence operations after the end of the Cold War. Okay, with lim let me put it this way. We stopped using influence operations after the end of the Cold War in the way that we were willing to use during the Cold War. I mean, the United States was really the information warfare superpower. We used uh, soft power such as, just name it, modern art and jazz and... Um, and, and, and Hollywood and Disney, just name it, as a soft power to win hearts and minds across Eastern Europe um, to deliver the messages, you know, why, what is American dream? But I'll tell you the ugly truth. The Russians don't want to live in American dream. They, they want to live in Russian dream. I mean, the rise of nationalism is so high in Russia. Uh, they very much value the work of Stalin, I mean, even... Um, this year, uh, Russia will mark the 70th anniversary of Stalin's death. They're already preparing to use that as an information operations, like domestically. And what are we doing about that? I mean, look, even in the West, everyone is focusing on uh, election interference. I'm sick and tired of that, I have to tell you, because it's only one tiny portion of Russia's information warfare playbook. Um, it's not about selecting one candidate over the other. It's much more than that. They operate through NGO, they operate through uh, sector, they operate through soft power. Um, uh, they have their own, you know, social media influencers that um, reach people in, in, in the West. I mean, it's really uh, complex. I see like a two hands up there and I've been having like my monologue on this topic for the past 10 minutes. So um, I'll just make a pause and um, you can ask me other questions. Sure. No worries. Thank you, Ivana. Let's go first for uh, Lugowski because he's been waiting and then Enda. Lugowski, please go ahead. Okay. So um, I simply wanted to ask you, Ivana, whether, um, okay, to, to be exact, what would be the, 
most pleasant surprise in terms of international politics that you've encountered, of course, towards Ukraine? And which one was the most unpleasant one? And the same question regarding the internal politics of Ukraine, whether which which event was the was the most, let's say, fa favorable to you, and which one was the saddest to experience during this year of of the Russian invasion. I okay, so I will answer your question, but if I if I miss the point, please then help me by clarifying your question. So I was really impressed. So let me put it this way. I was really, really impressed that the West put it put it acts together quite uh, quickly. Um, and I like to give a credit when it's due. Um, that's something that I did not expect um, to happen even, you know, uh, like almost after a year. But nevertheless, I think at least now we're on the same page. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to uh, Russia's brutal war in Ukraine, uh, the part that I'm not happy is that once again America is saving Europe. It's needless to say uh, how much I want United States to help. I'm just very disappointed. In France and Germany, they had once again an opportunity to lead European security, and they failed. And the reason why I'm emphasizing this as a matter of, again, because a very similar scenario happened in the Balkans 30 years ago. Uh, we know, you know, what happened um, uh, with, with Georgia and then Ukraine back in 2014. And we are talking about wars on, on European soil. So this is something that I, I wish that France and Germany didn't act in that way. I think things are going better, but uh, still they're not, uh, they're not performing. Um, they're, not, they're not doing their best, let me put it that way. Um, what Ukraine did properly, uh, Ukraine is immensely courageous country with courageous people. Um, and that determination to continue to fight and not to give up is something that I truly, truly admire. I think what it did poorly is that even within Ukraine, people did not believe that Russia would invade. Um, I remember, again, that I was warning about this with a few other friends here in the United States, and we were accused by some, some of our friends in Ukraine that we are um, spreading fear and panic. And again, I understand, you know, when you're in such situation, it's psychologically, that's how people deal with, with threats by ignoring them. But I wish that uh, Ukraine was more vocal and uh, about uh, possibility of, of attack prior to, to February. Thank you, Vera. Uh, Rogorski, does this answer your question? 
Yes, definitely. Thank you very much. And I hope that we will soon be the witnesses of the end of this war. And I send you uh, greetings and cheers from Poland. We are still supporting you in every way we can. And I believe that soon even more equipment from Poland will come to Ukraine as our military industry and also our government are signing new deals. Thus, the post-Soviet equipment and everything modern that we can spare will also be delivered to Kiev. Stay safe and best of luck. Thank you so much, Poland. All right, and please go ahead. Good evening. Um, I'm kind of returning a bit to what you discussed earlier. Um, and I was wondering about two things. One of them is if you see that other countries um, around Ukraine, I'm, I'm thinking of, of Georgia, um, namely at this point, um, which has gone basically through the same thing as Ukraine uh, some, some years prior. Um, could help Ukraine at the international level um, with information on what the uh, the information warfare was in their time. And um, I'm saying this because, um, for example, um, the biolabs, um, they were accused that that they have biolabs also, right? So this is this is something that this is um, an old um, topic, an, an an old thing, uh, right? Um, apparently, all the biolabs are in in former um, USSR countries uh, that Russia wants back. So. At the international, why am I asking this? When you hear, when you hear a lie once, you may ha have a doubt in your in your mind, right? Well, we don't know much about that country. It's an isolated country for most of the West. They don't know um, much about the Eastern countries. Um, some of them don't know where, where the, the capital is or which is the capital city of, of, of most Eastern countries uh, in Europe. So I'm, I'm not talking like on the same continent we are talking, right? Um, so when you hear a lie and you have no data and you have no reason to uh, distrust the source, um, and probably there is the um, television uh, for older population, for example, because you have different uh, channels addressing different um, age groups. Um, you don't ask yourself uh, about that, right? But if former countries um, that have had problems uh, same problems with, with Russia, like Georgia and Moldova, um, could come out, uh, could um, 
lay out some of the the topics, the narratives that were used in their countries and around their countries uh, in the past 30 years. Do you think that would um, change um, the perception outside? Because you, you, there is a pattern, right? Absolutely. And I thank you so much for this question because you're absolutely right that the narrative of biolabs is not new. I mean, I already think I discussed on Maria Report once, but I'm going to repeat um, also today that this narrative of biolabs is as old as the Cold War. I mean, there was a famous operation in Denver uh, during the Cold War where the Soviet Union um, accused the United States of engineering HIV as a um, as a weapon that targeted specifically black population, um, basically as a ethnical weapon, and they used uh, that propaganda um, in Africa, in Asia. It started actually in India, and then it spread. You know, during uh, using like a regular media because back then, of course, you know. Um, there was not like a social media platforms to uh, uh, to rally uh, Russian uh, allies around that topic. Um, why that matters to talk about that today? Because nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed is is actually um, so is actually technology. Because let me give you another example. Last year in May. So 2021, the Russian Ministry of Defense accused the United States of engineering monkeypox, allegedly, in one of our biolabs in Africa. Uh, the Russian government openly talked in front of the United Nations about American uh, biolabs uh, that used... Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think they, they stated that we used uh, COVID swabs to uh, take like a, um, a DNA uh, uh, from, uh, from people to develop specifically a bioweapon that would target the Slavic population. Then they stated that we trained migratory birds. Then they accused us of using uh, drones. Uh, I'm confident to say I'm missing so many uh, fairy tales from the Kremlin, but the latest one actually happened two weeks ago when Russia, again, the Russian Minister of Defense accused us of uh, running um, biolabs. Uh, and that campaign is going over and over again. And Anda, you're absolutely right. Because once you hear the lie, you may think, you know, this is a crazy thing. But once you hear the same thing over and over again for 30 years, you start believing in that. And only that, you know, well, we can all laugh about biolabs. The reason why they're doing that is actually to show um, in the rest of the world that the United States is a nefarious actor. Uh, and the United States should not be, you know, someone that uh, they should trust. And the narrative is, okay, you know, maybe we are bad, but you see the United States is also uh, not good either. And the way that it functions, they took the piece of the truth and they combine it with the lies. So let me go back to tell you the story about monkeypox, what it did. So they developed, so, so 
I literally woke up one day and I saw on Twitter hashtags, monkeypox, bioweapons. I was like, what the hell is going on there? So I opened, I think it was published in uh, Zvezda, uh, uh, which is Russian media, uh, that the Russian Ministry of Defense, they, they claim, you know, that we developed, that we engineered monkeypox. And then in other media platforms, I was able to notice that they claimed, okay, so, and this is a real story. Now this is a real, like a real, real story because the year later in 2021, uh, there was um, um, a war game, actually they call it the tabletop game, on how to prevent another pandemic. Uh, and they used monkeypox as, as an example. And there were numerous leaders coming from uh, from from the, like from the United States, but also other countries, um, were playing, you know, this game, and allegedly that monkeypox pox, pox outbreak was supposed to start in May 2022 and kill hundreds of thousand million, uh, hundreds of thousand people. So this is a real story. So it was like a just a tabletop game, and the results were published. And coincidence or not, in May 22, suddenly there is an outbreak, monkeypox outbreak. So the Russian government accused the United States of engineering a monkeypox, and they put, you know, the truthful part. They claim, oh, you see, but they even played like a tabletop game a year later. That's how they operate. And then, unless you are someone who is monitoring their lies 24-7, as I do, you may think that there is some truth into that. And then, you know, then they use the way that it operates. Um, they use different blogs. They use different uh, social media influencers to spread these narratives. So, and it is successful. When you think about, you know, information warfare, do not ever use your brain. Like, try to think like your enemy. Try to think, you know, in the context of their culture, of how they process information, of how they how they think. Because the way that the Russian government is waging information war, it, def- it differs from the region to, to the region. They're not putting the same narrative and messages elsewhere. And I don't want to go, you know, too deep into the context of biological warfare and disinformation, uh, campaigns. I just want to give you a very concrete example to tell you how they operate. And now I want to connect this to what you just mentioned, uh, what happened in Georgia. One of my greatest disappointments when it comes to uh, fighting disinformation campaigns is that the West was tremendously naive for many, many, many years. And every, suddenly, in 2016, everyone started like talking about you know Russian disinformation campaign because of their, their influence operations in the US elections. But what we see right now is nothing really new. Russia has been using um, active measures even during the Cold War, let alone, I mean, what happened in Ukraine in 2014 was in large part successful because of influence operations because look even if the russian military 
Shoigu openly claims that information is a weapon. So that is his sentence. I'm citing him, like I'm not paraphrasing. Verbatim, like uh, information is a weapon. If the Russian military believes that they value uh, non-kinetic to kinetic, um, uh, non-kinetic to kinetic measures, four to one, we should believe them. If they claim who has information uh, superiority will win the war, believe them when they say it. But Ivana, is it, here, is it fair know, to say that they are still essentially like a swarm of mosquitoes? And that we are, oh, that we are still yes. the elephant? I forgot about that one. I told you, I told you. I mean, there are so many fantasies. I forgot about that one. Correct. Yeah. Totally. And the thing is, look, look, I see so many people laughing, you know, on these spaces. And I, you know, when I read those things, I laugh as well. But I can tell you, people across the world do believe that this is correct. Because they always combine the part of, uh, the part of lie with the part of the truth. And how they spread information um, in information space, like uh, repeating over and over and over again, that's how, you know, psychologically you start believing in that. And let me, let me tell you also this thing. Um, uh, if the Russian government, and Shoigu actually openly stated this three weeks ago, he accused the United States of waging uh, psychological war against Russia, if only, um, Maybe we should do it. I mean, they already believe that we are doing that, but we are not doing that. What we are doing, we certainly, you know, have different uh, uh, different defensive measures to protect ourselves, you know, from disinformation uh, campaigns. So let me tell you also this story. Like, I always hear, you know, we need to build resilience. We need to teach people, you know, how to read the news. We need to teach young people, you know, uh, to, to differentiate between a false information um, and the reality. Look, that's all wonderful. Uh, that's all great. We should absolutely be doing that. But I also firmly believe that we should be doing much more when it comes to offensive information operations. And this is, I think, where Ukraine has done a marvelous job uh, because they can use humor and satire and memes their government really hosts to win hearts and minds of people across the globe. I mean, I'm oftentimes laughing, you know, at their uh, uh, tweets, you know, how witty they are and how um, how easy approachable those messages are. So, Anda, thank you so much, you know, for asking this question because this is just a good reminder that information warfare is a tremendously powerful tool. And that's something that I deeply deeply care about because they use the Russian military operates both on the operational and a tactical level in the information space. Um, and I wish the West had more courage to do the same thing, not by spreading lies because the truth is on our side and we should be doing that. Uh, we have so many opportunities. If I may just use another example. So CSTO uh, what I like to call the Russian version of, of NATO. Uh, uh, so Armenia, that is part of CSTO, they asked Russia for help uh, last September 
um, in the context of its conflict with Azerbaijan. So they asked CSTO to help them. And CSTO, uh, in particular, of course, Russia, putting they threw them under the bus, they didn't want to help them. Why on earth we did not use that opportunity to show the world and to show actually Russian allies how Russian friendships work, uh, how the Kremlin is using um, its friends, uh, that it's unreliable partner, today in security, tomorrow in business. We do not need to spread lies. We should just emphasize the truth. Uh, there are so many, you know, other examples that I can use, but I don't want to block this, you know, uh, uh, space by giving all those um, examples that I personally care about. So I see other hands up. So I just want to give an opportunity for other people to ask questions. Thank you, Enda, and thank you, Ivana. I really admire your passion. Let's go to Plemen and then Machi and then Dave. Plemen, please go ahead. Thank you, um, Ivana. I can only applaud your your depth of knowledge and uh, and 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 your wisdom in this respect. I think you are absolutely spot on on the subject of the uh, information warfare which Russia is waging on us for more than 20 years, uh, actually never stopped doing that. And um, I think you're absolutely right. And, and people should be really made aware about the dangers and, and actually the threat currently being developing before our own eyes. And, and I, I just wanted to mention a, a very anecdotal example. After the earthquake in Turkey, there was a wave of messages in some social media saying, well, this is HAP related. The HAP caused that. It was the Americans who caused the earthquake. Well, not visible in the Western Europe, not visible in Canada or US, but it was there. It was in the rest of the world. So this, this, is, this is something which is ongoing. This sort of fairly disruptive, fairly evil lies are being spread throughout the, uh, throughout the globe. And I just want to make another comment. You, you spoke about uh, Russians um, engaging influencers, but they are not engaging only influencers. They're engaging journalists. We have even a, an example of a Canadian journalist literally doing the work of, of the Russian. Uh, I don't want to go into that one, but uh, there are a couple of other examples. And we all know that, for example, the ultra-right in Europe are funded directly by the Kremlin. Uh, Marie Le Pen, De Wilders, a couple of others, a couple of the Italian ultra-right, they all have connections to the Kremlin. They, they've got funded, and they, they continue to be linked to them. And let's not forget as well some of the other ultra-left ultra uh, movements, which are as well linked to the Kremlin and continue being funded and, and have very deep links with that. And I would say this is not only information warfare, but this is really a, a total failure of our secret services who, are, who have allowed the enemy to fund uh, politicians and, and, and journalists and, and really undermine our society. And it's, it's getting out of the pure information warfare. It's getting in the real world as well. So thank you very much for your passion. And, and really, I think you're absolutely right. We are, we are losing that war if we are not careful. We are actually on the losing end there. We, we see it in the West that we have somehow managed not to be completely swamped under those lies. But if you look at the, the rest of the world, the South, the Far East, 
nobody knows. And actually, they're very active. Thank you. Clement, thank you so much for, for your uh, kind comments and spotted analysis on uh, on the situation in Turkey, because I literally wanted to interrupt you when you mentioned Turkey and to say, I saw an information space uh, disinformation related to HARP. And this is nothing, again, new. They've been using the question of HARP for years about, you know, the destabilization of, of the weather, that it is uh, American intelligence, actually American military tool to control the weather. It, it, and, and, and it works because, again, the fact that we don't believe in such thing on these spaces, people across the world uh, are very, very much, so let me put it this way, Russia has been working over the past at least 20 years continuously in the information space using the internet uh, to, to control the information space and to control the narrative. Because look, let me tell you one thing. You do not, I don't have any, you know, secret information here, you know, that you cannot find online. All you really need to do is to open your, uh, open uh, the Kremlin's website and to read the information, uh, how Russia defines um, the information war. Uh, everything is crystal clear over there. Believe them when they say it. Second thing, when Putin came to power, the first thing that happened was that security, uh, 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 information security uh, doctrine was adopted in which he emphasized the importance of protecting Russian information space from the Western interference. Because in the eyes of Putin, uh, the wars in the Balkans during the 90s, right before he came to power, were purely information war. And then, you know, if you read carefully, then they talk about protecting uh, Russian spiritual and moral values. And then if you read later on um, other documents, then they uh, develop even further, you know, what is what are Russian spiritual and moral values, um, uh, how they are going to protect themselves from the Western um, color revolutions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I mean, 2021, uh, the latest national security strategy. I don't know what part of that strategy is not clear to the West. Look, uh, for the first time, Russia's national security strategy devoted a separate section on information security. What part of that section is not clear for people in the West? Everything is like a crystal clear over there. If they call, you know, information as a weapon, if they, you know, if the Russian, if the Russian government openly is talking about information warfare troops, I don't understand what part of that is not clear. I do understand what is not clear, that Russian, um, Russian nuclear weapons are visible. Russian information weapons are not visible. And that sort of deception that is, by the way, Russian whole military strategy designed around deception is a critical component of uh, the Russian information warfare strategy uh, for, uh, for the West, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Plamina, you wanted, to, you wanted to add something. 
Yes, um, I just wanted to say you're absolutely right. And, and you said it at the very beginning, I believe. Um, information warfare, it might seem uh, benign at the surface, but actually, because we are democracies, if they turn around enough people, we will stop supporting Ukraine. We'll stop supporting and sending weapons. And that was one of their immediate goals. But they're, they're widening the scope. They're, they're reaching out to the BRICS. They're reaching out to the developing countries and so forth and so on. And they're creating extremely hostile environment for the West to operate in. And this, will, and this will have a very direct kinetic impact on us in the sense that we remember how the let's say the the vietnam war was stopped public opinion turned against it and it was stopped because we are democracy and that was could happen to the to the support for ukraine it's extremely important that we protect ourselves because this war could be won on this information battlefield and i i remember a very well again anecdotal uh, stuff from sun Tzu, i believe who said that uh, wars are actually won in the temples, not only on the battlefield. And they are winning on the fucking in the fucking temple. Excuse my French. But I really get agitated because it is the fucking temple. You have to say it with the right <laughs> mangled accent. Oh, yes. Okay. I will remember next time. <laughs> but, but Yeah. Sorry for interrupting you here, but look, why do we need to even read Sun Tzu? Let me just read you what Chekinov and Bogdanov stated. They are Russian analysts. So, so I'm reading one sentence. In the ongoing revolution in information technologies, information and psychological warfare will largely lay the groundwork for victory. What part of that sentence is not clear to people in the West? Let me then read you exactly directly from the Russian, from the Russian uh, Minister of Defense, uh, their definition of information warfare. So it is the confrontation, I will just keep one tiny line because it's a very long, between the two or more states in the information space with the goal of inflicting damage to information systems, processes, and resources, as well as to critically important structures undermining political, economic, and social systems, carrying out mass ecological campaigns, and there is a long story, like, in order to destabilize society and the government. What part of that definition is not clear to the West? I have no idea, but clearly we are not doing enough. And it, no, and we are not. Politics. No, we are not. And that's, you know, exactly what I emphasized at the beginning of this conversation. If Putin openly claimed that he wants this war to be protracted, the only way that he can do that is to make sure that the West does not support Ukraine. And the only way that he can achieve that is through information warfare, period. By winning hearts and minds, let me put it that way, like uh, metaphorically, and rally its allies in the information space, because perception matters. Look, every time I speak with people in real report, majority of people are on the same page, at least, you know, when it comes to the big questions, the details and, you know, methodologies sometimes differ. But this is not the only space where I operate. You will be very, very surprised to hear, even in the heart of Europe, how people believe still that this war is American proxy war. 
let alone in other places where we do not have, that are not American-friendly countries, for example. Okay, I see other questions, uh, other people need to ask questions, so uh, please go ahead. Can I just shoot one thing into this? Because what you just described, um, Putin needs to win time, and he thinks he can do so by uh, pressing on the soft elites in the West. And an outcome of this and an outcry of this was the media campaign and mainstream media in the US today, where nearly all television channels came up with those parts of the elites who are already exhausted, who are trying to uh, project a need for, um, shall we say, reconciliation, who want to support the French position of uh, providing NATO light to Ukraine and the likes. Negotiations, because the war is not moving and all that kind of jazz. Yeah, well, please, move your weapons faster and the war comes to a close faster. More weapons and faster, Ukraine wins more quickly. Ukraine, Ukraine wins evidently anyway, but if you obviously fail to supply Ukraine with weapons, then you can be conducive. You could say aiding and abetting in criminal law terms, you could be conducive to Ukraine um, ending in a conflict which, as often projected, is a Russian war. The Russian way of war is to have a kinetic conflict, then freeze it and reopen it, freeze it and reopen it, so that over time uh, the other side is just exhausted, be it mentally, politically or economically. And that needs to stop. Absolutely. Um, and uh, this is exactly, you know, why Russia will continue uh, to use information operations to rally its ally, to make sure that the West is exhausted and not willing to fight more. And as I mentioned you at the beginning of, of this conversation, if there is one person in this world who hates uh, um, endless wars, it is me. And I don't want this war to be an endless war. And this is why, precisely why we need to send every possible weapon as soon as possible to end this war quickly. So, look, given the question about World War III narratives and nuclear weapons narratives, et cetera, et cetera, it is part of Russia's ecological warfare because Putin understands very well what resonates with people in the West. People in the West, especially those in power, do remember the Cold War very well. And it's deeply like in their mind, uh, those nuclear weapons fears, when they think of Armageddon, all those pictures, you know, how nuclear wars can look like, it scares people. And Putin knows this thing. And this is why he wants to deter people in their minds. And he's successfully doing that. I mean, a few days ago, again, you know, World War III was trending on, on, on social media platforms. Where does this come from? Okay, I see other people wanting to ask questions. Sure, Ivana. And also to add uh, a very short comment regarding this whole proxy war thing. If someone says, oh, this is a proxy war, play with them, okay? This is how I deal with it personally. This is what I say. Oh, yes, it is a proxy war. 
And I was like, yeah, so you can see that the West is giving Ukraine weapons to attack Russia. I was like, yes, I can see that the West is giving Ukraine weapons to attack Russia. But do you know the definition of a proxy war? A proxy war is when country A supplies a state or a non-state actor to attack country B. Now, the Ukrainians are not attacking the Russians because the Ukrainians are using the weapons supplied to push back the Russians out of their southern borders and back into their own country. So it's not really a proxy war. It is the fact that Russia started this conflict, started this crisis by waging hybrid warfare against Ukraine in, back in 2014, and then went ahead and fully invaded Ukraine in an illegal and an overt invasion in 2022. So you want to see it as a proxy warfare? Go ahead. All the math, all the equations, they sum up to a different reality than the reality that's being pushed by the Russian talking points. And with that said, I would like to welcome Machi. It's good to see you here. Uh, Machi, please go ahead. Yeah, hello, um, hello, Axel, hello, everybody, long time no see. Uh, so great to be here. I'm just, I just wanted to say that that Muya report has has a way of selling itself short. You call in this uh, 24 hour marathon, when in fact it's a yearly marathon, 24 hours every day for forever. So kudos to everybody who keep the the ship running, and I have the the greatest respect for all of you, and, and thank you for for being here. I actually have a question for Ivana and just just kind of picking back on uh, what M was asking like I don't know 2 hours probably ago but about the Ukrainian diplomatic efforts and and one thing that really interests me and especially from my point of view from Poland where we of course have a huge contingent of of Ukrainian uh, refugees, but also uh, a lot of Belarusians actually who who left Belarus after you know the repressions of the Lukashenko regime. I I I I, I seem to think uh, that there is a, a certain kind of tension between, uh, uh, and I and I begin to notice that from the beginning of the war, where where some of the members of the Ukrainian civil society were kind of dismissive of Belarusian opposition and saying. We had Maidan, you guys didn't really do much to oppose, probably, and I understand the emotions, and uh, they were probably angry that, that you know, Belarus uh, as a state was aiding and abetting the, the aggression and taking part in it. And But I also feel like the, the Ukrainian um, officials and authorities are kind of dismissive towards the, let's say, official opposition or, you know, of Chikanuska and, and the like. What is your point of, do you have a theory on that? Why is that? Or is that just, uh, I don't know, uh, some some kind of my perception? Look, I cannot assess why Ukraine um, has such a pers perspective when it comes to the opposition from, from Russia um, and Belarus. Uh, I don't like to talk about things that... I don't have any evidence for, uh, but I can only tell you, you know, my assumptions and what to do about that. Uh, actually, I will use a very concrete examples. Like uh, I remember recently, uh, even Russian opposition media in the Baltic states was shut down because uh, they put forward some nationalistic messages uh, on, on media. Uh, and that was one of the moments, you know, when the West claimed, you know, you see, they are not like a real opposition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
I actually think it was a very poor move to close uh, media. Uh, and this is why. If you want to deliver a message inside Belarus or Russia, you cannot use the same pro-democratic messages that we use in the West. That will never resonate with people there. Uh, in, inside Russia, you have a situation that almost 60% of people believe that Stalin was a great leader. 50, last time when I checked, uh, statistics, is, it was 56%. Do you really believe that inside Russia, um, in such an environment, you can change the perception of people? No. Um, I wrote a piece a few months ago uh, on how we should actually exploit nationalism inside inside Russia concretely and how our messages should be crafted in a way that they resonate with people um, that support nationalism inside Russia. Uh, for example, to talk how Putin is losing this war, to talk about how Putin um, has ruined the greatness of Russia because they want to live in the great Russia. They want to live in, you know, the Russian dream. And we should send them, sell them the Russian dream, you know, suits our interests. So that's, you know, my point when it comes to when it comes to the opposition. I'm sure that I did not answer your question fully because, as I said, I don't have information why so, you perceive that. I know one thing, you know, that that is that they, they, they certainly believe, and this is where I agree, that after Putin, there will be another Putin. I don't believe that anytime soon there will be democracy in Russia. I'm quite certain about that. And that is in part, again, because we meet so many opportunities um, after the end of the Cold War to make changes inside Russia. Uh, there is also Russian imperialism that is deep-rooted in, in the Russian education system, et cetera, et cetera. The second thing is, while everyone loves to talk about some, you know, old people, babushka sitting, you know, in a Russian village and watching Russian national TV, I frankly don't care about that. You know what worries me even more? Russian youth. And Aaron Gardner, uh, our friend, mere friend, uh, who was actually on Maria Report here with me once. He's publishing very soon an amazing book on Russian youth. Uh, that is, this is why I'm not very positive about changes inside Russia, because nationalism is not only filling people inside Russia, uh, uh, older generation, I'm significantly more concerned about the future of Russia with the younger generation, let alone, you know, people who live in the West, they love to um, enjoy Western uh, lifestyle, but deep inside, uh, they are very proud of Russian imperialism. And that is the result of decades and decades of psychological warfare inside Russia by the Russian governments, not the Russian government, particularly Putin, it has been going on for decades. Thank you, uh, Ivana. And before we continue the conversation, I uh, will, will be stepping in. So, uh, great to have you, Ivana, and great to have asked you uh, a couple of questions and heard your answers and uh, heard the discussions 
uh, after other people ask their questions as well. Uh, Alan will be taking over, uh, manning uh, the fort with Axel, who has been running a fantastic, a very admirable marathon. Kudos to you, Axel, and uh, to our listeners and to the team and everyone participating. Again, thank you, Ivana, and uh, good night, everyone. See you soon. Good night. Thanks, Dan. Ivana, we still have hands up for you, so if you're ready for it, um, let's cycle through them. Yeah, still have time like for two or three questions. Perfect. Absolutely. So let's do this, and I'll get uh, Alan up at uh, the same time. So let's start with Gunther, then Dave, and then Ivana. Gunther. Hi, Dobro Vece, Hala. Thank you so much. Um, so there's a sort of a Grima worm tongue who sort of whispers into uh, Elon's ear. And I was in a space recently and he claimed that, uh, you know, NAFO was being funded by the CIA of $100 million, which was caused a lot of mirth and merriment. But on a serious note, if I'm going to write my congressman, uh, excuse me, congressperson, uh, uh, and ask them to say maybe we should we should fund these these efforts, like how much, if the U.S. put $100 million into countering misinformation, like how much of a difference would that make? Like what is required to counter uh, the nonsense and the lies? I love your question. And first of all, I, I want to make a joke regarding NAFO. So uh, basically, you know, the Russian even government has been waging this whole campaign about, you know, NAFO being the part of CAA. And I loved, you know, last year when uh, there was uh, CAA actually, uh, they, 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 they published a tweet, uh, uh, something along those lines. Uh, what animals uh, do we like to like uh, hire for CAA? And then hundreds and hundreds of dogs starting trolling CAA. You know, it's us. You are run by us you know, using humor and satire. So uh, that's part of uh, that, that. That's part of the funniest story uh, when it comes to disinformation, like a fighting disinformation campaign, how it works using humor and satire. But now seriously, money is not an issue. You know what is the issue? Courage and responsibility. And I'll tell you exactly what I mean by that. A few weeks ago, Actually, no, a few months ago, um, I think it was Twitter that they shut, no, Facebook that they shut down American inauthentic accounts. Um, uh, and what I talk about American, I mean uh, American um, DOD accounts that were operating in the information space. And then, you know, there were some rumors that it will be like an investigation. And they like a shut down like 30 accounts. Look, let me put things very clearly in a very straightforward manner. If the issue is 30 accounts, like 30 bots or, or trolls, whatever, they were running, um, and that requires now, you know, for people to be investigated, that's a huge problem because I cannot even imagine in inside Russia, for, for the sake of the argument, GRU, to run information campaign, and then on, on Telegram, and uh, Telegram calls, you know, uh, shuts down those those uh, operations. Like that's not even possible. So I do understand why risk aversion in the United States is omnipresent. People would risk so much 
by uh, launching, you know, such such campaigns. Because on one side, you have social media platforms that are not helping us. On the contrary, they will shut down those operations. And you know what I always like to to joke about? I'm not upset that they were. I'm not upset that you know they, they were shut down. I was upset that DOD was not launching. Uh, was not waging properly information operations and they were caught. <laughs> like that was that was something you know that uh, that that I like to to joke about. But now on a serious note, uh, I don't think that money is is an issue. I mean, you do have like a, a global engagement center that I just mentioned. They're publishing outstanding reports, uh, but that's not really enough. I mean, I have no idea, you know, what American intelligence is doing in this space, but I don't see that they are doing uh, that they are doing much. I mean, go back to the Cold War, um, which is my favorite um, era when it comes to information warfare. The United States had a vision; they had courage; they have outstanding executive orders uh, uh, to fight Russia in the information space, and uh, the Cold War was when in part, in large part, thanks to American uh, information operations. And Russia knows this. Putin remembers, and this is precisely why he has been investing tremendous resources in the information, uh, in the information space. Um, so just to conclude, I firmly believe that money is not an issue. It's rather the issue of uh, of willingness to take lots of risks, especially in digital era and new technologies in fighting our enemies um, in, this, in this space. Actually, I want to add one more thing. And I think this is also tremendously important where I think the United States has been failing tremendously. You know, here in the U.S., I've noticed we always fight Democrats versus Republicans. And that's exactly what Russia wants us to do. We perceive, uh, we perceive problems in, information, uh, in the information space as a matter of domestic issue. But it's not a question of domestic issue. It is the question of international issue. Both Democrats and Republicans have the same enemy, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's, whether it is, uh, uh, or Iran in information space. And Russia wants us to fight each other. I mean, that's another, you know, thing that the Russian military has. It's called reflexive control, where basically you make certain, um, certain choices and decisions that you think that they are benefiting you while actually they are benefiting Russia. So I don't want to go, um, in those theoretical lenses, but tremendously important uh, how Russian military perceives that and how they are uh, manipulating us. Um, and we are unfortunately failing to, to notice that. All right, so I'd say we go to Dave. Yeah, thanks. Um, can you hear me? Perfect. Okay, perfect. Because actually my um, question slash suggestion um, is very much uh, yeah, regarding your last comments as well. So 
I was thinking, you know, regarding countering Russian um, operational warfare in third countries, especially Africa, Middle East, and yeah, Latin America, for example. So, I mean, we saw what had quite some success, this whole NAFO thing, you know, in the West, because it's like decentralized, it motivates people because it's funny, but it works on Twitter um, because everybody speaks English. So we, so this kind of thing cannot be replicated in the same manner that way um, in, in other countries, you know, where we don't even speak the language, you know, maybe some people speak Spanish, I also speak Spanish, but um, how about, wouldn't be like an organization like Myria 8 or something, you know, like the perfect thing to set up like a project and a website where people who have some knowledge in these countries um, kind of um, research texts, you know, where people like like myself who are interested can inform ourselves, okay, what is the information situation, you know, the Russian uh, information warfare, the whole situation like in, I don't know, Namibia, for example, you know or Venezuela, and what are their talking points, you know, what are their amplifiers, which kind of social media networks do they use? And because especially in the in the in the modern day of internet, you know, with Google Translate, I mean, you have even plugins in your web browser, and you can post some easy, you know, uh, manuals, how to implement this in your browser, everybody can basically translate and also write text and, and post on these platforms then, you know, and you can gather information with typical posts, typical talking points, and then, yeah, and then the people they hire, you know, so that just, just if, if thousands of people will suddenly follow some kind of Nigerian sports star who's regularly paid, you know, by Russia to spread disinformation and we start to counter, you know, by, by simply copy pasting templates regarding his talking points, you know, I, I think, I, I think something like this, like a website that is feeded um, with this kind of information where somebody can just click on it and 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 basically get um, a copy or paste template and go on some some social network or to counter Russian disinformation. you know I, I think that could be that could that could work, you know, of course, with some moderators like Wikipedia, you know, so some people need to moderate the content and research stuff. But um, yeah, so kind of in a centralized mm -hmm. and decentralized manner, countering this um, operational warfare. I, mean, I, I would think that is very interesting. For example, for me, South America would be an interesting thing. If other people would, you know, what, how, how, what do you think about this idea, people in general? So I think it's a very ambitious pr project. And the reason why NAFO is so successful, it is because it is a grassroots movement. It is decentralized. Uh, I don't know, like, as I stated, you know, I think it's a very ambitious project in terms of time, energy, and resources, and people who would do that um, just for the sake of volunteering. Uh, I, I never thought about that. I always uh, think, you know, that the, the fact that you would be doing, I admire, you know, for your time and energy. Uh, but I always think, you know, that the best countering uh, narratives come from people who actually come from the particular culture, who understand what makes people tick, what makes people angry, what makes people um, emotional, what makes people just filling the blank, how, how they process information, et cetera, et cetera. So I would rather, you know, love to see someone from the, let's say, pro-Western people in South Africa uh, 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 who would run, you know, such projects or, or, or join NAFO or other similar projects 
um, to do this type of uh, to do this type of work. Uh, but as I said, I don't know. You know, I don't know what the West is doing in those countries and how they are supporting the information uh, space in terms of. I mean, let me put it bluntly: if Russia has social media influencers cooperate on social media platforms. I think we should give every opportunity to every person in those countries who share our values and to give them the platforms and the tools uh, to speak and to and to um, and to share the truth. So I would rather, you know, love to see people within those countries uh, to fight this information rather than have it as a centralized system, uh, because I've never seen something like that before. And I don't know how it would work. I'm not saying they would not work, but it would be a serious effort. And not everyone is passionate and understand the severity of this problem just uh, like you. Yeah, I mean, I understand what you mean, but and it would have these elements, you know. I mean, you would, you would for example, the moderators or other people who are really organizing this or really, you know, put effort behind this would contact um, you know, pro-Western NGOs or whatever, or um, experts in in these countries, and then and then you know they can already um, give an interview or something where they where they list the the typical talking points, and then you can can get people from these countries engaged, you know, and then to to create content, um, to you know upload typical Russian talking points and who is spreading what or what kind of images and all these kind of fakes you know so I think this is a thing that that, that would grow like Wikipedia grows or yeah yeah, growing, yeah. You know? yeah yeah I know for example even to upload certain memes and certain you know messages that people can download and then you know post that's you know certainly you know something something possible but as I stated um I'll just give you also a very concrete message, like a very concrete, like a recent message. Uh, I've noticed that there are a lot of people in comments um, on Russian embassy in the United States or Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs, they claim you are a war criminals, you're a group of war criminals, you wage illegal wars, you should all end up, you know, in Hague. Let me tell you the ugly truth. The Russian Minister of Defense couldn't care less about international law. And they couldn't care less whether you're going to call them war criminals or not. Every time when they accuse the United States of waging illegal war, what I like to call in, in, in Iraq or just fill in the blank elsewhere, uh, then you know, see people in the comments using typical Western narratives, but you are the ones you know who wage illegal war, I don't know, in Georgia. No. The message that we should send them, and this is going to sound so brutal to many of you probably will be appalled when I say this. When every time when Russia is using a narrative, you're waging an like illegal war, like the United States has violated international multiple times, you should just tell them, yeah, I mean, the United States is a superpower, strong, do what they can, weak, suffer what they must. And they will go crazy, and I'll tell you why. Because there is nothing they can respond to that. They firmly believe in multipolar system. They hated the United States uh, as a once, I mean, they will live still, you know, in a unipolar world. 
Um, and you have to send them a message that starts with their assumptions to confirm them and to mock them. They hate that. They go crazy. They literally go crazy. Uh, I remember, you know, <laughs> I said it once, if, if Russia wants to make if Russia wants to make America great again, let's make Tatarstan great again. Uh, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they go nuts when you post things like that. I mean, even uh, Maria Zakharova, uh, when, I, <clears throat> when I actually wrote in a piece where I explained how we should use the information operations uh, to help Tatarstan, fight for its rights and to even help them succeed because that's what they want, right? So they went crazy and they accused me of providing guidance to collaborators, like the Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs. They claim, you know, that my article provided a guidance to collaborators. And that's because I used humor. That's because, you know, I heard them where it hurts most. And the reason why I wrote this, because I understand very much that culture. I cannot even think of Many people in the West who, who would, I mean, you have to really, I don't want to say that I'm a nasty person, but you have to be bold to say, let's make that Earth great again. And this is, you know, how they go crazy. They hate it. So um, that's why, you know, I think it's very important to understand different cultures, different, what what makes them upset, what makes them um what makes them really go crazy in the information space? What makes them polarized? Because they know exactly how to use narratives in the West. Look, the whole concept of Russophobia, the, how they use, that's a typical manipulation because Russia understands very well what resonates with people in the West. And right now, we, we live in such a times, you know, when racism is a big thing. And they've been peddling this thing, you know, that especially targeting young people in the West, about Russophobia. Don't say things against Russia because you're a racist. Because they know that something like that will resonate with people in the West. But if you know how Russian government has been operating in that space for decades, they've been weaponizing the concept of Russophobia for more than 100 years. Okay, I will stop here. Can I uh, highlight one thing? Did you see the referendum 2023? If not, Ivana. Which one? Okay, there's a no. There's a site called Referendum 2023. And if you open it, you can then go, and I'll put this up in the nest in just a second, <laughs> because you can vote there. It's open to citizens of the Russian Federation. And uh, according to the counter, 4.4 <laughs> million people have already voted out of currently eligible, probably about 105. And uh, uh, did you find it already? Okay. Uh, no, I'll I did send not. You the link. Um, and you can, of course, um, as in every good shamarandum, you can, of course, also vote if you're not there. And 178,694 people have currently voted already. Now, what do they vote for? They vote for the independence of certain republics, such as <laughs> Kuban, Ingushetia, and of course, one which drives them completely nuts, 
in black and white with a black eagle and some yellow lining, Königsberg. It is perfect. It, is not, this is one of the yes. best trolling sites in the world. I mean, clearly, but even like, look, and you, so here's the thing. You really just need to open uh, their national security documents when they talk about defending themselves in information space from two things. Number one is secessionist movements. They openly talk about that. And the second one is protecting Russian spiritual and moral values. So we already know what drives them crazy. How sweet is that? Okay, I'll post this in less than a second so everybody can actually don't forget to vote. You know, it's your vote. Your vote matters. Um, who was next? I saw someone else wanted to ask. Yeah. yeah. Who's name? Was it Carl? I think if I'm, uh, Alan, if you don't have the order, I'll just call Carl and then Nick, then Ryan, then Plamen. But Carl. Hi, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking questions. Um, Regarding Russia's confidence and how successful their info war campaign may have been this time, uh, do you think part of that confidence comes from maybe a false perception from history, given that, you know, since the end of World War II during the Soviet era, you know, they were actually quite successful uh, in achieving their goals through means that weren't kinetic, you know, whether it was a show of force, whether it was propaganda or whether it was subversion. You know, they really have decades of being quite successful uh, in many uh, dimensions in that way. Uh, as, uh, do you think that is part of uh, maybe their false bravado that uh, came into this? I mean, look, I was just speaking about that when I joined these spaces that what we see right now in the, in the information space, this is really nothing new. Russia has been doing that uh, even prior to the Cold War. Um, they've been operating they've been using information operations uh, much more even before the Cold War. Um, they never stop, and that's the thing. The reason why they are so successful, it is because they take that thing very, very, very seriously. Um, unlike in the West, you know, where we stop using information operations in both operational and tactical uh, uh, level. Uh, you know, what is the cause for that? You, you mentioned their, uh, their confidence Certainly, because they've been investing tremendous resources in that regard, whether uh, for developing their media platforms, including Sputnik and RT, uh, hiring different social media influencers. Uh, you know, everyone is talking about internet research agency, but it's only one troll factor that we know about. I mean, you really just need to open Telegram and to see what Cyber Front Z is doing. I mean, Cyber Front Z gives literally uh, the guidance to people in Russia on how to, um, uh, how to wage information uh, wars against the West and Ukraine. They even, for example, sometimes post a collage with, let's say, 10 different memes uh, mocking Zelensky, and they give guidance on where and how to publish that. They also provide information on cybersecurity issues uh, that, for example, they would give guidance on, on how and, and who
who to attack in cybersecurity next, which raises another very important issue as to how the West misunderstands the whole concept of information security, because in Russia, both technological part, which we call here cybersecurity, and psychological part, influence operations, they're part of the same strategy. Here in the United States, we do not combine them. Like we, we treat them separately, which tells you another vulnerability in the West uh, that in order to counter Russian information operations, we need to think uh, like them. Sorry, Carl, uh, the, the second part of my question, the second part of my answer was not directly related to your question, but I think it was relevant uh, and important to mention. Thank you. And so now, uh, Axel, I, I think we're going to Nick, Playman, and Ryan. I believe that was the order. Cool. Let's do it. Nick? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I put my hand up when, when Dave was speaking. I think the problem was uh, the question was more or less addressed by Ivana. Um, you're not going to push back against uh, a Nigerian sports star with tens of thousands of followers on Instagram and Twitter by building a website. Um, that just isn't how these things work. Uh, maybe we can get Nigerian sports stars to endorse the Ukrainian position, but otherwise I'm not all that concerned. I, I don't think that uh, the, uh, the attitude of, of Nigerian society or indeed the Nigerian government even is especially critical in this war. Obviously, it's nice to have everyone on side, but we're not going to go in and, and, and we're not going to go in and convince half the world that is deeply, deeply skeptical about everything the West does uh, all of a sudden by, by writing a few facts on a website uh, about massacres in Butcher uh, that we're not going to convince them that. You know, th these are people who believed that in large numbers that, that uh, the Americans created the AIDS virus to kill them. So uh, we, it, it, it's just so far away from, from, from what the issues are on the ground, I think. Um, so, but I, but I think Ivana addressed that. Look, Nick, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, and that's exactly no, what I've been trying to emphasize that by posting, writing all those long reports, um, it is important, but it is important for researchers like myself. Like I do read very carefully those reports. Um, a random person in Nigeria couldn't care less about reading 40 page long report about that. And I'll give you a very concrete example. So today, another important event happened. Um, so people's court, uh, and let me tell you what is people's court. So there were numerous ideas, you know, how to prosecute uh, Russian soldiers and, uh, and Russian leadership for war crimes. Um, there are, you know, numerous initiatives before the International Court, court uh, International Criminal Court, making maybe even a special court for 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 uh, for atrocities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But today, also, they develop. Uh, so today, uh, People's Court, uh, they uh, delivered a judgment. And let me tell you what is People's Court. It is court that is completely informal. Um, uh, that uh, that judgments certainly are not binding. And it is rather a political, they send a political message. So, uh, so today they delivered, uh, they delivered a judgment for accusing Russia and Vladimir Putin for committing the crime of aggression. Amazing. 
How many of you have read this news? I assume very few. How many people in Nigeria, what Nick mentioned, have read this news? Very, very little. This is not enough. What we need to do, for example, how we should operate in the information space, we should take evidence from that court um, and to make, let's say, um, world exhibition, like a traveling exhibition to be two days in Berlin, three days in another town in Germany, four days, I don't making things up, you know, in France to travel globally, but also in the global south and to show the world the pictures of awful atrocities and war crimes. I recently attended an event uh, where I had an opportunity uh, to wear um, uh, virtual reality uh, glasses and to watch um, the results of Russia's war crimes in Ukraine. It was, look, uh, what I just mentioned, I, I grew up during war in time. I saw awful things. But what I saw really through those glasses was very moving. Um, making such exhibitions and touching people's hearts can change things. It needs time and certainly it does not, um, uh, we should not be too idealistic that something like that will change overnight, but we need to start from somewhere. Nick, you are absolutely right. You know, having one influencer in Nigeria to spread the truth is not enough, but maybe even having one and then encouraging 10 more uh, people in Nigeria to spread the truth can still, you know, reach certain people. Um, I, I'm just going to end here because I don't know what else to say other than to repeat your excellent point, Nick. Uh, thank you, Ivana. And so on to uh, Playman. And then, I, I, Ryan, you had your hand up. You put it down. So we'll go Playman, then to George, whose hand is up. Thank you, Alan. Um, I just want to make the point for all of our military experts. Um, listening to Ivana, what I realized is that the the West has uh, an excellent combined arms strategy and uh, tactics, uh, which has been transferred to Ukraine. But obviously, the Russians have uh, excellent combined arms tactics come to our informational warfare, and we do not want have one. We rather resemble their mass meat attacks on Bakhmut than the combined arms operations we we've seen from the Ukrainian army uh, on the on the information front. So we need to do a combined arms um, <clears throat> actually campaign in this space. And what what Ivana is saying, and what actually Dave was was describing was a, a run of the mill Russian troll farm. That's the way they operated couple of years ago, let's say 10 years ago, might be. So we have to get a little bit more creative and a little bit more effective uh, and combine many angles to succeed in the informational warfare. Because it's not only to repeat facts of people, that doesn't work. You need the influencers, you need the memes, you need the coolness factor, you need to, to engage different um, sort of cross-sections of society to be successful. And that takes really a combined arms approach. Um, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Playman. Uh, we 
have lost. Oh, no, we haven't lost George. George, go ahead. And then Prince. Okay. So I just wanted to point out, like, I work with a literally United Nations uh, workforce. Okay. We have people from every walk of life. We have immigrants from many countries. We have people that are descended from many countries that are born in the United States. What I have found when the subject of Ukraine comes up is there are people from certain backgrounds that their outlook is is a learned outlook. Um, and I'm talking about immigrants. I'm an immigrant myself uh, in the United States, but it's a learned outlook and it's a generational thing, something they inherited for the most part. And what I mean by that is uh, I have people, I, I work with, with a gentleman, he's of a Nigerian background, and God bless him, he gets it. He gets it a thousand percent. Um, he's an educated man. He grew up in, uh, he went to a college in, in uh, Great Britain. And he's an educated man. And he says, the problem is, is that Nigeria has had that colonial issue. It's tainted toward the West because of colonialism. And because of that history, uh, what happens is they, he says, they just, he says they turn off their ears. So I guess he's, um, when, he, when he's talking about it, he's translating that from his mother tongue, but he says they turn off their ears. He says they're not going to hear you no matter what. He says what you have to show them is the generation, the, maybe the next generation. He says, but especially if that's, he said, he said, I have friends. He says, the fathers are like that. The mothers are like that. And he says, to get them out of that mindset, he says, is a very huge upward battle. He said, the other thing, and he was talking about, um, I'm paraphrasing him. He's talking about, you know, people uh, from Africa. He says, it's not only the colonialism, it says that the wars that we've had in Africa, he says, have been brutal. You know, he says, Geneva Conventions, he goes, that, that gets thrown out, uh, you know, the first hour. So when people hear of like rapes and killings and, uh, you know, all these atrocities, he said, that's part of, part of the course of what's happened in Africa. And he said, and other countries too, and it's true. You look at um, what happened in, because uh, we talked about it uh, a few weeks ago, you know, what happened in Kosovo. That was the mindset. Those, you know, the, the Serbian army, that was like, hey, th this is what we do. Like, it's hard when they haven't been, um, you know, they haven't fought a because I don't know the word clean war is, isn't appropriate, but do you understand what I'm saying? According to the Geneva Conventions, that hasn't happened. And they don't have a history of it. 
So, of course, you get atrocities. They're like, ah, well, you know, when you sit there and say, oh, well, well children are getting killed and women are getting raped and blah, blah, blah. They say, you know what they answer? They say, that's war. No, it's not supposed to be like that, but they don't know any better. And that's what my colleague, who's my coworker, ha has said. And he says, that's what you're fighting up against. He says, they don't know that that's not supposed to happen. So you've got that hurdle to jump, plus the other hurdles, right? The colonialism and things like that. And he says, and it's really bad when you have a country where over 50% of the people believe that. I'm Greek. We have idiots in Greece, right? Because of the whole political, you know, uh, extreme right, extreme left. You've got those loons, you know, the extreme wings. And that's how they are. And that's how they're going to think. They're going to see as Russia is all oh, defending itself. And so of course, they're insane. But they're, thank God they're a minority in Greece. It's countries where that thinking is uh, approaches f over 40%, 50%, 60% of the population. And that's the problem. And that's going to be hard because of <laughs> history comes back to bite you. And, there, and this is where the colonialism comes in. And the Russians and the Soviets were really good at selling that they were, oh, everybody's equal, you know, in the Soviet Union, even though they, used, they, they had a huge racial hatred to the African students that were going to universities in Moscow and, and what have you. So it's an uphill battle. George, your friend is a very wise man. And as an immigrant myself, I know exactly what you're referred to. And let me tell you what Russia is doing right now in Africa in related to uh, things related to colonialism. They're weaponizing colonialism and portraying the United Kingdom as a nefarious power. Um, if you actually, I recently also published my piece exactly on how Russia is weaponizing colonialism um, in Africa using the United Kingdom. Uh, what they're actually doing, uh, for example, you even have on Sputnik a quick search that has a word, British colonialism. Like literally quick search. Uh, because they understand very well that they don't need to invent anything else other than to portray the West and especially the United Kingdom as a colonial power. When Putin gave a speech last fall, when he recognized uh, new territories in Russia, he mentioned 11 times colonialism in his speech, 11 times. What he has been also doing in terms of colonialism, even inside uh, the United Kingdom, uh, Russia has been using information operations also uh, to portray the United Kingdom inside the United Kingdom, targeting the far left, uh, portraying the United Kingdom as a nefarious power. And every time when I hear the story, well, you know, Russia is bad, people, um, who believe in, in such things that are going to say, yeah, but you know, the United Kingdom will also colonial uh, power. And the real question is, what are you gonna do about this? And how put Russia on the defensive? Because Russia is also imperialistic country 
uh, with imperialistic ambitions. Uh, uh, and, and just, you know, what you just mentioned, talking about uh, Geneva Conventions, they couldn't, they literally couldn't care less. And even talking about war crimes that are happening right now in, in, in Ukraine, you're right, it will not resonate in that part of, of, of the world because that's something what they saw and what they noticed and uh, that will not uh, going to cause any rage over there. Yes, I was, um, was going to say the, the, the problem that everybody misses in Africa, and, he, and, and I just want to throw this really quick and I'll let everybody else speak really quick. Historically, Russia never had the power, naval power, right? Uh, especially in a giant, and the Japanese made a, made sure that they never, uh, you know, had it after 1905. But that's another story. They never had the naval power to set up colonies outside of, you know, their their borders. In other words, they didn't have the power. Trust me. If the Russians would have had a navy, they would have had a colonial power in Africa. We all know that. Their colonial power is look at the Russian Federation, find where Moscow is, right? Draw a circle 100 kilometers around Moscow. Everything else that's in the Russian Empire, in our main empire, or federation as they call it now, is colonialism because they conquered all those people by brute force and made them part of the Russian Empire that's now the Russian Federation. Russia has been one of the biggest colonial power colonizers, at least in its immediate area, but it never had the Navy or that uh, power projection when it was an empire outside of, you know, a couple of miles from its borders. And that's the difference. Correct, George. I under, exactly. And the thing is, why don't we use that as a part of our narrative to spread the truth about their imperialistic ambitions and colonial um, and colonial ambitions? So that's something, you know, that I do not understand why we are not doing that enough. And look, I really hope that there are people who are listening, these spaces, rolling their eyes from Western intelligence, thinking, oh, this woman, she doesn't even know what we are talking about and what we are actually doing in reality. I wish, you know, uh, that they are going to, like, in 20, 30 years from now, prove me wrong. Uh, but everything, what I see, I do not see that we are doing um, enough um, in, the information, in the information space encountering Russia, including the narratives regarding uh, colonialism, because this is so obvious that I'm just telling you, like if you if you open Sputnik, there is literally a quick search that talks about it has like two words, um, which is British colonialism. And and remember, and you know, you click on that, and then they spread, you know, the whole narratives, including Churchill. Uh, they're trying to undermine his importance after the World War II because. That's one thing, you know, that Russia uh, wants to portray itself as a peace-loving nation, you know, that saved the world after World War II. Um, anyway, sorry I interrupted you, you know, to say something. Yeah. So, so what they're going to push back, and I just want everybody on the space, 
because when you say that Russia was a col colonial power, and they're going to say, well, the Soviet Union had a navy, and, and look, they didn't colonize. Yes, they did. People forget because you know, uh, if you don't, if it didn't happen in, you know, when you were like twenty and above, you forget about it. Look at Egypt. Look at Syria. Look mm -hmm. at look at Iraq. Look at look at Angola. If they were such a great benefactor, they were in charge in Angola. Cubans said help liberate Angola or whatever the you know BS they sell these people. Why is Angola still Angola? They've been in charge Correct. there for years, yet it's it's the, the country's a shambles. Egypt finally woke up and got rid of the Soviets, you know, and you know, I, and Egypt has its issues, right? Because it's a huge, it's a huge country. There's been corruption in Egypt. There's been, you know, it, it has its issues, but it finally woke up and got rid of the Soviets. Look at Syria. What, Syria has been in the Soviet sphere. You know, they call it a sphere of influence. No, it's a, it a Soviet colony. It's been, it's been, it's been a, it's been a crap hole ever since. So, they've colonized, and they've never improved any country that they colonized. Far worse have a, have a, have a, are the countries that are under the Russian sphere of influence or immediate allies of Russia than any country that was allied or a colony of uh, Great Britain, France, or anything of that nature. And, and that's a, the God honest truth. And North Korea, you know, I mean, really, wow. Such a jewel of uh, Soviet influence, you know. Everybody wants to be Korea, North Korea, right? Correct. Uh, uh, thank you, George. So the order of hands now is uh, Hardy and then Prince. And I uh, want to make a quick public uh, service announcement. The speaker's panel is full. If you do not want to contribute to this conversation, please drop yourself down so I can bring others up. Uh, thank you. So Hardy, uh, then And Alan, I just want to say, I literally have time only for two more questions and not more. And I accuse Axel of uh, doing psychological warfare on me because every time I promise I'll be there like for 30 minutes or 45 and look almost two and a half hours so I firmly blame Axel for this well Axel Sorry. knows how to do it Ivana <laughs> clearly clearly uh, so uh, let's respect Ivana's time Hardy and Prince uh, Hardy please go ahead yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Ivana, for spending so much time with us today. I have a quick question. I have uh, a couple friends from college that are Russians I knew 30 years ago, and I've been in touch with them during the war. And they're coming at me all the time with this Russophobia. And I'm like, we're not Russophobic. I mean, I live in San Francisco. We have the, the bus the bus stop signs are in Russian and stuff. And I'm just wondering what you would recommend as a good argument to counter this, because that's just nonstop I get from my Russian acquaintances from college. Of course. Look, um, that is part of their strategy that they have been weaponizing for uh, not since last February, but as I stated, like almost 100 uh, years. Um, the right response, there is really nothing you can respond to them other than being aware what they are doing in terms of manipulation. So that is part of their manipulation. There is nothing you can do. You cannot argue with them about that because no matter what they do, no matter what you say, 
they will use that offensively against you, uh, claiming you know that you are xenophobic and that you are racist. Uh, you just have to be aware of that. That that sort of manipulation what worries me more is that there are a lot of people in the West who are not aware of that um, of that uh, psychological warfare and how they use it to target, especially young people in the West, uh, to feel embarrassed. To criticize, uh, to criticize Russia. So take a deep breath, um, and there is really nothing you can do about that other than not to feel guilty for speaking the truth. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Hardy and Prince. Uh, you have the last question for Ivana. Hello, Ivana. It's good to see you. And um, you know, tell us about the stars. Uh, uh, Prince, your your audio is really scratchy. Is that any better? No, yes, it's it better. Okay. okay, sorry about that. Um, you're very, very lucky because Thomas Steiner is uh, sometimes here for eight hours, so two and a half hours is nothing. <laughs> I'm not Axel's mistake. So. Whoever, you know, wants to launch like a, a information operations campaign, Axel should be in charge. It clearly works. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I was going back to the people's court that you had that you uh, you were talking about at The Hague. <laughs> I, I clearly caught what you were saying, but you did say had anybody heard of that hear, heard of that. And I have actually. I saw the news earlier this week when it started. And I was following it, and I sought out the information today to see what the final verdict was. And I was happy to see that AP actually was covering it. I found it on a Ukrainian Correct. news website. Yeah. I, I initially found it on a Ukrainian news website, but I was able to find it on the AP today. So hopefully that will get it a, a little bit more press. I, I, you know, I know it doesn't mean anything, and... And it could have been done a, a, a better way, but at least this way, uh, maybe some people get a, get a sight of it and, and hear about it and make, make people think about what we could do, what needs to happen, and what should be happening already um, to hold people accountable for what's happening. I just I thought it was a very interesting thing for them to do. Indeed, you know, Prince, of course, that you've heard of that because you are NAFO. And of course, you know that NAFO is the first one who should spread such information in information space. <laughs> uh, but now on a serious note, um, uh, yes, you know, they delivered uh, their, whatever it's called, like a judgment verdict. Uh, it is not legally binding and it is a great thing to do. But as I stated, it's, uh, it's not going to prevent Russia from uh, waging uh, a war. Um, and even when it comes to the International Criminal Court or International Court of Justice, uh, people are very hopeful about that. Look, I firmly believe that we should help Putin accountable for war crimes. But if people believe that that's a substitute for attackants or HIMARS or F-16, they are sorely mistaken. Um, so uh, this is really a step in the right direction. Uh, but everything else, what the West is doing in terms of making, you know, special uh, military, like special courts, et cetera, uh, without providing weapons, it is just, uh, it is just virtue signaling uh, and 
uh, not uh, enough because the Kremlin couldn't care less. But I'm so glad that you read this news. Uh, thank and, you. Thank just, you, Frank. Just real quick, Alan. And actually, I have talked about it on the space. I've been posting in the evenings that I talked about it the day I found it earlier this week. I talked about it again last night, and I was planning on bringing it up tonight when I host. So I, I have been uh, make, making people aware that it's happened. So Perfect. Um, it's a it's an interesting – I thought it was a very interesting thing, and I totally agree with everything you said about it. And I know you have to go, so I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you so much for being with us again I, today. Absolutely. Look, I have no doubt that Axel will again, you know, send me a message and convince me uh, uh, to stay uh, three hours, even if I tell him that I'm only available for 15 to 30 minutes. <laughs> but on a serious note, thank you so much for inviting me today. Uh, um, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you so much for all your questions and um, very, very thoughtful and uh, also provoking questions. Um, and, you know, I firmly believe that uh, paying attention to the information space, it's tremendously important because if the Russian military deeply cares about that, we should care uh, about that space too, because this war will not only, uh, uh, it's not only important to win in the battlefield, but it's also important to win uh, in the information space. So wishing you wonderful rest of your evening or wherever you are, maybe even morning. Uh, and I very much look forward to speaking with you soon. Ivana, thank you very much. Uh, and I will give the, the final word uh, to Axel, uh, it will be, I know, uh, words of gratitude for uh, for all of your time. Axel? Well, Ivana, you know what? I think you have outlasted Axel, uh, which is which is hard to believe. Well, uh, that, you know, raises another uh, serious concern about my psychological operations. But uh, that's a separate story that we can discuss next time. But meanwhile, I will definitely send a message to, to Axel and remind him who is the queen of information warfare. Ivana, I cannot wait <laughs> until you're back uh, here at Maria Report because I really want to talk to you uh, about radio, the old days of radio, uh, uh, the old days of, of the BBC, Radio Free Europe, uh, uh, the Voice of America. But Let's talk so about much. that next time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for everything. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye, uh, everyone. You. Goodbye and good night, Ivana. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I just want to remind folks, you're listening to Maria Report. Uh, we are here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, we have been here now every single day of, uh, of this year's Russian invasion of Ukraine. It, it is now the 10th year of war uh, in Ukraine. Uh, this is something we, we need to remember. Uh, it's not just uh, a year, a mark, a milestone uh, of a year since uh, Russia invaded on February 24, 2022. Uh, so please retweet the space. It's mariareport.org. Uh, if you are listening on your phone, you can raise your hand 
by tapping on the uh, the little purple mic icon at the bottom left, or or request to speak, and then tap on the heart plus icon. Raise your hand, and uh, we'll get you in line to speak. You can also listen to us uh, on your laptop, on your tablet, but you cannot participate there. Uh, you can only participate on your phone because that's the way Twitter spaces work. So today, it is still uh, February 24, uh, the one-year milestone of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's still February 24 here in the United States. It's the next day uh, now in Ukraine. But this is the perfect time to go to mariaaid.org and make a contribution. That's M-R-I-Y-A-A-I-D dot O-R-G. Because at Maria Aid, you can send life-saving supplies to Ukraine. If you have not acknowledged today here uh, in, in North America, in the United States, where it's still February 24th, by sending a contribution, please do that tonight. Uh, please. 